The Coco Nation Show is an unscripted, live, and interactive broadcast. Anything can and will happen. The views and opinions expressed by members of the panel and the live audience are their own, and not necessarily those of the Coco Nation Show, its sponsors, affiliates, or subsidiaries. Open minds are encouraged, and a sense of humor is recommended. Thank you for being a part of the Coco Nation. Radio Shack. Okay. What? The 80s called. Welcome to the Coco Nation. The world's first live and interactive talk show featuring the Tandy Color Computer and its hardware cousins. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Coco Nation Show, episode 351, where today. We are going to, let's see, what's the title today? Deluxe Color Computer Secrets Unveiled. Dun, dun, dun. And when I pushed this button, nothing happened. There we go. All right, let's see. we got a panel full today. Let's take a look and see who we got here. Starting in the upper left-hand corner, we got Rick Uland. Well, I know no secrets, so let's move on. Okay. Uh, Marco. <laughs> there glad to be here as usual and yours truly the button pushing monkey next up we got mark siegel hello and Hi. next over we got ken waters woohoo i made the top row top row today and let's see character turn line feed we got tim lindner tim lindner hi everybody hi tim okay. and l curtis boyle Welcome to the show, everyone. It's going to be an exciting one. Okay. And Ron Delvo. Anything can and will happen. And considering you're sitting right next to Alan Murphy. Howdy, howdy, everyone. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Everything will happen. <laughs> All right. Let's see. Grant Leedy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. Okay. And we got David Croker. Hey, everyone. Great to be here today. And Terry Stiggy. Welcome, everybody. Uh, Bob Emery. And sort of. Sort of. <laughs> uh, Nick Marentes. Good night, everyone. Okay. Frederick Sigard. Hello, everyone. Okay. And on the bottom row, we got Brian Weasler. Hello, all. all uh, right. Doug Maston and... says no right speaker. Uh, Anybody else? Good on Zoom. I have no problems. Considering we're broadcasting in mono, that's a that's a neat trick. <laughs> <laughs> have you turned cool. it off and turned it back on again? <laughs> and uh, uh, last but not least, uh, running on batteries, we got Henry Gernhard. Hi, folks. Welcome to the Coco Nation. And today. We're going to have some fun, apparently, with the Deluxe Coco, and I'm looking forward to it. Hey. Okay. 
And let's see, in the chat, scroll, 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 we've got uh, Coco Living, uh, Jay Jones, Kenny Earth Things, Tricob 1974, Retro NG, Marco Torsion Dittel, is that how you pronounce Torsten. that? What's that? Torsten. 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 Okay. Torsten. This is the part where I butcher everybody's name. Uh, let's see. Sixie. Daddy Burrito. Uh, Julian Brown, Tom Eric Gunderson, Tim Franklin, uh, Spenny 108, Daddy Burrito, Tim Franklin, Dave and Sharon Veery. And let's see, we've got uh, Chris Street Dries. My apologies. Uh, let's see, Doug Maston. You know, I need to give this up. We need the AI voice. But you kind of I, I think what Mark is saying is he's sending a personal request for all the people in the chat and on the panel. Please uh, send a pronunciation of your name as an audio file and send them all up to Mark, and he'll have them all ready to play. Or just spell them so I can uh, read it. Phonetically. Phonetically. Phonetically, yeah. <laughs> Mark, you almost sing the songs when you hear the names. When you. Yep. It's yeah. time for the dramatic reading of the chat. <laughs> Oh, God, here we go. <laughs> Tell you what, Brian Walsh has just joined us and Sloopy Malibu as well in the chat. Okay. Well, Sloopy's supposed to be here, so I don't know what he's doing over there. Yeah, slacker. All right. <laughs> well, first up, I think uh, Brian Weasler. There we go. <clears throat> well, okay, so uh, about a month or so ago, uh, we uh, we shared with you a color. Uh, a, a, now is it? Uh, I always get it turned around. Is it color computer deluxe, deluxe or deluxe Coco? Deluxe Which, color the, computer. Deluxe color computer. Okay, I want to make sure I'm uh, calling it right here. So oh. I always kind of get it turned around a little bit. So <laughs> we showed you the the hardware that we had there, but uh, uh, we have something else that we want to share with you today. So that you maybe didn't think existed, like you know Santa Claus or the Fountain of Youth. So. I'm going to switch screens right here, and fingers crossed, you guys will see something that maybe uh, only just a couple people have seen. So let's see here. We'll start it out with this. Okay. Everybody got their fingers crossed for me? Green yep. screen. Green screen. Here we go. Let's see what happens here. I've seen that. Ooh. Ooh. Look at that. Somebody's got boost. some ROMs. I can make that on uh, a ROM. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, yeah, you probably could. You probably could. So uh, as go. it indicates on the screen there, it says, uh, and I have to be a little careful here. Um, the machine is, uh, I got a little bit of a hardware issue, so it is kind of flaky. Um, it wants to lock up on me periodically, so I have to be a uh, little delicate fingers with it. But as you notice there, it says Advanced Color Basic, and then it has that earlier version there. Um, this may not have been a final version, but this is the version that was on the ROMs on this uh, uh, deluxe color that uh, that I have here. And, from? Uh, what's that? And oh, where did you get it from? Yeah, <laughs> from Bob uh, from Bob Killigus, Robert Killigus there, um, from that collection that I picked up here uh, earlier this, uh, well, I guess it would have been uh, fall of last year. 
Yeah, the um, author of Skiing in Dino Wars and Scripts It and a whole bunch of other things. So. Correct. Yep. This is all. This was uh, that that system that was in there with uh, with the stuff there because he did do a lot of early development um, with uh, with some games and uh, and other applications there that we uh, that we're all aware of. Um, hey Curtis, did you get my high score for Scripts It? Uh, no, <laughs> oh, nice. I, I I misread your original post about it. I did Scripts oh, okay. instead, so sorry. it's not quite the same. Sorry to interrupt. I'm sorry. No, no worries. So, so what's with the um, blinking cursor with no color on it? Well, that's just that's one of the things that, uh, that whether that was by design or uh, unsure. Um, so it's just a blinking cursor there with uh, it's just the black. It's not our multicolor there. Well, I so thought what, maybe what, you what, would say that uh, there's all two, 256 colors there, but they're so fast it appears as black. No. <laughs> so um, we did dump the ROMs here uh, a while back here. And uh, one of the things that we've been working on in the background, and when I say we, um, referring to uh, uh, Alan, uh, Tim, and uh, uh, Curtis, uh, they've been working on disassembling uh, th these ROMs that I was able to uh, to uh, to read off, and then uh, we've been looking at those um, and trying to trying to look and see what features might have been in there, what new commands, um, and they can probably speak more fluently than I can. On some of this, uh, there is a handful of uh, new commands that were uh, in the ROMs, um, you know, to take advantage of like the the, the serial chip, the uh, AY3 chip, um, and then some of the other uh, uh, features that are in here. Um, so I'd like to show uh, before it locks up on me here. I'd like to show one thing here for you guys. So I'm just going to type a little program here real quick. It doesn't lock up on me. So we got print A. Let's go ahead and run it. And there it is. So I'm going to do something here. I'm going to say, save, test. Now, there's nothing plugged into this thing here. Ooh, I got an OK. Let's do a dir. There it is. One of the features of this machine is that um, when it boots up, um, it sets up a RAM drive. And uh, how, how big was the RAM? Did you guys? Uh, 12 the RAM granules, drive? wasn't it, Tim? Yes, 12 granules. 12 granules there. So. There is a, a built-in um, RAM drive. When it boots up, it sets that up. And so that's one of the features. Uh, well, actually, I just... it only does that uh, if there's no disk controller in. Yep, we'll, we'll get to that port there. Yep, I, yep, that's I, correct. Yep, could I ask that? a simple question? Sure. Um, so how many total granules would be on a floppy? And, and, and what size, like, is 12K or, you know, what size there, is there's that? 68 granules on a regular floppy there's 12 granules on the ram disk drive because it basically uses the upper 32k so it's 32k that we're talking about a little yeah. less a little less okay yeah. okay by the way but try to hold your questions back because we don't know how long this machine's gonna last running here so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, i have to be kind of careful if i if i tap it uh, i'm trying to break down what the issue is but if i tap it, it'll it'll like lock up on me here and i don't know if it's coming through on what you guys can see there but you can kind of see some little black sparklies floating around yeah. and stuff like that. We see them. Yeah. Yep. So you can see that. And then also, too, periodically, I get uh, a black and white uh, image. And then I also get this kind of, uh, uh, I get this banding that kind of wants to go through it. It looks pretty bad. So I'm slowly working on it, trying to narrow down where the issue is. But uh, Brian, what's look. your capture setup right now? What I'm using right now is the um, uh, uh, RGB to HDMI adapter. Got it. So what I did was, is I uh, uh, I used the same setup um, 
that they use for a color computer too. Mm -hmm. Um, but the way I did it was, is I took a 40 pin socket and took the ribbon cable and I soldered the wires directly to the pins of the socket. And then I, I popped out the VDD chip, uh, dropped the 40 pin socket in and then put the VD chip back uh, on top of it. And then I'm video capturing that to HDMI. So for those that don't know, the RGB to HDMI project, uh, when connected to a Coco 2, um, taps in directly to the VDG's Luma and Chroma signals and uh, digitizes them, produces a, a bitmap in its memory, and then uh, shoves it out to HDMI. Yeah, it works, it works really good. I mean, uh, um, I've, I've enjoyed using it. So I'm going to type in a, another little command here that uh, some of you are, maybe probably most of you are familiar with. Does anybody know what that one does? Curtis, you can't say anything. Probably most of you probably already know what this one does. So I'm going to do a shift zero. This also had a oh, also had the T uh, the, the T1 version of the VD chip is in this one as well. Nice. Lower. So hey, type there in lowercase. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Oh, Another well. feature of the advanced <laughs> color basic is it will accept lowercase commands. So these yeah. are real descenders. Well, you haven't typed any descenders yet. Are these real descenders? Like G? Oh, that's, do a, that's G. a good question. So let me let me do a list of this program here. So there's a list so, of the program. Oh, I, I actually what I really meant to type was I wanted to put instead of print A, I wanted it to print B. But rather than typing the whole line over, how about I hold down the Alt key and I'll just arrow over to where I want. And the Coco finally catches up to the C64. <laughs> <laughs> so now let's go ahead and uh, let's run our little program here. There we go. We still got a zero. Yeah. So it has uh, with the Alt there and the arrow keys, you can actually arrow around on the on the uh, on the screen there and make uh, changes. So that was kind of a. Kind of a whoops, I'm gonna type the whole word run. There we go. So I'm um, trying to think here, what else guys can I show that's coming off of memory? You you can also edit a line number with the edit command, which is now a full screen editor too, I believe. Yeah, if you type edit 10, it will clear the screen, list line 10, and then put the cursor at the beginning of the line. So I still want to know what's a lowercase g look like. Or why? So is, is it a real descender? Like, you know, Y, L, Y, A, some two two Put letters, letter. one with a descender and one without a descender? The T1 VDG does use real descenders, and it shifted the rest of the font up. Well, I would like to see, I was trying to see that, but. Uh, hey, um, Brian, type, between regular type, letters. type the word play. Nice. Okay, so there are real descenders. Yeah, that's, and that's and that's just simply a feature of the T1, right? Correct. It moves the five the five by seven bitmap up two spots to make room for the descenders, which is why mm -hmm. the semi-graphics modes, uh, the text slices in the semi-graphics modes don't work the same on the T1 VDG as they do on the regular VDG. 
Okay. Is that where we have a black cursor? No, um, I think that maybe. was just a style style choice. Yeah, I mean the MC10 and the Dragon both have black blinking cursors too. So everyone knows Disco's dead. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, Tim, what was the? Tim, when I was uh, showing there, you were saying, talking about using the edit uh, command there. What, what could you repeat? Yeah, that just again? edit edit ten for example. That will clear the screen and put the line that you want to edit up at the top, and then you use your cursor keys to go through it, and there's other keys to insert and delete, et cetera. So. Nice. What was that, Mark? This is a very early version. <laughs> the file yeah, does it, so you did not have to hold down the any key to go into the uh, full screen edit mode. Okay. So the the okay. arrow keys would have just worked uh, naturally? Yep. Yeah, because right yeah, that's now, something we'll, we'll like after we demonstrate the stuff we have in this version of Advanced Color Basic. There's a bit of a history of what happened afterwards that I want Mark to get into, like renaming the basic itself, and then some of the things like he just mentioned that changed. Does um, it support longer variable names? No, no, no. still two characters. Okay, yeah, it's it's Color Basic extended further than just extended Color Basic. So, yeah. but it started as the same source files that were used for Color Basic and the Dragon. So, uh, you know, it has much of this, you know, it shares a lot uh, with those. But in this case, it's reorganized memory. So, most of the addresses that you've seen in the Color Basic Unraveled, they don't matter anymore for this thing. Uh, but other parts of it are very recognizable. So, I, we can get into that later on. Does term work here? Repeat. There it is. And you know, the cursor color has changed to indicate you're in the terminal. Right. And I can't remember. Did we figure out how to break out of this? I thought it was a uh, control break. break. <laughs> nope. Alt break. There we go. Alt break. Mm. Yes, Sixy. The uh, jump table is still there and actually has a lot more entries now. Yeah, there's a second jump table at 8,000 now, too, that's brand new. Which I'll get into a bit any, later. Um... No, James, it's not a uh, load original ROM and patch it. This was completely reassembled, uh, reassembled from sources. Yes. Yeah. So. And we should mention, Mark, correct me if I'm wrong, but this actually was the last version of BASIC that Microsoft themselves worked on doing the updates. This was not microware involvement or anything else. That is correct. Mind you, microware was busy working on OS 9 for the Deluxe as well, which we've talked about before. So as, as what, um, what what Mark had me do there with the, uh, with the, with the term is it does it a terminal mode and then what you – I think we determined you could probably either what through an RS-232 or out the serial port. No, it's through the RS thirty two uh, hardware and built in. Use uh, there's some command in, in Basic to set the uh, term uh, to set the UART mode. Yes, yeah, we uh, I, we did find that one. I can't remember the syntax right offhand, but um, uh, Tim. Uh, oh yeah, was the it command Tim is... or Alan? I can't remember. One of you guys had, had uh, you, you broke it all out where you can type the command. Was the series of uh, com is there, and you can set the uh, yeah. Tim did that. Uh, okay, I and mean, you can set the baud and bit and uh, all of that. Yeah. So if you use the keyboard right now, nothing will show. Right, because it won't be echoed back from right. the host. 
Okay. Yeah. Yep. I Basically, it's, a, it's like having a built-in color compact or something like that right in the ROM that you can just go straight to the new RS-232 chip that's in the Deluxe. And you can transmit and receive a file, but I don't know if that's in this version. What, I have what, uh, not verified if that's in this version yet. Um, it may st it may still be in there for file transmit, and it would probably go to the RAM disk by default. If we what, hit uh, Control Alt Delete, will Mark Siegel's face come up? <laughs> <laughs> there would have been somebody what, lynched uh, for that, I'm sure. <laughs> ROM wasn't that big. What sort of a protocol would it, do you recall, Mark? What kind of protocol would use for the file transfer? I do not remember. Okay, uh, I would assume X modem because um, the direct uh, direct uh, modem pack did have X modem built into its terminal program, so I would guess that and would be the load was very close to X modem already, so there was probably a lot of code just laying around that they could use pretty quick. So one other thing I want to show real quick here, and uh, Mark alluded to it. It doesn't work for both functions, but I at least want you guys to see the screen. Go ahead and turn it off here. Give me a second. Hopefully it cooperates here with me. Why is the screen green if you're off? Because of the, that's just the video capture. Yeah, the RGB to HDMI defaults to that. Okay. There we go. You guys see this? Yeah. So if there's a, a, a disc controller that it can see, um, it asks you, do you want to go to basic or do you want to go to the disk drive? So that way it would not enable the, uh, uh, the Ram drive. So if you hit F1. Oh, that's, that, that's a little incorrect. Okay. Yeah, clarify, please. Uh, the Ram drive is drive four. Um, well, that's always, right. That's always right. available. Always available. That's right. Yes. Yeah. And for the, for those wondering, the F2 for disk basically does the DOS command. So that's like booting OS nine or flex or whatever else you want it to do. Right. So if you hit F2, it, would probably it would spin up the drive looking for a disk in there so you could boot right into os9 is that the yeah. well, it basically does the same as a dos command does on disk yep. basic 1.1 so basically it yep. looks on track uh, 34 reach track 34 if the first two bytes are ons it assumes there's a dos in and it'll start executing the third, the third byte byte. in. Yeah. Right. So I, I have an obvious question um i doubt can that I, can i get this dos from my coco twos no but it should be possible to uh, rewrite this this um, basic for Cocoa Three. I I haven't done it, <laughs> but uh, a Cocoa Three with a multi pack, uh, um, a speech sound card, and a serial pack, the Deluxe RS two thirty two pack, <laughs> would have all the features needed to run this basic if this basic were modified for, for how new addresses for the new addresses. So that's an interesting project. I will put that up there as a uh, 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 opportunity for some motivated individual. <laughs> I just want to mention too, uh, for those who haven't figured it out already by now, the advanced color basic in here combined with color basic, extended basic, and its internal partial disk basic uh, means you have a total of 32K of ROM in here, same as the Coco 3. No pictures. Yeah, no pictures. <laughs> How about words? Do they still have the, uh, you know, if you do a CLS nine, is it? You Tim, I'm trying Microsoft? to remember. Does does the screen phase shift have a basic command to enable it, or do we still have to poke something to try to get that to work? N nothing I found yet. So and CLS nine does do something different, but um, I, I believe it cold starts the computer. Try it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 
and um, CLS two fifty six basically does nothing. Yeah, you know, in FCR. Yeah, we think it's a bug that CLS nine does a cold start. Does it bring you back to the just like a if you were hit reset? Uh, a little bit more. It's more like reset. you powered it off and turned it back yeah. on again. It's, oh, it's so you get the title and everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And any well, basic program you had in there is gone. Yeah. So that's, that's why we think it's a bug. I, I mean, it's nice to have a way to you know force a cold reset, but I could see somebody just typing in a basic program, accidentally typing nine instead of eight, and then they lose <laughs> the entire program they've been typing in. I can't see that being. Use proper. your RAM disk, kids. Yes. <laughs> what do you? What do you? Know, well, initialize Mark? RAM disk too. <laughs> Mark. Oh, okay. Really evil. So this, is just, this is just your black and white thing suddenly showing up, right? So one um, Microsoft Easter egg is in the advanced basic. It's the um, the name Microsoft itself spelled backwards called um, as a indirect from the sign table. And that was put in by Bill Gates himself, according to uh, the sources. Um, when he realized that he had sold basic to Commodore, but didn't have anything in the basic that would identify that Microsoft had actually written it. And so when Commodore came back for patches a bit later for a later version, um, he slipped in uh, an Easter egg so that he could later prove that it was still Microsoft's code. Yeah, there's a great article on pagetable.com uh, that goes through all that in uh, fine detail. And exactly how it works. And the the entire thing is hidden in plain sight by changing one letter of a function call. Really pretty slick. It's actually in the uh, Commodore Basic uh, version two, as well as the AppleSoft Basic, and of course the Tandy. Neat story. Um, Go look it up. That's all I really have to, that that I could probably share. Um, I do have a little video I can about a one minute video I can play real quick for everybody that. Uh, um, might show something else that we've been kind of talking about a little bit there. Let me do sure. this here. Let me. I'm uh, surprised. I'm, I'm surprised it's been stable this stable this long. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just have to kind of. I just have to tap a few things on the it board there and show off. Well, yeah. well, it knows I'm watching. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. Let's see here. Let's do this here. So let me uh, switch back to here. Okay. And let's see where's my share button at here. Share screen. And here we go. Okay. And... Yeah, 60. The Microsoft is uh, reversed, and the two upper bits are set so that it doesn't look like um, ASCII at all or Petsky. Oops. There we go. Okay. Is that coming through there? You guys see the yeah. fuzzy screen? So I'm going to go ahead and play this. So this is a. Uh, I recorded this this morning, uh, connected to a TV set, and I was just holding my uh, cell phone here and recorded this video, and we'll see if we uh, see how well it comes through here. So I was just powering it on and off a few times. So you see this kind of green with the blue banding? Yeah. The blue banding is what we've been kind of talking about when we talk about this phase shifting. Um, from time to time, when I get this thing, when it comes up, it comes up to a blue-gray screen of sorts, kind of like the Commodore screen. And uh, we'll see. It does it. Uh, it does it a couple times here, but but I haven't been able to get it uh, this morning since it's been stable. Let's see here. 
I do a Are you forcing things. something that isn't there, or is it something that you, you know no, in translation? No. Um, let me back up just a second here. I wanted to see that one. That's the part I wanted to show you guys right after this next one here, right here. Boom! You see that blue right there? And then when it when it does want to do the blue, then it acts up this way, and I get this black and white <laughs> screen that will come on here. There it is. You see it? Oh, and then, okay. it, and then it does this. So it does it for just a moment. And then it disappears. So I don't know if it's something within some circuitry that's not right, but uh, you can kind of see it there for just a little bit there. Yeah, I'm just right kind of powering it on and off a few times here, but you can see how it's there just in the beginning. And then it kind of disappears for a second. So I, 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 with that phase shifting, you hardware guys, with that phase shifting, would that be some hardware on the board <laughs> that's doing that? What are you using to display this? This is just a TV set. Yeah, it could be. That, that's an artifact banding that, that looks like to me. And um, I'd say you're losing. I'd say you're losing your color burst somewhere. But I'm we were thinking it's the the TV set because I have that same issue with uh, my Coco Three on uh, my one uh, capture card. Does the same exact thing. Hmm. See the reason oh, the reason we're talking about it though is that this actually had a controllable phase shift, so you could change the color of the text screen. There's actually a poke in the uh, new control register that is supposed to set it to a blue background. Um, but well, and let me just take one step back there. What Sloopy was talking about, yes, what you guys are seeing is the video capture device. When I was recording this this morning, this was just on my TV set plugged into the R uh, into the RF there on channel four. But the thing yeah, is, that's I'm... that's still a video capture device. It's just with a local display and we're calling it a television, but it's not a TV. Yeah. So, that's okay. Yeah. What, what you're seeing on that screen is what I'm talking about. It's okay. What I see with a, uh, with a, with a video capture device with both the Coke, the Coco one, two, and three on the RF every once in a while, I'll get color on the Coco three, but uh -huh. for the most part, that's what it looks like. And I've actually seen that in, in uh, two different captures and uh, on a on a uh, inexpensive TV. But but Mark uh, Mark wasn't there? Uh, and this is what Curtis and I were talking about, and we were talking about in our chat there. Was there supposed to be an option like that to to have a different screen that was supposed to be easier to look at or something like that? Or how'd you word it, Curtis? Yeah, it's it's supposed to be a blue background. I've looked at the documentation or the email stuff going back between Mark Hawkins and Mark Siegel from doing the deluxe uh, Coco OS 9. And that is something you can actually control with a poke, supposedly. You can shift it so it's not a green screen. It's a blue screen. Okay. Um, Mark, do you know, remember if that was supposed to have a basic command to enable that? Or was it going to be like the Coco 3 where uh, you have to hold down a key when you boot or something? Or No, I think you have to poke it. But I think it was going to be built into OS 9. Yeah, it definitely was. I've got the drivers for that, but Boise managed to get the microware. So this feature, is it just to control the red-blue artifacting, or is there some other reason for it? It was just uh, a part of the design. Uh, to increase the number of colors? It was not necessarily to increase the number of colors. It was to give it sort of a different palette. Okay. okay. More options. More options. 
Deluxe. In, in fact, I think we were probably going to have that as the default uh, for OS 9 screen. So you knew uh, you got to see something in OS 9 that you didn't see in the standard basic. Yeah. From looking at the OS 9 documentation, I do remember Mark Hawkins had mentioned that the kernel track, like the part that puts OS 9 boot on the screen, was going to stay in green. But once OS 9 loaded, it would switch over to the blue. So that was the, the plan at the time. So is that uh, essentially um, like the uh, Coco 3 holding the uh, F1 key during power? It chooses the uh, phase. Well, it's, a, it's a poke in that new control register they added, basically, that, that controls the phase shift. It's a single bit, you said. Yes, I, I believe um, that it, it was the same uh, idea, except on the Coco 3, it was done in hardware inside the gimme. But here it's it's being done. It's being done by changing a pin on the VDG. It was supposed to be easier to read than, than the standard black on green, or actually dark green on light green is what the PDG is technically doing. Yeah, also that uh, how you're getting that banding of green and blue, I would get that also on uh, my uh, capture, my RF capture device too. And, yeah, it's not a cheap RF. It wasn't a cheap uh, device. It was, uh, let's see, it's a Hapog uh, uh, WinTV HVR uh 1950 so what you're saying um sloopy is that what we're what we just saw in, in that video capture of brian's is probably more of a misadjusted um vdg tv combination rather than the new feature i would say that's more likely an issue with the tv itself as opposed to anything uh pertaining to the computer right in any kind of tricky analog Phase shifting isn't going to come through on a cheap LCD TV. You're almost yes. going to need an analog monitor to see what yes. it's really doing. Do you remember how I used to uh, stream my games directly from the machine and it would be black and white? That was the same thing. That would be my my Coco 2 or my Coco 3 um, uh, being captured through the, the Hot Dog Win TV. I want to mention 60 in the chat here mentions too. He said blue is actually kind of interesting is that's a 90 degree shift, not 180 degrees, which is, would be more magenta, which is what the Coco 3 is doing. Like if you hold down F1, yeah. when you yeah. power it up, the, the text goes purple, but that shifts your artifacting colors, you know, red to blue, blue to red. Yeah. I think it's a big uh, uh, issue with the, uh, with the TV trying to sync to the signal. But because, so for us to actually test this and, and try to get the actual phase shift that you know was designed right. into it, we should be trying to do it on an actual analog TV then. Yeah, an actual uh, analog tube uh, CRT. Okay. Yeah. Mark, well, nobody uh, thought there'd be a flat screen LCD TV uh, when we designed this thing. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Especially <laughs> trying to do NTSC because, you know, aptly named. Well, what, ahead, what, other, what other thoughts do you have, Mark? Um... On the, what we're looking at, and you know, any comments about, you know, um, at the time? Well, I, I'm waiting to hear the three voice sound before we get into some of that. Yep, oh, yeah, that's okay. what I was just going to okay. say. There, we we do have some more stuff we want to demo, um, okay. but it's more than what I can do through here. So, um, I don't know if it, Tim or uh, Alan, did you guys have something that you guys had set up to to demo? So they they've uh, so maybe I should let Tim explain here. Uh, Tim has been working on getting this set up in Mame, and Alan also has it in Mame. Oh, nice! 
Yeah, Alan, take it away, Tim, because you're kind of the one who instigated all uh, that. So I, I, I wanted to know if Alan wanted to um, demo anything. I can try. Let's see here. Yeah. You want to split screen them there, uh, Mark? Yeah, as soon as I can find them. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <sighs> Okay, is the screen I was going for the button, through? but now it moved on me. That looks pretty. So this is a custom compiled version of MAME. Uh, there are changes that Tim has been putting together in MAME to get the, uh, the deluxe that was already there much closer now that the actual hardware and the ROMs are available to look at. Um, it is successfully emulating. So I'm gonna hit F1 for basic and I get my little guy there and I have uh, I have a disk image attached and I wrote this a while back to test on the uh, on the deluxe that was in MAME for the past couple of years. It looks just like um, a Coco 2, but it did have the, the sound chip and things mapped in. So I wrote this to test on that. And then now that we're getting the um, getting the actual machine to look through, uh, as MAME gets closer and closer to, to recreating the machine itself, this was for me, it was neat to kind of see whether what I had thought would work actually did. So I'm gonna give it a shot. So did any sound come through? Yes, we yes. heard that. Awesome. Okay, so what this code is, is the same basic thing that would work on say the speech sound pack or um, the Coco PSG, but pointed to the memory address of the AY3 chip on the deluxe motherboard. That code is posted in the Discord in um, a couple of different channels, depending on the cards that, uh, that, that had that chip. But the advanced basic, uh, one of the things I was interested in was whether it had new commands or if it did the same kind of AY3 sound ad adaptation that the NEC PC6000 computers in Japan did. So those NEC computers had a, VDG, a VDG chip, they had a Z80 processor and they had an AY3. And Microsoft Basic was ported to those machines and was called N60 Basic. And what I found very interesting when I started messing with those was that N60 Basic took the sound command and disabled the sound that you're used to, where you type a, a tone and a duration. And instead, sound became, which register of the sound chip did you want to modify, comma, the value to modify it with. So sound programmed the AY3, and then the play statement in N60 Basic would play whatever uh, you had set, what are your tones through whatever you had set up there, uh, but it would also play three of them together in the same play statement. So you could say play on channel one this, channel two that, and channel three this, and it would play all three of them together. And that's in the game that I'm porting from the NEC machine over to the, the Coco. 
So I wanted to know if Advanced Basic did that, and it does not. So N60 Basic looks like maybe they just did what the quickest thing that they could. And then when the Advanced Basic project came around, Microsoft's like, well, let's see what else we can come up with. And so what they came up with, from what I can tell so far, is three new commands. They have a command called Tone, a command called Noise, and a command called ENV. So Tone and Noise, I kind of figured out a little bit. I'm going to demo that here. Um, ENV takes five Parameters. numeric values separated by commas, and I don't know what values go in what order and where they land yet. But for example, let's play with the tone command here. Um, you put the tone, the channel number you want the tone to come out of, and then the frequency divider, which is a number from 0 to 4095. So I'm going to do 2048 right in the middle. And I want this to come out in volume 15, which is the, the highest uh, amount of amplitude that this is going to generate. So you kind of get um, so it's not. Hey, can you shut the tone off? Because we can't really hear you over the tone. <laughs> That's particularly evil. Okay. <laughs> so, 60, it's um, not an ADSR envelope. Uh, the AY3 chip has a programmable envelope system that you set four bits. And yeah, I, there is some sort of order, but the four numbers that it takes are all in the range of 0 to 65, 535. And so I can't tell which one goes where yet without actually looking at how it gets poked into the chip by the ROM. But uh, if I do that same tone again, I'm going to do uh, another one along with it. So... Ah. <laughs> Ooh, neat. Okay. You need to balance your props out there. <laughs> That's fantastic. Oh, he's got noise too. Look out. <laughs> Yeah, gentle noise. Can you make the new trade sound? Anyway, um, so that's basically what we know so far, or at least what I know so far about the um, the new basic commands for dealing with the AY3 chip that's in the advanced. And one thing you notice these basic commands, once you type them in, the sound runs continuously in the background without the CPU having to have anything to do with it. So if you wanted to write a basic game with full-blown sound effects and have the CPU basically dedicated for whatever graphics, et cetera, you're doing, then there you go. Right. But you do have to turn it off or else you'll have Yeah, it plays game. until you shut it off. Well, yeah, yeah you'll need the, uh, <laughs> the crash out shutdown program for sure. Uh, and your CPU is completely not busy playing with the sound once it's kicked it off. 
So is yeah, because right now, if you've written a game in basic with sound or play commands, you'll notice that, you know, everything on the screen stops until it's done playing, not on the deluxe. And, and you still have your DAC sound if you want it. That's yep. what I was going to ask. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you can still do sound samples as well as the tone. Sorry, go ahead, Dallin. The one-bit sound and the six-bit DAC sound are also still there. So, I mean, Dungeons of Daggerath will play on this just fine. You'll hear the heartbeat and everything. But you could actually add AY3 music and have that go as well. So they kept the backwards compatibility with the original one and two? Yeah. Uh, as far as I can tell, yes. It, it is so far, everything is there. Other than if you are using specific addresses of things in ROM, yeah. very few of those addresses mm -hmm. were preserved. So uh, it, the, the final it version actually went and recompiled all that, so it did use all the same stuff, so it ran all the cartridges. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah, the one that uh, the one that we've been looking at, everything lands in different places in memory, except for some jump tables and things. Yeah, and, and also there's there's empty spots throughout the ROM as you go, so it looks like you know this is reserved for future use. This is reserved for future use, which might be. To help you know the compiling that Mark was mentioning and getting it more backwards compatible. Because this this I wouldn't even consider this a beta. This is more like an alpha. <laughs> no, I wouldn't even consider this an alpha. <laughs> so there was a question from the chat about can the sound speech cart be modified for this? It uses the same sound chip as as the programmable sound generator in the sound speech cart. But the sound speech cart is wired up according to the general instruments um, reference design, which puts the sound chip behind a pick controller. And that pick controller is in between you and commanding the sound chip. So you have to go through that. So the difference between that and the way the deluxe works is that the deluxe has memory mapped the AY3 directly into the memory where you can access the registers straight away. You don't have to go through the intermediate pick processor. So to modify the speech sound pack, you would basically have to rebuild it and reattach things to the bus differently. And it would break um, about half of the commands that work in the speech sound pack. Yeah, all the yes. uh, PSG commands. So would you guys say that a year in a year from now the color computer three is going to look or sound or be a little bit different than it is today? No, the the color computer three will will always be that. Um, but hopefully there'll be a Mame driver that people can try out the deluxe color computer. So we're not going to mess with the Coco threes ROMs. Well, you can take these kinds of features how they are implemented in Advanced Basic and re-implement them on the Coco 3 with um, you know, with the addresses of say the Coco PSG sound card. And then you would be able to use this basic and the Coco PSG sound card together on a Coco 3 as a set of patches. So you would basically load and run something first. And then that would make you know advanced features available in super extended basic. And then you pick which sound card you want it to go to. Um, the Coco PSG is pretty easy to map in. Uh, now, now, then there's sample code on the Discord for that. Uh, you could get it to work over the speech sound pack as long as what you're trying to do isn't going to go. It doesn't require you to change the sound very quickly. 
because there's a lot of delay with going through that pick processor. Or mm -hmm. if you have a um, Philharmonic 12 or the um, Symphony 12, those use the same uh, sound chip as the Deluxe as well. So you could, if you- It just has four of them. <laughs> huh? It just yeah, has- it uh, And the- Mark, Mark wants to say something. Uh, oh, Mark, okay. Microsoft would not let us use the Deluxe Basic as the root uh, for the Coco 3. We had to use uh, the original Basic. Uh, uh, I was going to say there was a fork there. So the Advanced Basic stuff is going off one way, well, but the Coco 3 had to go off another way because it couldn't. Well, no, it couldn't I mean, use... we wanted to use that, but Microsoft said no because. They didn't get as much money off of the basic as they were supposed to because uh, we killed the color, the deluxe color computer. Had that of uh, the, the Coco Three would have looked very different uh, if the um, deluxe had made it to marketplace. Gotcha. Wow. So is there a full write up on the story of the deluxe and you know what happened to it and why it didn't why it didn't get to, uh, get to market? Not that I'm aware of. There, than, there's uh, some some of the uh, history of that is in Boise's book, uh, the history of the color computer, uh, from doing okay. interviews back in the day. There's a bit, bit of the history there, but. And you guys spent some time on a on a previous uh, episode too. Did you uh, spend a little time talking about it? Yeah, somewhat. Like shortage of EDGs was part of it, especially with the T1 variant coming out. And oh, right, yeah, that's right. I remember that mentioned then. Motorola was Motorola was wrapping down the uh, VDG production, and so being able to get them was like getting hen's teeth. Are yeah, and that's when today? Tandy decided to do the gimme where they had control over it. Are VDGs made today? No, no, no. They're on obtainium. So that, isn't that like the salt ship? Exactly like the salt ship. Yeah. Mm. Which is why you've got, like I mean, that? I think there's at least two, possibly three um, BDG replacement projects um, happening. I know that uh, Kieran's doing one of them. I can't remember who's doing the other. Yeah, Brennan's doing the Coco VGA, which is another one. You can still get the um, 47 on eBay sometimes, but uh, they're yeah. getting few and they're, they're either used or new old stock type thing. They're yeah. not yeah. manufactured. So is yeah, you same, run the same risk you do with, with any of those used chips, which is to say, um, make sure you got your acetone and isopropyl because... Right. <laughs> yeah, it might not be a VDG. So is the same chip the same? Yes. Yes. In fact, if you'd like me to go over some of the hardware that I've discovered uh, from uh, Brian's machine, I could talk about that now. Sure. And there's also some more extended uh, or more advanced basic stuff to talk about, too, which Tim has been going like through and documenting. Go for it, Tim. I will, I will do my thingy. Okay, so I'm sharing my my emulated um, Deluxe Coco. So the first major feature of the of the du Deluxe Coco is its um, sort of uh, interesting RAM mapping. Um, the um, the 16K from let's see if I get my numbers right. Uh, let's see, the first 16K is from zero to. Um, is it four thousand? Then four thousand to eight thousand. Yeah. yeah, the uh, the sixteen k from four thousand to eight thousand can be changed to see any of the four sixty four k banks. Sixteen k banks. 
16K bikes. That's right. Um, so that allows you to view into high memory uh, and still have your low memory glo globals and still have your uh, 32K of ROM. Um, and that's pretty much how it does the RAM disk. Um, it it looks at it looks at it 16k at a time. Um, again, the 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 PSG is is mapped in there. The control register and the data register, as as you'd expect. Uh, that's that's pretty much the extent of it that I've learned so far. Is the 16k window um, that's been implemented, and it, it allows it to do all the fun stuff. I did want to show some more. Does, it, does anybody have any questions about the hardware? Have you Are figured you... out everything on that special control register now in MAME? Or is there still, like, I think the phase shift you don't have in there yet, obviously, because we haven't seen what it's supposed to look like. But Well, based on Robert's um, uh, notes, uh, yes, everything but the phase shift. Oh, yeah, it also has, and I wanted to ask Mark about this, it has a um, 60 hertz timer. Uh, it has a... There, there's an additional 60 Hertz interrupt. And I didn't understand why it was needed because the Coco already had a 60 Hertz interrupt. I, I was wondering if Mark remembered anything about that. Uh, part of the way uh, I did checking uh, to see if there was a drive uh, uh, a floppy uh, attached is I basically uh, use uh, the interrupt uh, to see if the uh, controller is present. That's how it knows whether uh, you plugged in a controller or not, or whether it uses the RAM drive as default. So that may be part of that. You know, I did see that during the boot up sequence, um, the the new Coco ROM will issue an an interrupt to the floppy disk controller, and if it's there, that will produce an NMI, and if it's not there, it won't. And so, yes, I I did see that in the ROM, and yeah. that's how it detects the uh, floppy disk controller. I was thinking, like, I don't know, like, where if anybody or, or Tim, if you figured out where that second sixty hertz is being sourced from. Oh yeah, um, that uh, yeah, I don't have good enough pictures. Um, there's too many chips in the way to to trace that signal. Because I mean, it could be used that you want one sixty hertz to say to control the background sound for changing notes or shutting tones off on an interrupt, but you still want a separate one for doing your screen or something that might not be totally in sync or something. So maybe that's two interrupt sources, kind of like the gimme timers are. I don't know. I don't I don't remember. Yeah. Sorry. Definitely a long time ago. And uh it's interesting to see it and, and discover it. So no worries whatsoever. Mm -hmm. I wanted to show I wanted to show off some some new basic features that I discovered. Uh the first one uh being time. Oh wait, I I have to click on the window. <laughs> um there's a new command called time, and it's it's very close to timer. Uh, except it's um, it's uh, three bytes rather than two bytes. So it doesn't roll over until um, much, much later. Like 16,777,216? Yeah. <laughs> and there should be a time string also. Yep. I saw the time string. And it returns it as hours, minutes, seconds. Which Ooh. is interesting. 
Maybe that's what the uh, second 60 uh, hertz timer is used for. Is well, in, in Advanced Color Basic, uh, this is all keyed off of the new 60 hertz uh, um, interrupt yeah. rather than the VDG interrupt. So yes, it, yeah. it, it's actually being used. Okay. So does it have a means by which to uh, set the system time? No, no. Will that give time? Uh, so what is this, since you, food or something? You can't do time string equals something? No, you can do timer equals zero. Oops. Right. You should be able to do time string and give it the string and oh and have your own start time. Then it would be a clock. Oh, that worked. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. I need to now, add that to now the read it. Print it and see now, if it print it, print it print it and yeah. see if it took. Oh yeah, print the yeah, see print that bad word. Twelve in some seconds. Yep, you have a clock, yeah, sir. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that worked. Because what I did is I originally went uh, time equals, and I got a syntax error when I when I did that. So yeah, I didn't even I didn't even <laughs> attempt to uh, assign the string. Oh, that's that's interesting. So we kind of so have a real time clock time now. Clock. It's software yeah. based, but it's there. <laughs> it's a relative time and clock. It counts, from, it counts from when you turn it on. Well, I yes. really didn't like t the timer function. I thought that really needed real time so you could time routines and such. Minutes so and can, seconds, yes. You can put a a, a 24-hour time in this, and it, it, would it roll over at the right time of day? Probably. But you can try it, Tim. Just set the time to 23, 59, 58. Oh, yeah, and see what happens. yeah. Not like it's going to check with an NTP server. No, I just believe you. 23. Are you going to wait the whole minute? <laughs> uh, man, now we got to talk a minute. Uh, <laughs> can, uh, you can just go up and edit that and just change it, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. On-screen edit of a real-time variable. I like that. But isn't this really nice? It is. Yes, yes it is. <laughs> You can just you can arrow up and hit enter after that. There you go. There you go. Enter. Boom. Oh, not quite yet. Uh oh, we're, we're close. We're close. Yeah, yep, it's twenty four hour <laughs> timer. Uh, it's the next. That is morning. awesome. That is absolutely awesome. <laughs> but see, now you could use Rick Ulan's uh, Nick card there and and go out over to the internet and pull in time from a real time clock server. Yeah, could yeah, you not? Yeah, throw it into time <laughs> string and you're done. <laughs> Another nice feature of using this is you can link it up with ADOS, which does save the time of creation or date and time, or maybe it's just date of creation, I guess. Um, uh, unfortunately, this routine is wrong. It's, uh, this is the not fixed one because there is no such thing as zero o'clock. <laughs> What should, it, what should it say? Yeah, it should be 12, whatever, right? No, no, 24 hours, there is a zero o'clock because there is yeah. no o'clock. It's just zero hundred. It goes from zero, 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 zero. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, that's yeah, 23, 59, 59. 59. Zero hundred because 59, 59, it goes over to uh, zero hundred. 23, 59, 59, zero, 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 zero. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. If I don't remember whether this did AM and PM also, but. Who wants to use that? Well, I would guess not. Yeah, that would be something to test. But I bet, yeah, I'd go from um, 1259 to 1300. 
I'm glad to see I'm not the only one with problems with Mame's keyboard mapping. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <Just> so. <laughs> don't do it. I don't do it often enough. I, I got Shift 2 down, but that's it. So uh, Advanced Color Basic added While and Wind. Huh. Really? I really like. Yes. Um, advanced so you color could make basic. it print in one spot. Oh, you mean like with like uh, print that? Yeah, you can. Right. As if I know anything. <laughs> oh, just kind of bump some stuff in, and yeah. <laughs> that's Zip. that's actually weird. The first time you you do CLS on on the computer, it will it will um. Remember. Go black, but uh, the second and the subsequent times go through. This is a very early version. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So, so extra sixty you know, hertz interrupt. Do you know if this machine will take a poke? You know, well, a high speed let's, poke. Let's. let's yes, it actually has a special control for that too. Oh yeah, uh, but Nick, uh, what was your question? Oh, oh, I was just saying. Um, I wonder if the uh, extra. 60 hertz interrupt is coming off the sound chip itself. Does well, the, the sound chip, chip, the AY chip does need um, a clock. Um, so yes. I'm wondering if it's got a built-in timer already or some sort of external 60 hertz. It's a metronome. Well, it, the, I, the AY I chip needs so. a clock sent to it. <laughs> um, so it does not have an internal um, um, clock. But you could be right. the The clock that's being sent to the uh, the AY could also be um, what's uh, driving this new interrupt. All right. So another thing I wanted uh, just to display. You can't really do anything with it um, because it's not um, uh, hooked up to anything. But uh, not number minus three will go to the new UART. Um, cool. Um, that's in there. There is an interesting command called input string, which takes a um, device number and a string count. And okay. what it. Do, do, do. Is all this stuff going to mess up the Subitha software guy? <laughs> yeah, he's got a whole couple more years of stuff to do now. <laughs> oh, uh, it appears I have that syntax wrong. And uh, finally, the last thing I wanted to show off right now was, um, of course, we know it has AND and OR, um, lo uh, logical and Boolean functions. They also added exclusive OR, which is just a nice little feature to complete out the, the Boolean functions. Right. So that's that's all I had to show. Yep, and now I will mention that uh, we're still continuing disassembling the ROMs. Unfortunately, uh, several of us have gotten busy, so it's kind of slowed down recently. But hopefully, we'll get fully back into it here. There, um, there is, functions. sorry, there are more functions in there too. Yes, yeah, yes, we're, we're only showing the ones we fully documented at this point. We do know there's more in there as well. Did they mess um, with I, random at all? No, I haven't looked into that to be sure. I took a quick look and it doesn't look like it has. Like for instance, there's a couple extra, um, you know, when you do a for next loop, there's a couple extra bytes in there of code 
in the in the next processing like like why would why would you need to change next processing but uh, there's something new added to that that i haven't discovered yet hmm. thanks alan <laughs> yeah and there's definitely a few uh, other basic commands i've seen where there's a little check for some sort of flag byte that's not in the regular basic that it does and it'll skip through and do something slightly different so that that's also in there as well i will mention too the rom tables at the beginning like discon and uh joy in and and old cat and stuff for reading the keyboard and stuff like that uh there's a whole new table starting at eight thousand, which has a whole bunch of entries which i've only figured out a couple of them uh the two that i figured out are for the rs232 the 6551 chip basically there's a certain call you can do to initialize it basically to reset the chip and then set up the buffer it has 128 byte receive buffer for the rs232 and there's one call you can make to read a byte off of the rs232 and it does one of two things if there's already a buffer with some characters in it that the person hasn't processed in their basic program uh, it'll grab the next byte out of the buffer, send it to you, and then move the buffer, you know, basically to eliminate that character as being part of it. But if you don't have anything yet on the buffer, it'll patiently wait for the R32 to receive a character first, and then you get that immediately. So you have both a buffered I.O. on the R32 pack, and you can also read single byte characters as they come in. Um, so that, that's that been added in there, too. And then there's a separate call for doing a write to the R32, uh, another polecat um, style, like extended indirect call. And of There's course, the RS-232 indirect... is connected uh, to the interrupt. So every time a new byte comes in, um, the the color basic uh, or advanced color basic will vector to a read routine. Yeah. Yeah. So it'll be buffer all this in the background while your basic program is doing other things, too, which would be really cool for writing, you know, RS-232 based games or something like that. Um there's a couple other branch tables I've seen, like one of the vectors, I think the 8000 one in particular, jumps to a branch table that's three long branch entries. So I haven't quite figured out what what those are doing specifically or what the entry parameter is for it to do it if it just does an offset based on that. But there's a few branch tables uh, near the beginning as well. But there's there's quite a few of these things and I haven't had a chance to figure everything out yet. Just mostly the RS232 stuff so far. Yeah, one of the one of the goals I know it's 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 gonna be, you know, depending on these guys here to work on this stuff. One of the goals is that we're gonna try to have or they're gonna try to have it all disassembled by by Coco Fest. <laughs> we'll try. We'll yeah. try. Once yeah, once yeah. my work dies down, which it will before Cocoa Fest, then I'm hoping to just go hellbent for leather on it. So <laughs> and uh so yeah, we're hoping to be able to uh to demo more down the road here. Oh one I should mention actually that Tim Tim actually discovered uh and we kind of figured out is the uh, new joystick button handler. First of all, the deluxe supports two button joysticks. Just in case you didn't know, that was carried over to the Coco 3. But generally, what you currently have in the button command on the Coco 3, or if you use the peaks in the Coco 1 and 2, is you basically you, all you can tell is the button down or up. That's it. Um, the new, uh, what is the command, Tim? It's ST... S-trig. S-trig, which is like shot trigger, I guess we're kind of guessing. I'm, I don't know if Mark remembers. But basically what it does is it changes the routine so you can actually check to see if a button's held down for rapid fire, for example. Or do you want it to be where you have mm. to keep pressing the button to fire? And that's now handled in basic. You don't have to do any weird programming yourself to get around that. You can just tell the game, I want the person to have to press and release the button every time to fire, or I want them to just hold it down for rapid fire. And now basic will handle both methods. Yeah, if, really you, cool. if you think about the way basic works, um, if, if you want to support uh, firing with the, bu the button command, you have to check the button often very very often and that's at the expense of game logic and game drawing um what they've added to color basic is a way for 
the basic to cache the um the button state on on a 60 hertz interrupt and so it, you will not miss any button presses even on a, a joystick um button it's it's kind of an it's implement it's implemented very very nicely yeah. And for those of you familiar with OSN level two and the SS mouse command, that's even extended further, but it has a lot of those same things like how, you know, has the button been held down or has the button been released and now we're counting it as a separate click type thing. Um, and of course, like I mentioned before, it supports both buttons on both joysticks. You have four different buttons to read. I just really wish we could understand what S trig stands for. <laughs> Shot trigger, I guess, <laughs> or I don't know. I Obviously this is a very alpha um, uh, alpha version of the software. So all these things could have been renamed by the time it was finalized. Now, Mark, I, I did want you to talk a bit because you, you mentioned to me privately, like, uh, first of all, the deluxe that, that we have seen, the ones that Boise has and the one that Brian has, are basically designed around the original Coco One full-size case. Now, you've told me that the actual final version that was, you know, white when it got canceled, it was actually shrunk down to fit into a Coco Two case. Um, and also the fact that the... Uh, the ROMs were much more finished, like you'd gotten further on it as far as you know what you've seen on the, the alpha, beta, whatever you want to call this version here. Point well, seven. I, I actually had a final, final version of the product, a what we call a pre-pro, uh, which is a hand-built final version for FCC testing and several other things. But uh, it was in a Coco 2 case, uh, had a very strange badge on it uh, that said Deluxe Color Computer. It did not have the uh, three color slashes on it. Um, it was a pretty nice little machine. <laughs> oh, that's, uh, you're, I, you're, I making, more, you're making I me sad, Mark. <laughs> uh, not coding to market. Now, you guys also renamed the basic. It wasn't called Advanced Color Basic yeah, in the no, final version. It was called Deluxe Color Basic. Uh, and you, and I but, think uh, there was a uh, some notes in, in the uh, Color Computer 2 basic manual that uh, uh, pointed you to the Deluxe edition. Yes. But, there were several, yes. <laughs> So, so I mean, it, it, the the machine, the final machine was completely compatible with a color computer too. If you didn't know it didn't have additional features other than the look of the keyboard, you'd think it was a color computer too. Wow. So would the final um, release would have been uh, deluxe color computer with a, a, a number at the end being one point zero. Because it was the first. No, just deluxe color computer. I oh, think he's talking no, about no on power on during the on the, uh, the masthead. Oh yeah, just so it have said version one point oh. One point oh. Yeah, deluxe color basic. Yeah. Now I'm trying to remember the timeline. Like when? What? When was the deluxe supposed to have been released? If it had come to market. I think we lost Mark. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, his uh, video froze up for a bit, and I think he just dropped. Oh, that's I had more questions for him. 
I guess we're moving on. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, we're still working on it. There's a lot of disassembly to continue on. And as we've mentioned, we definitely don't have the final version. There's definitely some, uh, you know, blank spots in the middle between routines. So they'd spread some stuff out to make room for stuff. A lot of the routines have been moved around. So if you tried to make direct ROM calls without using the extended indirect official calls, almost 100% of the time they would fail. Um because you know a lot of stuff moved around, even in color basic and extended basic stuff moved around. So, so Curtis, would they, um, would you guys have at in, toward the end or toward the show when you're done, um, would there be a memory map, you know, um, showing the maybe the difference between? Well, we were, we already basically two? have the memory map. Um, there's basically a, a block of 16 addresses from FF30 to FF3F that is all the new hardware, the new control register, the sound chip, the R32 chip is all in this one little block and that's on the notes that uh, uh bob kilgus uh had mm -hmm. with the deluxe now as far as the mm -hmm. um the color basic or the the advanced color basic memory map we, we haven't figured it all out uh, we know that it pushed the graphic screen um up another 256 bytes for 256 more low memory um, globals um, but what they contain exactly is still up in the air yeah, I think some of it, from what I looked through, was for the RAM drive stuff to basically add that fourth drive in its tables. Yeah. But yeah, there looks and, like there's there's some there's at least a, a block of addresses I found in the nine zero range that is for the RC32 pack specifically and its received buffer controls. Yeah, yeah. and the screen, the full screen editor requires um, every time that it, it it prints a line number to the screen, it, it has to record what line number it is, and it uses a separate buffer table to do that. Would DriveWire have a problem with all the drives listed? You know? This would not be compatible with DriveWire. No, I would think it wouldn't. Then you have the 16K um, banked areas, right? For the RAM drive or other purposes? Yeah, the uh, the upper memory being banked into the lower memory. Um, during you know during normal basic processing, that's that's not happening, but. It, it can happen when you do a dir or, or some file IO. Interesting. Well, there was a lot of thought put into this thing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not, I mean, Microsoft worked on the advanced later deluxe color basic and added a ton of stuff. And then OS nine people, I've, I've seen some of the emails and, or not emails, but you know, messages going back and forth between Mark Siegel and, and Mark Hawkins and Microware because Mark Hawkins was kind of the guy in charge of the deluxe color computer stuff. And there's a ton of extra stuff added there. Basic 9 had additional support for the AY sound chip, all three voices of it. Um, Wait, now he's one of the three. Uh... Yes. <laughs> so he's he one of the guys that did anything, the Cocoa yeah. 3. He also did the original Cocoa 1 ones. They actually had made, because the R32 pack was getting designed at the same time, so they were making a new version of OS 9 level one that would support the third, you know, the extra RS-232 pack for regular Cocoa ones and twos and had a version also for the internal one for the deluxe Cocoa. So they're kind of doing both of those simultaneously, which is why I was going to ask Mark about the timeline stuff here, trying to figure out exactly when it would have been released. Was it planned for like the uh, late summer, early fall release in time for school in 84? Or was it meant more for a Christmas thing? Like, I don't know how far along they'd gotten by the end there. Most There's of the correspondence I've seen ends around May of 84, so... Does Mark maybe need an email so he can get back on? No, he's coming maybe... in. Oh, he's okay. coming back. I have a hard out right now, guys. I will see you later. Bye, Tim. Thanks, Bye. Thanks, for, you, Tim. Thanks for being Mark, here. Mark, you're back? Yes, I'm back. You did a good job. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> Great. 
I, but basically, the question I was asking you right when you got disconnected, uh, do you, what was the official timeline as to when the Deluxe was supposed to be released to the public if it had gone through to, you know, to market? Uh, it was supposed to be released for that Christmas, and I forget what year that was. 84. Okay. I wasn't sure if you guys were shooting for the educational market to try to get it out you know, by August, September, because no, most correspondents I've seen ended about May, June. It was uh, basically... Uh, in the same production run as the the Christmas run of the Color Computer Two, uh, everything was going to have the, uh, the the new VDG in it, but Motorola couldn't supply enough of them, so we had to make a decision. Well, here's a question for you too: um, Was the uh, new computer going to be made here in the United States or overseas? It was going to be made in the same factory as the Coco 2s were being made, and I don't remember which factory that was. Okay, but given no parts, made the 2, not the Deluxe. The, the Deluxe and the 2 were going to be made in the same factory. At the same time, yeah. They're just two different lines. I mean, they're, they're, they're fairly close. Yeah, especially the the last version you were mentioned, the one you actually had on your desk is one of the final test, uh, you know, prototypes or whatever you want to call it, uh, that actually was shrunk down to fit into the Coco Two case. I mean, even the the casing would have been roughly yeah. the same. The back would have had been a bit different for the cutouts for the ports, but yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. The the only difference would have been uh, the board and the cutouts and the and the keyboard. So uh, the same lines could have built both of them. So where does this Coco 4 thing come in with a big box on top of a Coco 2? It's not a real thing. No? That's <laughs> <laughs> the internet. <laughs> is it? Well, there is a case made, but it was kind of just a, I guess, a mock-up by there somebody. Was, there was never going to be a Coco 4 because Motorola would not have, uh, we, we asked them for a faster or 6809. They wouldn't do it. And by that point in time, uh, Intel was giving us better uh, costing on processors and such. So, so it came, yeah, it's too, it, go ahead. I was going to say, so it kind of came down to you aren't going to knock the legs out from under the Cocoa 2 that's selling to release the Cocoa Deluxe. And as a result, the Cocoa Deluxe never happened. Well, not, no, here was the what was the big meeting said, well, Motorola can only give us X amount of uh, these new VDGs. So we can sure. put them all in Cocoa 2s and we know we can sell every one of those. Exactly. A percentage of them in, in deluxes and we don't know whether that's going to sell. I told them, yeah, well, I'm sure it's going to sell, but they weren't going to take a chance. Yeah, it would have been slightly more expensive. I think you mentioned it was going to be around fifty dollars more yeah, than a Coco Two. More. Yeah. It's too bad. Which to me, it was a bargain. <laughs> yeah, right, honestly, right. adding a sound chip, the better keyboard, the better basic ROMs, the uh, sound chip R thirty two. Yeah, that would have been. I I would have paid fifty bucks for it without even thinking about it. <laughs> well, and and one of the other things that you guys talked about in the previous interview is that. To maintain backwards compatibility, some of these features in the Deluxe would have carried over into the Color Computer the Cola 3. Yeah. yeah, well, the Color Computer 3. Well, of course, because they would have owned it at that point. So. Right. 
Right, but you would have owned the code then after releasing the deluxe, right? And so you could have used that code in the future. Oh. No, we still would have had Microsoft issues. Microsoft. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> the, the negotiations with Microsoft uh, on this and the Coco 3 were, were very tough to do. Uh, Gates wanted to move on, but, you know, what can I tell you? What, did he consider uh, uh, Coco a, um, like, little piece, you know, Get, get away from me, boy. <laughs> no, it, it was really stranger than that. By the time the Coco 3 showed up, Gates was trying to buy microware because uh, he got oh. to see what uh, a Coco 3 with OS 9 uh, level 2 looked like. And when he saw that and when he saw his own windows, uh, he was just <laughs> kind of flabbergasted. Well, that's kind so of cool to hear. I've never heard wow. that. That's cool. Yeah, I, I have heard that story before from a couple of people, including Mark. So, uh, so he turned around and uh, tried to buy microware uh, the next day. Yeah, and Ken Clapperland refused. I should mention, I have no idea when or even officially if this is going to happen, but apparently uh, Ken Kaplan's opening up to the idea of doing an interview again. So nice. might have to have Mark back on to help him kind of remember some of those things too from all the negotiations between OSI level one, level two, et cetera. But Microsoft, uh, Gates was a a-hole when it came to a lot of this stuff, so... Yeah, I think he, he probably wanted like a certain market size before he'd even consider it that late on in, in Microsoft's, you know, because by that time they were selling so much software. Right. Well, when we when we were negotiating the deluxe, he was still a small company and you could get him to do a whole lot more than uh, he was willing to do by uh, Coco 3 time frame. Yeah. Plus, he was pretty well out of 8-bit by that time i think as well mm, i don't you know i don't know what he was doing with uh some of the other companies but uh uh we had bigger sales than most of whatever else he was selling so he, he did pay attention to us for a while until ibm showed up was there any um influence uh with the um you know tandy 1000 line and you guys, I mean, was there tensions or anything? Or no, it was, it was real simple. Uh, Gates said, "Look, you'll either do do this my way, or you won't get any more licenses for MS DOS." So we had to kind of do what he wanted. Yeah, I'm sure people can tell you about some of the uh, you know dis disagreements between Microsoft and say Apple <laughs> for doing stuff too. That's uh, rather infamous. That Gates was a hard-edged uh, negotiator for contracts that definitely almost always came out in his favor. But but I did a lot of the negotiations directly on this stuff with Gates. So uh, all, all these features and all uh, were my spec my specification for what I wanted to add, and we went back and forth on stuff, and he threw out a couple of things and added a couple of things so uh 
I really like this computer. I was uh, really put out when we decided not to do it. Now, who who made the ultimate decision on that? Obviously, you, Mark, wanted to wanted to come out like high up high up the chain. Did it go where they said no? We're not gonna we're not gonna do it. Um, went up to the very top. Roach. Oh, okay. I don't know if it'd be a little bit lower, like Shirley or somebody, but. No, you're not. You're not calling him a Roach. That was his name, right? Yeah, that John was Roach. His name. <laughs> okay. John Roach and Bernie Appelmakers. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's it's too bad, but it's it's really cool to at least get, you know, even though it's not the final hardware, the final software, but being able to see a good chunk of what was designed and what was going to be added actually has been pretty fascinating. I know I was supposed to be working on my you know EOU release here, and I actually dropped it for a couple of weeks. And was just working on the deluxe ROMs here, and then now I've got busy with work work, so I'm not doing anything Koga related until I get caught up. But I, it's, I, uh, it's pretty exciting. This unit exists because they were all called back and destroyed, including my uh, pre-pro. So, well, that's the next question I was going to ask you. Um, did um, did you get any photographs of any of this stuff that you have yourself or something, or do you know somebody that has photographs yeah, of the stuff? Uh, those were days where uh, we had film cameras, so right, <laughs> not wasting any film on this thing. <laughs> well, that's why I said photographs because <laughs> I'm I'm thinking the same thing. Back in the day, I had my uh, Yashica that I used. You know, <laughs> yeah. No, nope. yeah. didn't have any pictures of, of anything or. Uh, even all the documentation on it had to be destroyed as part of the contracts. Right. Really? Yeah. And that's part of like trade secrets and stuff like that, yeah. I'd imagine, being the reasoning? Do you think these guys are doing a good job of going backwards from, from the uh, chips? Yeah, I mean, you know, um, as I say, uh, it, it's, it's bringing back memories, but uh, there, there's a lot of stuff that I remember it doing that we, they haven't showed up on yet, but um, we got a lot of ROM to still disassemble. <laughs> Plus, we're not sure how far advanced our ROM is compared to the final, too. So, you no, know, I mean, you know, the, uh, anything with that many digits back was very, very early. Um, oh, I got something else to ask you. Was there any other peripherals that you had considered at the time that never made it? Uh, I know one. Uh, other than other than the uh, uh, disc uh, disc drive without the ROMs in it, um, I can't think of anything. I, I mean, I, uh, I think I was hoping we'd bring the uh, hard drive controller to uh, fruition at the same time, but well, you guys did release a hard drive adapter that was based on those big, you know, yeah. TRC drives, but. It was it was a bit slow and it also was pretty expensive. So most of us went and got Burke and Burks and stuff instead. But the one thing I do remember that Microware, when they pulled out the original Cocoa 3 prototype, one other thing they found there was a couple of those uh network cards that were designed for the Cocoa with custom ROMs in them. Yeah. And they were trying to figure those out. And I, I'm pretty sure you guys were directly involved with that too. Yeah, that that was that ArcNet project. Yeah. It I remember it was very strange to use TV twin leads to the coax, which was, I thought, a nice, tandy touch. Yeah, I didn't really like ARCnet that much. Right. 
Were you yeah, in Tandy Towers at that time? Was what? Were you at in the Tandy Towers at that time? Yeah, from the time I worked, uh, went to work for them, I was uh, uh, in the tower. I started in Tower 2 in R&D and moved over to uh, Radio Shack, which was Tower 1. Now, did you ride in the uh, car that, you know, took you to the... <laughs> I, had a bar I had a parking spot in the building. Oh, you were one of the echelon, huh? <laughs> he did it properly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, that get, getting a parking spot in the building was a big deal. Yeah, I would assume so. Yeah, one or of you the don't, things... you wouldn't you wouldn't want to be uh, caught carrying any stuff, yeah. you know, out in the open, you know, to your home or somewhere, or to another building, or yeah, there'd be a lot of NDAs. Uh, sorry, Brian, you were saying something? Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, I mean, it is it is fortunate, you know, that. Uh, that uh, Robert had this machine and, and like you were saying, Mark, these were supposed to be returned and it'd be kind of interesting to see what the story was as to why this didn't get returned. Or I know there's a lot of correspondence that I have. Um, he had a lot of folders and there's an awful lot of correspondence between Robert and uh, Van Chandler. Yeah. Uh, Robert and Van Chandler had a special relationship. So I, was really almost never involved with anything uh, that was uh, to deal with Robert. Uh, I wasn't even aware he got a cocoa, uh, del a deluxe cocoa. Um, they, they, they were on allocation. I made the decision, but at that point, Van Chandler was uh, VP of merchandising, so he could do whatever he wanted. Uh, so I guess he could decide and then so if you weren't aware, almost nobody was aware that uh, this cocoa had been dispersed. So nobody would have asked him for the machine back. Yeah, because the only other deluxes yeah, we know of that are out in the wild right now, the one that Boise currently owns, were actually from ex-Tandy employees, which kind of explains, like, you know, one of them might have just taken one home, especially if they helped develop it hardware-wise or whatever. But it looks like Robert's a bit of an outlier as to, you know, they kind of bypassed you as to uh, him receiving one. So he probably didn't even know he's supposed to send it back. I'm glad he didn't right. honestly, but <laughs> was there a landfill next to the tower? <laughs> <laughs> no, there, there, there was a uh, big furnace. That this right. in. Uh, not unlike our old intro. <laughs> Uh, I'm trying to remember, Mark, if you remember the, the figure, there was so many deluxe motherboards, I think, were actually manufactured before the cancellation happened. I don't think the cases and stuff were made, but do you remember what that figure was? Like, it was a fair number, wasn't it? No, no I don't. Um, uh, yeah, we did, we, we did have motherboards that they didn't put chips on, obviously, and we had lots of keyboards, which got sold off. Uh, even though we knew we were going to use it on something, we also knew that they had a very short shelf life before they would uh, rust out internally and we couldn't use them, so they decided to go ahead and sell them off. Yeah, and a few, few, few of us actually bought you know, those keyboards because Tandy right. at the time was selling you know, Atari keyboards and TI-90 keyboards as well as uh, the Deluxe keyboard. And they still work. Right? Yep. Yeah, one of the other things I'm doing, too, is that uh, this uh, uh, this system does have some different chips, you know, unlike that's in the regular Cocoa. Like, there's a buffer chip. There's a programmable logic chip. And I've been slowly uh, trying to acquire 
some of those uh, some of those chips, you know, just in case maybe might you know maybe swap something out or whatever. So I've been slowly gathering mm-hmm. those, and and I even picked up some of the uh, um, the ROMs that were on the that's on this daughter ROM board that's in there. These are these are the the smaller smaller 8K ROMs. So I've been picking up some of those there that goes on the on the daughter board that's in this system. So it'll be pulling out of there, but uh, you guys would have seen this. <clears throat> so it has this little uh, header right here that plugs into the system board, but then this was, uh, this sets in there like this on the, it, it plugs in and then this just sets there and it has the, uh, those are the four ROMs that we pulled. Yeah. yeah. So each of those chips are 8K ROMs. The final version would have been a 32K single ROM. Yeah, one ROM plugged in instead. Right, so and in development work, device, right? Well, I mean, in development work, it's a lot easier to do one small ROM than one big ROM. So if you've just changed a little bit, you don't want to rewrite the whole 32K and redo it. Yeah, cheaper too. Well, <laughs> yeah. back then, you do uh, your little piece, plug it in. ROM was expensive, so right. Yeah, especially at 32K. And it took a ROM. long time to re- to change, and you didn't want to keep reburning yeah. and reburning and reburning this expensive. Eprom. So now another question for you, Mark. Um, like we know that the, the Cocoa 2 manuals did have a few references to the Lux computer left in from when it was still planned and being sold. Um, how far did Radio Shack and Tandy get on producing documentation like manuals for the deluxe? So was that actually written up already or was that not quite there yet? Say, everything was completely done, ready to go to production. Ah, that wow. sucks. You're just waiting <laughs> for the green light. <laughs> yeah, I mean uh if they hadn't made that decision a week later they would have been in production making them including all the boxes and everything with all the uh you know as i say it was a complete package ready to go do you think there is a landfill out but there is a landfill outside of fort worth with a bunch of tandy manuals in it And I was going to ask too, like I know in discussion of the Coco 3 history, when the Coco 3 got canceled, uh, Kevin Darling had mentioned that the, even the Tandy old guard that was involved with Coco, including yourself, got blindsided by that decision. It was something you didn't have much warning of. Did that same thing happen with the Deluxe? Like, did you not find out until the very last minute yourself that it was getting canceled? Or did you have that full week ahead no, before? I, I, uh, uh, they called uh, us up into a, a, a meeting. Uh, uh, in the board of directors room uh, to let us know what the decision was. I, I didn't even know that was an issue. Do you think that they uh, they knew exactly how many color computers were sold over all those years? Because I'm, mean, you know, in a business, you you have to know how things are selling in order well, to I, continue, I, right? I, I I guarantee you, Bernie Appel could tell you uh, <laughs> the number of every uh, product Radio Shack ever sold, how many of them was. That was how good Bernie Appel was. And we had so, this many screws left over at the end. <laughs> I mean, that, that was what this guy was about. Dude, you got a few he, screws loose, Bernie Lapel. Exactly three. Now he's yes. passed on, has he? Huh? Yeah, Has he I, passed I, on? Everybody's gone. That sucks. Um, 
Did yeah, he have any kind of? They were of, a lot uh, older than me, and I'm already in my seventies. So, did he? He didn't have a, a anything like um, Steve Bjork. They got sold off with folders. <laughs> or... <laughs> no, no. Might have been a long time ago if it was. Well, how long has he been gone? Who? This Bernie? guy we were talking about. Yeah. Oh, he's been gone five or six years at least. Mm. Now, I, I do have one other question that's kind of related to what Ron's talking about. I do know when Tandy itself shut down that they had a big auction of a lot of the stuff that was still in the Tandy Towers. And there was talk that there might be like, you know, financial records and all kinds of stuff like that. Do you have any clue what happened to all that stuff? Nope, I don't have any clue of all the legal documents and all that stuff. I, um, I know it was uh, normal for any contract that was basically voided that everything had to be burned oh, okay right uh the, the, with burning all the records and all the pieces and everything uh we, nobody could come back and say well uh i own this or i own that it none, doesn't exist anymore right you can't subpoena what you don't own anymore right <laughs> So that would include any of the ROMs and stuff that we were all worried about in the past? Yeah, everything's gone. Wasn't that a big issue, you know, a few years ago about, you know, emulators and ROMs and worried Still about... Still is a big issue. Especially if you're why doing something, say, by Nintendo. Right. This, oh. this is why you get you rid can, of things. So you, can't... you can still get your ass suit off. Yeah. <laughs> but stuff does wind up out like i mean you know it's uh amazing to me that any deluxe anything exists because it was not supposed to <laughs> yeah it's actually funny because of the 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 this week in in retro podcast actually had a bit of a discussion topic on their show yesterday about the fact that you know pirates these days are almost the good guys because a lot of software, and I guess it applies to hardware as well, if, if the rules have been strictly followed, would be gone because there's copy protection, they're copyrighted, nobody would make copies. And then once the company goes out of business or the person that you know instigated the company and, and the software died, it's just gone. And they're, they're kind of like going back and you know it's a bit of a retro fitting the, the history there. But now we've actually been able to preserve a lot of this stuff because of pirates. Or people that didn't return, you know, uh, uh, beta versions of boards or upgrades, stuff that the history is still being somewhat preserved. There is still some stuff that's lost forever, from the sounds of it, uh, including well, stuff on the know, cocoa. But there, there was a discussion at some point that the the deluxe uh, would uh, have a cob on it, so uh, that would have made it more difficult for people to uh, get. ROM code off of it. What On the final it? version, you mean, right? Because of the development version, you wouldn't want to be doing all that kind of stuff at the same yeah. time. But yeah. I'm just saying uh, the chip on board, uh, like we did on all the things, was going to be something that was discussed for future versions of the Deluxe. So there would have been no ROM that you could even see. Okay. It would be encrypted or something, or what oh, are you saying? On board, the 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 ROM would be uh, directly put on the board with a bunch of pookie on top of it. Right. A little black blob. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like like, an, like some of your ROM player. cards did. Right. Yeah, there, there's a keyboard, there's a blob, and there's a display, and you can't 
tell anything about anything because the blob is all. Yeah, some of the Coco Three cartridges actually have that. There's no chip. There's no socket. It's just a little black blob. Everything moved. Uh, everything was moving to carbs. So okay, go ahead. A full version of Maine that uh, emulates the the deluxe. Yeah, that's what Tim's working on. Like we said, we, there's a few things we still have to finish, like uh, how that phase shift thing works. We have to get the actual hardware running long enough so we can see exactly what that looks like to know how to properly emulate it. I think that's the uh, interrupt timer. I think he's got it mostly working, That we're still trying to figure out, you know, is are the old ones still being used off the V-Sync, off the, the VDG going through the PIAs as well? So there's still a few things to figure out. But it's pretty close, I think, to to running fully functionally. And we do plan on making that publicly available so people can fiddle around with it, plus we're documenting the basic commands, the new extended indirect ROM calls and that kind of stuff too as we go through the ROM. So now, hopefully we'll um, be sharing it. If somebody wants to recreate a deluxe nowadays, like we're doing with Coco 1, 2, and 3 boards and Dragon 32s and 64s, that's definitely going to be doable, I think. Yeah, I was, Did you I have was about to ask if anybody taken on that project yet. Not that I'm willing to right now, but... <laughs> oh, come on, you can do it. Well, no, I've... no. The next thing needs to be the Deluxe Color Computer 3. There we go. Uh, yeah. Otherwise we known as a 3 plus yet. 3B, maybe even a 4, depending on how far it goes. So. Mark, um, so, did you guys have any uh, conversations with the uh, um, Dragon at all? Or did you ever um, no, look to see how they're... Because they had... out of business by the time okay. uh, there was any uh, anything meaningful. Well, I thought maybe you'd you'd be interested in how they made the um, uh, you know, the serial ports on the on the motherboard or whatever, you know how that worked with their because they have the same Motorola chipsets, right? In there, I, I know, but the Deluxe Color Computer has all that. Right, but I was wondering if if you needed to look at what they already did. No, no. they wouldn't have. No, they wouldn't. Uh, if if anything, they'd have been more interested in what we did to make theirs look more like ours. So. Oh, okay. there you go. Well, see, I don't know the timeline thing, you know. Um, so, did you ever? You were you ever aware of it at the time? I mean, did you? Yeah, did I was aware of. Uh, th there were a lot of uh, uh, clone cocos uh, popping up all over the place at the time. Yeah, like some of the ones we've seen from Brazil, the sample that came out of, I think, Korea or something. Or... There, there was a Mexican one. Uh, 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 I even think there was an African one at some point. And, <laughs> and of course, the, the, there was the Russian one with the uh, Russian video, the CCAM. Yeah, so did, the French one had... Uh... You know how the, the dragon had the 200 later was which uh what it didn't really make it or what to, to 200 or was it the, the dragon 200 was just basically a rebranding when the spanish company took it over from oh, what okay, i understand I was, kieran can correct me if i'm wrong on that but i was thinking that it had actually advanced a little bit before it no ended. the dragon professional the dragon beta did they added mmus they added double speed cpus they added in an uh up to 768k of ram built-in disk drives and a bunch of other things but those never made it to market okay so i i wondered if the um you know the deluxe coco was you know what the difference between the two was was it still ahead of what 
what even that was. I, I think the deluxe cocoa would have been ahead of anything that uh, was being done over in the UK at that point. Um, and, and I don't know what their timeline for their uh, uh, 1609 with their MMU was. Uh, uh, I would think it would have been after the Coco 3, but I don't know. Because uh, um, cer certainly Microware uh, didn't know anything about machines like that. So. The MMU is what handles. Yeah, just going through the right? comments of the chat, Sixty and Tom Eric Anderson, who actually are from there and actually know what happened with the Dragon. So, um, basically, yeah, the Dragon Two Hundred is a Dragon Sixty Four. The rebranding, basically, when it was sold, uh, you know, by the Spanish company. Sixty said the Professional was a Dragon Sixty Four with built-in drives and AY chip and maybe some other stuff. The Beta was a seven hundred sixty-eight K plus twin CPUs. I forgot about that. The graphics were controlled by Second Six Eight Hundred Nine. And was a completely different beast that was basically going to run OS nine level two only. The, oh, in what time frame? Um, I'm sixty. If you know, please let us know. <laughs> I think I'm guessing. I'm trying to remember the boot screen because they had the same thing as the deluxe did, where they had the uh, you can hit a key to boot to basic, hit a key to boot, you know, the DOS. And I think the dates on that screen they did use the P mode four graphic screen for that instead of the text screen, but I think it was eighty five. Can't remember. It was going to be like a professional machine, though. It was not going to be like a buy for home. It was going to be thousands of dollars, I'm sure. Well, I mean, eighty-five is when we just uh, started the Oco Three. So, yeah, and you guys, I mean, if 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 the Deluxe had happened, I'm guessing the Coco Three would have probably been a year later than it was because you would have been busy selling the Deluxe with, you know, the built-in well, sound chip. And I'm not sure what would have happened because Motorola was viewing. Uh, putting RMS into a, a deluxe. Um, but that wasn't going to work out, so I'm not sure what would have happened. Oh, okay. Well, uh, we'll keep you guys posted. Uh, we're still, like I said, going through this something wrongs, documenting the basic commands and exactly how they work. There's a, definitely a few commands we have not figured out exactly what they do yet or how they work. Um, I've only got maybe three of 16 different ROM calls documented enough to actually release anything so we'll, we'll keep working on that but eventually you guys will be able to get this all in MAME and try it out for yourself you can write some programs for the deluxe as if you had one and see what it runs like uh, as tim mentioned there's definitely a way you could patch the coco 3 basic or at least load in a replacement 32k rom now if we do do that you're probably going to be disabling a lot of the coco 3 functions because that basic's already full because of coco 3 basic for all the extended graphics modes and everything else uh, that's in there uh, but we could basically make it almost like a, a hardware emulator of a deluxe if you have a multi-pack and an R32 pack and a speech sound pack that you could fiddle with the advanced color basic and actually make it run on a Coco 3 as a deluxe with all of its features basically intact. So that's something that uh, Tim's kind of been bouncing around, but we're we're quite a ways off from getting that even thought of and, until and we figure out the rooms. Nick will want to uh, move all his software onto something with the sound chip. <laughs> <laughs> right. Get ready, Nick. Mark, yep. did you ever did you ever consider that uh, down the road after Coco Three that there might have been like a sixty eight k, you know, sixty eight thousand ship? No, in a... the, 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 there was not going to be any more Motorola anything because Motorola wasn't willing to uh, keep up with the times. Right. I mean, 
you know, Motorola had an option to uh, put out processors uh, that were equivalent to uh, 486s and Pentiums and all that, but they decided uh, to get out of the business. So, um, uh. and, and quite frankly, uh, with, with what we have today with uh, uh, for I, I uh, Intel products and ARM products, they they would have never been able to keep up. Yeah, they were falling behind. Like even when the sixty thousand, which was ahead of the x eighty six at the time of its initial release, um, by the time the sixty thousand forty and the eighty four eighty six kind of happened, I think that's the last time that Motorola could 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 be considered to be ahead, and they just kept falling further and further behind after that. So. Right. Yeah, I mean, you which know, is why Apple switched from power, you know, six eight thousand chips to yeah. <laughs> PowerPC, and, and even that PowerPCs couldn't keep up. So, yeah, well, they they kept up for a while, and I think what really got Intel going again was AMD's competition because they were beating them with their own game. When the Athlon and stuff came out, that was more advanced than Intel's because Intel had been kind of sleeping at the wheel for a while because they kind of had the market to themselves. And then, well, that's that's also you got the whole Itanium thing that happened with uh, uh, with <laughs> Intel, and that was going to be their solution. They wanted to get, they've been wanting to get rid of x86 for a long time, you know. And so when AMD came out with a desktop chip that was 64 bit and worked AMD well, before. Intel's like, oh crap. Yeah, because now you got all the backwards <laughs> compatibility, which the uh, the Itanium would not have had. They would have been emulated exactly. on the wrong horse. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, even Motorola had the risk. What was it? The eighty-eight thousand risk chip that they were trying to do is kind of a replacement for the sixty-eight thousands as well, and then that kind of died too. Yeah, I think it was eighty-eight thousand. Yeah, Motorola had all their DSPs uh, that couldn't keep up either. So, I mean, uh, they just really screwed up. Yeah. But I don't know what why their management thought the way they did. You know the. The fact that they weren't willing to uh, go build a faster 6809 just made no sense to me. Yeah, especially considering they subcontracted Hitachi, which did make it faster right. and it was officially rated for 3 megahertz. came out in October of 85. But right. as, as we talked to you about that. that before, too, where you said yeah. you know, you couldn't trust Hitachi to manufacture enough. Uh, you know... Uh, they could have gotten uh, probably another generation out of telecomputers if they had got given us a four megahertz sixty-eight oh nine. Right. Yeah. Well, it's just like the sixty-eight oh forty. It was faster clock for clock, but they just couldn't make the clock faster. It made an excellent heater, but <laughs> it just couldn't go fast enough. Let well, me brew so my coffee while I perform this mandelbrot <laughs> calculation. <laughs> I turn the microprocessor. I don't need a heat sink. I'm making coffee. The only way you can make it go faster is to uh, uh, reduce the size of the die. And I guess they didn't want to spend the money. So they well, they could have done what, what Hitachi did, which is make it CMOS and make it microcoded instead of the hardwired, like the original 6809s well, are. And, and the smaller die. Yeah, the die sizes. So they, they didn't have, have an RMD. AMD does and have somebody that, else that, make that's it. That's all they had to do with the 6809. Well, it, except the 6809 was hand-drawn. Uh, they would have actually had to go back and make one uh, by mm -hmm. machine. I guess they didn't want to do that. Yeah, and Hitachi did. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> right? It just doesn't make sense to me either. I should mention, Sixy, I took a look at the history of the uh, the 768K 09 Level 2 Dragon, and he said that was actually started in development in 1984, and Dragon Data went under not long after that. So I'm not well, sure when in 84, early, middle, end, or... They had certainly not contacted Microware. Yeah, I, I don't know how far, like, I, I know some people have gotten some stuff running on it since because they've actually started to recreate those boards as well, but uh, I know they had to do a bit of fiddling to get it to work, kind of like so you know, we're doing with the Deluxe. Would you say that Microware, microware had a big part <clears throat> in making Coco th uh, 3, um, you know, what it was at the time? I mean, because well, I mean, without know, that, it, what would he have? Uh, well, I mean, you know, the the fact that they had level two uh, kind of drove the design of the the Coco three. Uh, mm -hmm. Otherwise, we would have done something else. And plus, you got them to do the updates to the ROM, the basic ROMs too, because Microsoft refused. It, it didn't start out that way, but. <laughs> uh, um, well, I, won't for Motor, I won't get into Microsoft. They're a whole separate problem. Yeah. So that's interesting. So the, the Coco 3 was actually built towards level 2 OS 9. Yes. That's why we went with level 1. For, uh, so we could eventually move uh, a, the next generation to a level 2 machine. Excellent. Did you um, uh, uh, were you in contact with other parts of uh, Radio Shack at the time or Tandy, and um, did they admire some of the stuff you guys were doing, or or you know was there any kind of? Do you guys ever get together and talk? Sorry, I was talking. What? Uh, I, I, what what other parts of Radio Shack? I mean, you know. I work for corporate. Uh, we, we, they didn't first. <laughs> well, what I'm saying is, at the same time, wasn't there a Tandy 1200 being made that was from? Well, Mark AS was involved with all of those, weren't you? Yes, T. There wasn't any machine at Radio Shack that Radio Shack ever sold that I did not have some involvement with. Oh, so you, you would just have to ask yourself if you're doing well. <laughs> oh, you, were I mean, the, I, you were the guy. It, 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 it was a very, very strange company. They allowed me to do whatever I wanted. As long as I kept making them money, I didn't have to answer to anybody for anything. Wow. Uh, what a job. I, 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 I never understood why a company would allow any employee to go negotiate or do whatever he wanted and, and just but, – but I always made them money. I never had any product that lost money. Uh, and, and I think of all the products, there were only two of them that I had to cancel. Uh, one of those was Bjork's. Uh, but, um, and, and normally at any given time, I had 60 projects going on at one time. So I was pretty busy. Yeah, I'd say. Thanks for okay. what you've done. Tandy Electronics, uh, we're building computers, but I was also working with all the outside vendors, uh, like um, uh, Soundblaster guys and and all those got all those products. 
went through me. So creative labs. Yep. Yeah. Anyway, expect a, a more follow-ups from us in the future as we get more of the ROMs going. We're going to get the, the the main stuff out for people so they can start trying it themselves too. I'll let Tim kind of decide because he's the one who's working on the main MAME stuff. So I, I won't speak on his behalf as to when that's happening. Um, but shouldn't be too far away, I don't think. And so, uh, we'll keep documenting once, stuff. Once he's done with that, is, is X-Roar going to have all those features in it? Uh, now that now the Kieran's aware of all this, uh, it might. <laughs> Plus, he's he's got a bit of a head start too because X War is designed to run the Dragon sixty four, and the Dragon sixty four also has a sixty five fifty one chip built into it. So we just got to basically readdress it, and that's ready to go. So it's Mark, basically just adding what is, what is your home experience there? Do you do you use emulators? You don't have any hardware at, at all, Coco wise. No, the hardware I've got packed away. But you do uh, have I, it. Yeah, the, the the thing is, I've I've got a. Uh, a garage full of boxes of computers. Uh, in my entire career, there in a year that went by that I didn't buy at least three or four machines, and I still have all. all right. So I've got uh -oh. forty years of three or four machines. Sixty projects at a time, right? Do you do you want a section <laughs> of our show, huh? Mark Siegel's garage? <laughs> <laughs> So you you didn't keep prototypes and stuff. You actually went and bought the commercial versions. That's the ones you kept. Oh, yeah. No, I, I never bought a prototype. I, I you know, uh, th those were company property. I always went out and bought a brand new one. Um, but it wasn't just candy product. I bought IBMs. I bought everything. Uh, okay. Mark, I got to ask this. I got to ask this. Did you, in fact, acquire or purchase a Tandy 10? No. Okay. <laughs> Even Mark didn't get one of those. <laughs> at, at, at that point, I was working for Programming International in Los Angeles, uh, getting stuff like the TI-99 prototype, which which I hmm. can tell you was the slowest machine that ever existed. Oh, <laughs> Did you have anything to do with the sensation? Yes. I designed, uh, I, I, I did the design on the sensation. You know, the MMS 10 that uh, there was a video I just watched of it because I just recently, that's going to be one of my uh, things I'm going to show that I got today, yesterday, a couple days ago. But the MMS uh, 10 is, you know, an amplifier system with a little bit of a, a bass, you know, yeah. speaker at the bottom. Did you have anything to do with that too or? Uh, that 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 white thing with the, yeah 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 Speaker. that was one of my things I was responsible for. Okay, because uh, uh, they, they said it. They said the it was designed for... as a product. Uh, uh, I did the original spec on the MPC. So okay, because yeah, Brian's uh, just holding one there. Yeah, I got one. Yeah. sitting right here. But I was wondering if it was, it was made for for, for the sensation. Yeah, there was all sorts of crap uh, <laughs> Now I have a question from Tommy Eric Gunderson in the chat here uh, for Mark. He said when Dragon Data was up for sale, they were in talks with Tandy about a buyout. Do you remember anything about that, or would that have been more of an intertan thing? Uh, it would have been an intertan thing, but I don't believe that ever happened. Okay. 
because that would have had to gone through John Roach and I would have heard about it directly. So because no no color computer anything went on after I got there that I wasn't involved in. Okay. Now, we've already gone two hours on this, and uh, we still have the whole rest of the show to do yet, including a presentation from the Winnipeg meetup. So I think we'll tie it up for now. We'll definitely be doing follow episodes. Don't worry about that. Uh, we'll also be releasing the the code uh, for MAME for the users who want to try fiddling around with it, and we'll get the documentation done for the, the basic and stuff, too, as far as we can. So definitely expect a follow-up. We'll hopefully have Mark back for that, too. And if I can get this Ken Kaplan interview lined up, I want to talk to him about the Deluxe OS 9 Level 1 that they were working on which I've seen some copies of and some documentation for as well, because there's more to add to the story there as well. So uh, thank you very much, Mark, for coming on and, and sharing your your memories of uh, helping create the Deluxe and then what happened to it, unfortunately. But I'm, I'm glad that we actually... Have you. <laughs> I, I'm, yeah. I'm really glad that one of the prototypes with some of the ROM uh, stuff added to it, because I don't think Boise's had the extended ROMs. I think he's just got standard extended basic ROMs in his. So I'm really glad, even if it's a, an early prototype of the basic there, at least we got to kind of see where you guys were going with the Deluxe. Yep, and so, and uh, as we've been talking about, uh, the machine that uh, that we've been playing with here, it will be at uh, Cocoa Fest. So if you want to come and see it, it'll be there. In person. Yep. Hey, Curtis. Yep. There was one further question from Chris Duries about, did Roland build the, uh, was it the M10? Oh, the sound thing? Yeah. Uh, MS10. Some other company? MS10? Okay. Does you remember like Mark? A Roland product. What's the question? Uh, did Roland, Chris Durie's asked, did Roland build the MS10 or was it some other company? No, that was, uh, that came out of China. Are you talking about the sound device that I mentioned or is this something else? Yeah, the amplifier. It's yeah, it looks a bit like a rolling product, but just a Chinese jobber. Yeah, an no. MMS 10. We didn't do any business with Roland. Okay, ready for commercial? Yeah, and then we're going to come back, and I, we've got Project Appleby's acquisitions. We've got the game on challenge. What do you guys want to do next? Start a commercial. Well, after the commercial, I mean, just where <laughs> we're coming back to. Press i got to make sure, like, if we're going to talk about the winning... It's your good buddy, your good pal, Amigo, and joined by that dastardly The Brent from ARG Presents. You're watching Coco Nation. I feel like that should have been longer. The Coco Nation Show would like to thank the following patrons. Alex Geyer, Brandon Donahue, Brian Walsh, Brian Weasler, Karen Ascom, Coconut Bob, Daddy Burrito, David Ladd, Derek Smithson, Diego BF109, Don Barber, 
Eric Canales, Glenn Hewlett, Graham Wabke, Grant Leedy, Henry Strickland, Justin Larson, Ken Reichard, Kevin Holloway, Paul Fiscarelli, Paul Shoemaker, R. Allen Murphy, Retro Tech Time, Rob Binman, Rocky Hill, Steve Batson, TJB Chris, Tom C., Tom Gunderson, Tom S., and William A. Thing. Thank you so much, patrons. Welcome to everybody's favorite segment, Who's New to Discord? CC4 Space Prague says, My name, Charlie. I have several Coco 3s, a number of cartridges and disk software, some 720k and one 360k drive with controllers only used occasionally. Now as I have a Super IDE and a Coco SDC, also have a Coco DAC and Mini MP. Have had a Coco 3 since 1990, never had a Coco 2. I primarily use Nitro OS 9 but often RS-DOS. Captain Kirchhoff says, Hi, my name is Ken W. I ran Coco starting with the Coco 2, later upgraded to Coco 3, that grew into multi-pack with disc controller, serial cart, and third-party 80-column terminal cartridge. By that point, I was mostly running OS 9 level 2. Then I went to the dark side, 80286 and an expensive path of PC clones leading to the present day. Decades later, I'm designing 68xx SBC PCBs and recently acquired an MC10 which I'm hacking. Steve says, My name's Steve. I had a Spectrum and C64 in the 80s. Was interested in the Dragon 32, but never got to try one. Started to rekindle my interest when the Spectrum Next KS2 launched. That led to discovering the vintage computer scene. Been learning to fix and program 8-bit micros ever since. Watching the Amigos YouTube got me interested in the Coco. Recently got a Coco 3 in need of repair. Got it working and have just started learning to program it. The previous bios were edited for time. Thanks to, Boysen, Glenside Computer Club, Micro Hobbyist Frederick, Paul Fiscarelli, Tandy Color Computer 3, and the Coco Nation patrons for boosting the server. Please consider joining Discord and visiting the welcome section to read these bios in full and see what the community has to offer. Just go to discord.thecoconation.com. See you on Discord. And we're back. Um, let's see, David. So um, we have a video from D. Bruce from the Manitoba Retro Meetup Roundup, Metro Meetup. Um, so we'll play the video and uh, you get to do the color commentary. How's that sound? Sure. <laughs> All right, here we go. Coco DD, yes. Should there be, should I hear music? Probably. I think, the sound, I think there should be sound coming up. I just turned the volume down because okay. everybody has them up. It's like, yeah, okay. Too loud. Uh, it's, it's, it's gone now. There is sound. Oh, yeah, it's got a great fan on it. It's fans original. That fan's original, that fan's original. It had a full high hard drive in it, which was dead, and I was missing the controller board. Okay, um, hang on, i got to do this a little differently because you could not hear David because I forgot to add the input to the source. So let me work on this a little differently here. First world problems. Yeah. 
Uh, ah, get over here. Um, Actually, while while Mark's getting this fixed up, David, if you just want to mention what this event is. Yeah, it's our. Should there be? Should I hear music? Manitoba retro computer enthusiast meetup. That we just kind of correspond about our projects off and on, and then we have a meetup about every three months or so where we get together and actually set up our retro machines. A bunch of guys in the group have you know, several different machines in their collection, and so you never kind of know what they're going to bring uh, each time we get together. I brought my Coco 3 and my White Case Coco 1, you see they're on the screen. I brought those the last two times, uh, but I had a big 20 there the time before that. You can see right beside me on the on the far right of the video now, there's an Apple 2 GS set up. And behind that one, uh, where there's a gentleman like in the gray shirt sitting, there's a TRS-80, the Model 3 there. Uh, the guy in the black shirt, the guy who owns it, he's actually fixing up a Model 2 as well right now. Um, and he has a Coco 3 that he just got working a little while back also. Um, I see even a phaser, uh, the Lycan phaser adapter that you are selling at Coco Best. I do, yeah. We had that running for a little while. I think that's in the video a little bit. In fact, I'm probably uh, talking about it right there. Yeah, he's zooming in on the adapter. And uh, I can talk about that a little bit during the show yet, too, if you, we have time. I know you got a really full show. Maybe I'll come on another time to talk about it. But I do have them uh, ready to sell, which is kind of what I'm talking to Bruce about here right now. Um, I've got a, a, a website set up that I can uh, take orders through now and everything. I just got working last night. So we do have the um, adapters ready to go, which I was showing uh, on the stream right there right now in the video. And I have a uh, well, four adapters and four light guns uh, to pair with. Them. I was just about to ask if you actually have bundles with the light guns included. Is the Sega Master System light gun for those who already have those or have access to them? Yeah, I have them. I don't know if you're seeing me on here too right now, but I have them right here as well. So I can talk about that a, a little bit too. For those, and uh, they're all ready to go as, as sets, or if you just want to buy the adapter without the light gun, we can do that as well. Now, we should mention the the light gun adapter because of the way the hardware works, you pretty well have to run this on a CRT-based monitor. You cannot run this on an LED, correct? That is right. Or yeah. LCD, sorry. And it's it's actually pretty picky. I did an experiment, which I posted about on Facebook recently, too, where I bought a, a SCART to um, component converter, hoping to run the, you know, the RGB from my switcheroo cable into that SCART to component converter and put it on a component television to get a really nice picture. And the picture looks amazing when I do it. It basically looks like my 27-inch my Panasonic TV in my basement. It looks just as good as, uh, you know, my Magnavox ATM-515, only way, way bigger. Just beautiful mm -hmm. color, nice and bright, really sharp. But unfortunately, that converter introduces just enough lag that the light gun adapter doesn't work properly. It, it'll, uh. it'll sense that you're pulling the trigger, but it won't sense where you're pointing it at all. The timing is just off, unfortunately. So that was kind of too bad. I was hoping to to have that set up at Coco Fest with a nice component converter as part of it. So... This is why you'll see here we're in the video where I'm demoing it with my Magnavox ATM515 and uh, just starting up our Enforce there right now. I have a question. Sure. Now, let's say uh, you bring it to Cocoa Fest and uh, I'm going to fly back with a gun in my <laughs> in my suitcase. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. <laughs> 
You'll have to make sure you bring some orange spray paint and spray paint the tip orange, right? <laughs> oh, right, right. <laughs> Mark, Mark me, I just wanted to mention that Manitoba is spelled M-A-N-I-T-O-B-A. Okay. <laughs> I probably should have warned you about that earlier. Sorry. <laughs> so I'm probably talking there about, you know, how the adapter is hooked up. And when he's having a look at the VIC-20, which was right next door on the other side of me there, too. One of those uh, emulating mod modern uh, machines, but a full-size uh, VIC-20 uh, replica. And yeah, here we're running Iron Forest and actually using the light gun there. It wasn't the best space to do it in because like, we couldn't really back up very far. There's like a huge shelf full of board games right behind me. So that's as All far right. as I could go. And uh, you know we're standing up, pointing down at a little 14-inch screen. But we managed to, to kind of get the idea of it. You could... You could still play. You can hit stuff occasionally. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can play a little better in my basement where I can position myself a little better. But yeah, right. it, it was working. Also, for those of you who actually want to program something for the Lycan, because there's only two official games for it. There's Iron Force and Medieval Madness from DICOM. Um, Dave did have a few others under development. He showed us an old West game at, at one of the Rainbow Fest. But uh, Tim Linder's actually written up an article of how to program for these things and how to get them to work. It requires some you know, timing. You'll definitely have to do an assembly language, but uh, the how to program it is actually out there. So if anybody wants to give it a shot and buys you know, a, a, an adapter plus the uh, gun from uh, David or, or gets them elsewhere, then uh, maybe some people could develop some new games to use the phaser. Yeah, Pretty neat to see some of that happening. Um, I've got Tim shared some test code with me, which I've talked about on the show before. And uh, there's kind of two pieces to one of them is just a little basic routine that's pulling, looking for when you uh, pull the trigger on the gun. So it's just using the button command, right? Yeah. So you have to do a, a little bit of a, you know, a rewrite to have code that checks the button on the Coca One and Two because it doesn't have the button command and basic built in. So just a little uh, a bit mask routine, simple to do. And then it's calling a assembly language routine that uh, the basic uh, program loads up earlier. And so every time it senses a button press, it'll go call that assembly routine that uh, Tim skimmed out of uh, Medieval Madness, I believe it was. I think it was the second game he pulled that out of. So uh, that routine is all there. To get it to work with the Coca 1 and Coco 2, there'd be a little bit of work in the assembly as well because it is using a lot of gimme specific commands like you know, flipping all the pellets to white to turn the screen white and then flipping them back again. So you can you can blank the whole screen and then put it back to what it was really, really quick and easy uh, because all your, your information of what's on the screen is still there. You're just changing the palette colors and then changing them back to what they were. So there'd be a few things to figure out how to do in the Coco 1 and Coco 2, which I kind of like to dig into that, but I've been just trying to get the adapters ready and, and making sure I have them working on the Coco 3 and getting them ready to sell. Um, but that would be something I, I would kind of like to get into. And if someone else wants to work on it too, that would be awesome. Yeah, my guess is if you just made a low res, like a P-Mode 0 filled with white and just kept it as a second screen you just point to, you can quickly flip it there to do the white and then flip it back to the actual graphic screen you're drawing on. Yeah. And then do the timing from that. I think that's pretty doable. We might even have to adjust some of the timing delays in there as well a little bit. Um, there's... He's also turning off again the interrupts and things like that too. Some things that I'm not quite sure, you know, what's going on with some of that stuff. It's it's common in the in the code, but 
By the way, Bruce is complaining in chat that you're missing the cassette recorder. And my answer yes. to that is, uh, Bruce, you should have been on here then. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Bruce just, just got a, a nice cassette recorder. I don't even know if it was a CCR 81 or 82. Is that a CTR or a CCR? That looks like a CTR. I'm not sure. Uh, here, let me, uh, I can see it on there. Let's back up a little bit. I was there when it happened, Counter. but I didn't see the model number on it. Pause. It's just a little blurry, eh? CCR81. Oh, it is CCR. Okay, okay. yeah. <laughs> yeah, there was, uh, I think, a, a work colleague of the guy who runs the meetup uh, asked if anybody might want it. And uh, Doug, the guy who's in charge, said, I think I know uh, a few people who might be interested in that. And so, yeah, Bruce pounced on it pretty pretty quick and was really happy to have it. So, The digital counter is key. Yeah. <laughs> happy life with computer types. So I was I was going to ask here because obviously I've not, I've not attended one of these yet. Yeah. Um, is, is it a mixture of of different of people not only of different computers but of different levels of experience? Like, do you get a lot of programmers or hardware designers, or is it more just the users and people just use them back in the day, or is it a mixture of everybody? Or it's kind of a mixture of a lot. Yeah. Like, there's some guys who who are just kind of tinkering and enjoy using it. They like playing the games, right? Um, but you got, I mean, we have Bruce in our group now who's programming things right now. We've got a guy who uh, has been a professional solderer for many, many years. He's the guy that I mentioned that was uh, fixing up the TRC to Model 2. Um, so you got people like that that got some pretty good hardware skills. Um, yeah, a big variety like that. We've got a, a guy who used to work for Atari for many, many years, and, and he doesn't have as much Atari stuff now as he once did, but I know he had a massive collection of really cool Atari things. Um, and I actually bought uh, one of the TAC2 joysticks off of him a little while back. So we got to hear a little bit of stories from him when I met him and stuff. So yeah, there's quite a lot of people in the group. Um, lots of different machines that people are into. And so, like I said, you never know, kind of know what machine's gonna show up the next time you go to the meetup. We've had uh, you know a few Amigas floating around. We had, a, I think it was a Kim 1 that one of the guys brought a while back. That's probably the oldest one we've seen uh, at any of the meetups so far. A bunch of Commodores, there's always Commodores at everyone we go to. Uh, yeah, and uh, there's been a few Cocos, but not very many. I'm, I'm probably the one who, who brings the most of those. So, But hopefully we get Bruce to bring one pretty soon. <laughs> okay. So uh, Deep Bruce would like us to uh, hear the audio of the cassette player part. So uh, yeah, we can uh, that. rerun that, advance it to where the cassette player is. That fan's original, that fan's original. It had a four. And I missed that one, so. <gasps> that one, so. Really hoping you'd show up, so. Oh. There <gasps> you go. Oh, my goodness. By, uh, by way of a co-worker, I was showing him my retro computer collection. Yeah. And he got this look of recollection on his face and then was kind of quiet the next business day he contacted me with a, a photo he says i had this in a drawer he says i've long since sold my cocoa but i've had this for probably 25 years do you know anybody that would want it because i've been thinking i should like just put it in the e-cycling well i know oh yeah see mine yes, yes we do. these buttons were so notorious for snapping off especially with teenagers smashing on them all the time yeah, yeah, that one went first. There's, and it, there's a little caustic piece that, in here. Yeah. That's right, that's right. 
I think that my the stop and eject went first, and then when the play went, I think I was it was useless after that, and I finally ditched it just a few years ago. Now I've got all these cassettes I didn't know what to do with. Well, my buddy Chad was very happy that it would go to second. Well, well, you tell Chad that I sure appreciate this. This is fabulous. Absolutely, shall do. Okay. Cool. And there's mine. <laughs> I probably have half hmm. a dozen of them. And cool. it's the same one. Same one. Nice. Didn't they make a light gray one? Yeah, the older one. They had the CCR version too, computer cassette recorder, then the computer tape recorder. So there were slightly different design styles. Right. The, the little bitty one was the rocking one. It had a monitor switch and some other yeah. things on it. I've got a couple of those, but they all need belts. And if you've ever looked inside of one of those, you don't want to change the belts. You really, <laughs> really don't want to change the belts. Yeah, you got like unsolder the, uh, the the amplifier board off of it, right? Right, things like that. Yeah, it's um, two or three special. layers down. Yeah. Well, cool. Uh, we'll have to uh, do that again when they have the next one in a month or so. Now, you were mentioning, I think, right. in the pre-show, David, that you, the next, like, you guys don't always have them at this place where you actually have the machines. You sometimes just have, yeah. like, a supper gathering type thing where you bring smaller things to show. Yeah, we kind of alternate between one or the other. So uh, Doug was talking at, at our last meetup last weekend that in about a month and a half or so, he wants to do a restaurant meetup again where we just kind of get together for supper, eat a meal, and we usually bring something small. The last time we got together for one of those everybody brought a piece of software uh, that was important to them from back in the day. So I actually brought my uh, inbox um, Sierra Kings Quest 3 software for the Coco 3 and brought okay. that along. Um, and that, yeah, there's a kind of a wide variety of stuff that people brought for that too. Some people brought games, some people brought actually some um, productivity software still in the box and things like that. So so I'll be coming okay. up in about a month and a half and then about another month and a half after that. So maybe sometime in May, uh, maybe we can talk them into pushing back into June. Sounds like some of you guys that would, June would work well. Maybe we'll do a, a big meetup around that time. And that's in Osborne Village area of Winnipeg at Game Night Games, which is where we did it last time. Uh, the guys seem to really enjoy that venue. We've got a lot of space there, but there is another venue we might be moving to uh, one of these times to try out too, but we'll see. Um, okay and does this normally happen on the same day of the week each time or does it move it, around it's a saturday afternoon where we do it always yeah i don't because yeah, if it goes long enough i mean bill and i can maybe you know drive out early early saturday morning and maybe catch the tail end of it or something the last while we've been going from uh one but starting to set up at 12 30 but kind of planning to have things ready for one o'clock and then going till about four Usually there's guys hanging out a little bit longer than that, or you know you need to load up your stuff afterwards. That takes a little while sometimes. So we'll go to maybe 4.30, kind of push it till then. Um, but if we know some people are coming from further away, maybe we can kind of convince Doug to kind of push it a little bit later. We'll have to do what works for the store that we're in as well, the way it's a board game. Yeah, or store. that other location you're talking about, is it? A yeah, the other location, I think they've got a, like a pool hall or something like that attached to it where we'd be setting up. I haven't actually seen that part before, but... Uh, okay that one sounds kind of interesting to you okay keep us posted because I, I know bill's expressed some interest in going to one um if we can arrange it for both of us at the same time and if it's on a saturday or sunday that's definitely easier than trying to do it say friday night <laughs> yeah no we'd love to have some people join us from from further away that'd be really nice 
I'd love to see some more cocos at one of these. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks Bruce for shooting that footage. Um, thanks mm -hmm. uh, David for uh, kind of commenting on it and uh, keep and, us posted uh, when the next meetings are and then dates and times. Will do. Thank you. And in the chat, Julian says he needs to catch us next week because he needs to pay off a sleep deficit. Just <laughs> hang around a minute. We'll yeah, put you to yeah. sleep. We'll put you down. Uh, it's, we got a few more presentations first there. It's going to be longer in a minute. <laughs> I don't know if he'll make it that long. All right. Hang on. I got to take this phone call. Um, do we want to start uh, some announce announcements? Um, yeah, I can do, do upcoming show announcements, and we'll go back to the rest of the people that have uh, updates and acquisitions. Yeah, I can also do the Cocoa Fest announcement, too. Actually, you want to do that first, Grant? You go first. Oh, sure. Why not? Just put me on the spot. <laughs> so just, just, just a short uh, little update here. Uh, we had the uh, Glenside meeting here on Thursday, a uh, week ago last Thursday, and we discussed uh, 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 purchasing the overflow room, uh, which you guys may remember that was the room that we had the auction items in last year. So uh, we're going ahead and purchase that room, and we can add an additional about nine to ten tables. So people did not want to have stuff in the hallway, didn't have to bring everything back in to the, to the uh, ballroom and then bring everything back out again. So this now will give us the option to uh, have tables behind a locked door so you don't have to bring it back and forth. So uh, the tables will be going for $30 a piece. There are six-foot tables. Um, also, if you are wanting to maybe not be in the main ballroom because you're just maybe having need a place to park or something to keep your stuff at, uh, let me know. We can also shuffle the tables around and move you out of the main ballroom into the hallway or into the overflow room and vice versa. So uh, Randy should have that updated on the uh, tandylist.com's website here with, uh, within a day or two. So therefore, the uh, overflow room will be available as well. So, so hopefully that will take care of our shortage of tables. That will give us uh, 14 in the hallway and nine, at least nine in the overflow room. So looking about, what, 23 additional tables so that should now, if, if we end help. up not using all that number of tables and it's enough to fit in just the room will we use the room instead of the hallway yeah yeah definitely so because i am not uh because the, these extra tables we're actually paying for uh rental for so it's 15 dollars per table so if we're not using those tables then i'm not going to rent those tables so then yeah we just push everybody into the uh into the overflow room with the exception of one person who uh, requested the hallway so because his okay. uh it's AJ and his uh, display is from BCF Midwest and it's a, it's a display on wheels, let's say, and it would be very hard to get that into. Uh... He's going to drive it in. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so he's going to be in the hallway no matter what happens, but uh, yes. Okay. So, all right. That's the only update that I had. Oh, also, if you want to give a presentation, we still have a few places, uh, a few spots open as well. Just reach out to me as well. So <clears throat> Curtis. Well, I mean, uh, depending how far we get with all the deluxe assembly here, we might just do a group presentation at some point here on some of that. But we can't promise anything until we get our work schedules fixed up and actually see how far we get. So, yeah, no problem. Just let me know if you are wanting to hold a spot there before I can at least make sure it doesn't get completely booked up because I think everybody would love to hear that in person. So, all right, that's all I had. Oh, and one other thing before I forget uh, t shirts will be going on sale soon too, as well. I just submitted the, uh, the, uh, both, uh, uh, Ron's drawing and also uh, Salvador's drawing to the company. So those will probably be available to, for sale here within the next week, as soon as they approve the uh, And that will be directly linked from the Glenside? Uh, yeah, it'll be the same place that we went for. 
the same thing as we did last year. We ordered through uh, Teesprings, and which is the same company that uh, we used to sell our old uh, Cocoa Talk stuff through. So, but yeah, that's. Well, I'll make sure I'll have that posted on the Glenside website as well when it goes live. Okay. Cool. All right. That's it. Okay, okay. Mark. Uh, what order did you want to do? The rest of the people that have uh, uh, updates and acquisitions. Okay. So let's see, uh, Marco. Um, I don't know if I missed it. Did nope. you have anything on the virtual Cocoa Fest? Uh, I have a few people that have committed to me, and we haven't slid any time slots yet, except for uh, Thomas uh, uh, Shanks, a friend of uh, of uh, Bill, uh, William Strickland. Um, he wants to do it on Sunday afternoon. But other than that, uh, Erico, Paul Fiscarelli, um, myself, Rick Uland, and Tim Linder said he might have something to present. So I have you know, six people that okay. uh, want to do something. So. Uh, I don't know if we'll push more for Sunday or if uh, it'll still be Saturday, but like I said, I got lots of slots available, but nobody's committed any time except you know, one person. Right. So. Okay. Well, we'll have times. Just list all the people and we'll all gather when we okay. can. Yeah, we don't have lives so, anyway, so. Uh. Oh, you know. <laughs> of course not. Yeah, right. Why not? I mean, well, we should we spend six hours doing this every Saturday. <laughs> exactly. Right? So, so we'll, get, uh, we'll have something. So. Don't be around. Uh, yeah, you'll be around. <laughs> These are the guys will be around. We'll do so. All right. And did you have uh, anything on Simon's project? Um, he, uh, I have some basic stuff, uh, but you know, might as well move on to somebody else because he might be able to present it next week. So okay, uh, uh, since we got more people to present this week, give them a chance first. Okay, let me turn that on. Okay, uh, let's see, uh, Rick. Okay, yeah, mine's pretty quick actually. Um, remember last week? Let me find the right button. Bcam. Yes, began. Okay. We, we so did, did they that, find? Actually. Did they find where they left it? Okay, the box. Yes, the box showed up. Believe it or not. Was it at least in the right city? Uh, I guess so. In fact, since this picture, see the dent on the side here, it has rained and snowed. Oh no! And yet, a week <laughs> to the day, the box showed up with no rain or snow. So I think a neighbor might have taken it in. And brought it to me after the weather all cleared. And so, yeah, the good news is I've built two boards and the boards work and the cards are all right. And uh, I have all my things. And so uh, this would have been a hard thing to replace out of pocket. So I'm very happy about that result. No and, then I guess in, <laughs> and then I guess in closing, um, we should mention the real Yggdrasil, which is Yggdrasil Computing, which made this Linux. Note the specs on the bottom of the CD, if you will. You needed a couple of, I think you have six different SCSI controllers. And uh, anyway, this was the state of Linux in 1994. Big So that's my whole thing. I have cards. If you were waiting for them, you don't have to wait anymore. I know a couple of people were asking, and now they aren't asking. Okay, uh, let's see. Next up, Frederick. Yes, well, I have two updates on my project. One is uh, after I finally figured out that there was a small little problem of crossing the uh, wires, uh, address lines, managed to um, uh, transcode, not transcode, but port my uh, monitor program uh, over to uh, the uh, 6309. So I got all the basic commands up and running. 
I uh, got uh, the um, memory dump, peak, poke, uh, uh, and a lot of other features, and I'm going to add to it every time. And the other thing is I managed to um, finally figure out how to make an MMU for the uh, the system that matches that of the Coco 3. So maybe I could share this little thing here. There it is. Share. Yeah. Are you seeing it? Yes. So okay, know. so basically, um, right now, currently, it's running in normal mode, disabled MMU, but when you activate it, you see the display, it changes to another address. In the memory cells, uh, you have um, basically what you write to it uh, when you write to the MMU with the uh, MMU chip select. So you write okay, that the exact address of the uh, Coco 3, Say write this to this register. I think it's FFA0 to FFAF. So you can write to that. So if you change the um, numbers, it changes automatically. And as soon as you hit um, the constant RAM and well the uh, the upper five hundred twelve bytes, it on there's a circuit that actually changes from the enabled NMU to the basic uh, addressing mode so you can access the uh, constant RAM, IO, and vectors. So managed to figure it out, and that, and that works. Yeah, cool. that's pretty much it. And you're you're at the point now you're going to try to prototype that on, with actual hardware and see what happens? Yeah, simulation works. I tried all the permutation, permutation, and all I need to do now is wire it up on a breadboard and see if it works correctly. Cool. You have to come on and demonstrate your monitor program sometime too. Oh well, I have it here if you want to see it. If it's quick, that's <laughs> oh, yeah, quick. We got a lot of stuff to cover yet. Oh, right. <laughs> of course, I'll do it quickly. Share screen. There. So basically, I have my monitor here. So there's a, the prompt is only like the bank number and the current address. So you have the mm -hmm. commands that I have so far are those listed here. And I have a basic diagnostics of the RAM. I can dump the memory. So when I do a dump, well, there's nothing there because it's all zeros. It automatically, the prompt changes to the current address, which is 140. So I don't have to type dump 140 for the next one. So I just type dump and it goes to the next one. I want to go nice. and see my um, my program, uh, my actually my, my ROM space. It's at E00. So... I have data. It's not just zeros. <laughs> I see a story at FF08 right at the beginning. <laughs> and um, if I want to change the address to something else, for example, I know that the vectors are, I don't know, at ADDR at FF, oops, FF, F0, and I just do a dump from there. Well, we see the vectors over there. Um, I can always, uh, for example, poke at address zero. I don't have to type the full address. It recognizes um, zero would be address zero. I don't have to type zero, 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 zero. And apply two at three. It confirms that at address zero, it's number three. And if I can peek it directly, don't need to put it because it remembers the address. Um, what else that's interesting? Well, yeah, load. As soon as I can actually upload a program that I in hex, Intel hex format, 
right now I don't have one currently to show, but it will slowly transfer and you're able to run it. Uh, right now there's nothing. So it automatically will say, well, no, there's nothing to run. So it automatically jumps to the, um, to the, uh, the bootloader. Uh, but um, I have I can read the regis registers right now. There's nothing because no code has executed, um, but you'll be able to modify them on a case by case basis. But when you execute a program that you have uh, that you have uploaded, it will rec um, will save the registers automatically. So that when you you don't alter the registers as you run the monitor program. Um, what else do I have? Well, memory map is is very simple. Just gives um, the standard map of the system, and it will evolve as soon as I add hardware. Um, and that's pretty much it. Right now, the bank is not is useless because I haven't implemented the banking system. But you'll be able to manually switch the banking system to uh, for the monitor program. And um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Sorry. Mm. Hope it was cool. Glad to see it's progressing quite nicely. Yeah. Especially after the frustration of the crossed address lines. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next up, we have. You get a chance, go over to my uh, Ron's garage, take a look. It's okay. All there. You know, I don't want to right. take up more time. All right. That's fine then. All right. Uh, any hey. other project updates? I got something. Go ahead, Andy. Give me a second. There we go. And let's see. I hit this button, that button, and then hit that button so I don't have those sparkly bits. Okay. I got things from JLPCPCB. I don't know if uh, anybody really remembers or not, but I mentioned mm -hmm. doing the FujiNet thing that uh, Tom Sherry Holmes had uh, started putting together, had done a bring up on, and there are a couple of revisions of PC boards that have come out. And this one is the second revision. It's the one that does the it's the one that does the cassette, but um, in doing the cassette, it doesn't like uh, it doesn't like to load when the uh, when the Wi-Fi has already been set up, apparently. So I can't remember the name of the gentleman who's working on the revision three, which is actually going to be cartridge based. But I'd had these on order for a while. And you know, I figured, hey, let's go ahead and give it a shot. See what happens. So eh, maybe this week, next week, something like that. I'll solder one of these up and try and figure out how to use it. I should mention, too, I mean, for anybody in Southern California, the VCF Southwest uh, or SoCal, uh, Thomas Terry owns a creator of Fujinet is actually one of the presenters there. So. Hey Henry, how many of these boards did you order? Ah, uh, five. You want you want one? Yes, I do. Yeah, go ahead and email me your um, email me your uh, or send me your address or something mailing address. I'll get one out yeah. to you. Sure. Yeah, I'll take mm, one or two, course. whatever you might want to part with. One. Send you a few bucks. Yeah, just uh, do me DM me uh, DM me on the Discord. Um, I've got four extras. What's your uh, cool. uh, username on Discord? Henry the third. Uh, Henry the third. Okay. I think. 
you think? <laughs> yes, I'm pretty sure yeah, it's Henry I'm pretty III. sure it's Henry the Third. Sounds like royalty. <laughs> no, nah, it's uh, through him. All right. It's it's um, family. It's family. All right, Ken, you awake? <laughs> yep, oh. I am. <clears throat> All right. Here next. Um, okay, well before that, any other project updates? Okay. Welcome everybody to the Coco Nation Game On Challenge of the Week results video. This week we played Eliminator. We had a total of 14 players. They were Buck Owens with 830, Mark B 1390, Mr. Dave 6309-1610, Mark O 1960, Ed Rhodes 2660, Shenley 2670, Jim Rye 2760, Coconut Bob 2770, Nerf Herder 3080, Sloopy Malibu 3430, Canadian Retro Things 3780, Tasman 7930, L. Curtis Boyle 8830, and this week's number one score belongs to Dr. Ted with 15,280. Thanks everybody that played. We'll see you again next week. Holy and cow, the, he kicked our butts. Oh, and yeah. the Cocoa Nation salutes Dr. Ted. Salute. Yeehaw. What happened and to Buck Owens? So there you go, was, Mark. You you beat Buck Owens. I, I know. I was like, how in the world did I beat Buck Owens? <laughs> but, you know, that's like the third week in a row for Dr. Ted. Yep. Yes, he, it is. He's a, I think he's a ringer. He joined in, and he's a ringer. He's uh He's the same AI that Buck Owens used to run. Yeah, Buck <laughs> Owens is a Gen 3 uh, AI. Uh, Dr. Gen Ted 4 is Gen 4. <laughs> so where's his bumper? Come on. I, I like Tom Maker. Eric Endenson's uh, comment in the chat there. He goes, Buck Owens' last Oho times have changed. <laughs> <laughs> it's the end of an era. Oh, and Dr. Ted's even in the audience right now. So congratulations. And yeah, I also uh, uh, doc, Dr. Ted says, I don't like King Tut, so it's anybody's game next week. <laughs> <laughs> hey, actually, I like King Tut. Actually, yeah, I really like I it too. too. Yeah. Anyways, uh, but first we'll talk about Eliminator, a very odd game from um, Adventure, Adventure International, International in that uh, every version they released for it is different. Some have some similarities more than others, yeah. but yeah, it originally started kind of a Defender clone, and then it kind of went off on its own on different platforms, and yeah. So, very, very strange. Anyways, um, I don't know, what, what do we have to say about it? Curtis, you found that using the double speed poke, it ran a little bit better? It ran faster. It ran faster. Um, I actually, the most fascinating thing for me was watching you guys bring up other versions of it, like the Tier City Model 1. We were mm -hmm. hoping Nick would pop by because I know he quite liked the game back in the day. And though I think we showed the Atari, I think Soupy played that one. You played this, um, I played Apple the II version? Uh, Apple II Apple version II. and the Terrace 80 version. And then somebody else actually did come up with the uh, Commodore version too, which seems to be similar Shenley, to the Atari. 
Yeah, Shanley found a, a working copy of it. So I find it actually interesting that the uh, TRS-80 Model 1 3 version is actually an incredibly good Defender clone. Yeah. <laughs> and then the other ones kind of just started to stray away from the Defender yeah. clone and kind of went on their own. I think the uh, Commodore still had the uh, radar screen at the top. But... Uh, did any, no, I can't remember. Did they have the angling in? ship, like where you can angle your shots up and down? Because that was something on the Coco the Atari version. No, for I sure, think they, those, those two versions were the only ones that the ship angled at. Otherwise, it just moved up and down. Like some Defender of them had actually, straight. like the C sixty four had bombs that came out, and uh, so so for bombing the uh, buildings on the bottom. And one of them had the sh the roof came down, and you two or was it two of them that had that? The Coco version that actually did it, as you went along without dying, the roof slowly moved down. The Atari and then, also. And the Atari version moved down a lot faster. Yeah, and I can't remember, did the C64 one? I do don't know. I know the Model 1 and the Apple II did not. I'm only going by what I read from Shenley because I didn't actually get the chance to see any footage of it. So Yeah, he did stick a couple of screenshots up, but you can't really tell if the yeah. roof's moving. It looks like Possibly the C64 version, the roof does come down a little bit. It, it's it, it was something like Adventure National had that happen a few times. Rearguard's another one, um, or even Sea Dragon to a certain extent, where they have the same title ported to multiple platforms, but they don't try to keep the platforms very similar to each other. They get pretty violently different. Like we I, don't even have a radar on the Coco version, for example. They're trying to they're trying to make it so you have to collect them all. It's like the early Pokemon. <laughs> Pokemon. <laughs> Here's 150 bucks for the sales instead of just 25. There you go. <laughs> and also, then you got to go out and buy all the systems too. That just meant I had to pirate more stuff and incompatible drives. That's all that meant. <laughs> uh, Doctor uh, Doctor Ted says uh, the Coco version has the sky coming down too. Yeah, very slowly though. It doesn't come think, down near as fast as the Atari version. I think the main reason why we didn't notice that is because we're not good enough for it to come down very far. <laughs> we died early. The yeah. ones, the one where I actually got the better score, I actually stayed alive long enough to notice that it did drop down a little bit. That's why I knew. I'll have to review the footage of me playing because I, I scored fairly well, so I'm guessing it probably did happen at some point, but I just didn't notice I was too It's just It didn't come down a lot. Like it came down about you know one sixteenth of the screen at a time, yeah. And that was about every three thousand points. It dropped about one sixteenth of the screen. Yeah, it seemed more more than that. I think it was like a every thousand points it dropped down. Oh, did it? On the Atari version, you're talking about, or are you talking about the Coco? Oh one? no, the Coco version. Coco version. It was oh, okay. like line every thousand points or something. It was it was very slow, and the only reason why I even noticed it is because I happened to be looking up there when I when it when it added the line. Mm -hmm. But I didn't look at the score, so I wasn't. I prepared. didn't even notice. <laughs> I was fighting the controls too much to really notice. <laughs> it's it's an interesting control scheme on the Coco version. Yeah, I got used to it though. It wasn't that yeah. bad afterwards. You could do the big sweeping arcs to like blast stuff on the ground and sweep back up, and yeah. But it did take a bit of getting used to. Yeah, one thing I did notice was um, using an analog controller was significantly better than uh, using uh, a digital or keyboard because you were able to, because the um, ship would uh, move up and down relative to the analog position. 
Mm-hmm. So you were able to make like a spray of fire that went across fast spray, fast spray. Yeah. Yeah. And sp- I, I never did figure out why some of them you could hit a whole bunch of times without them being destroyed. Then all of a sudden yeah. some you could hit once they destroy. Sometimes you'd hit them four or five times before they. Yeah. Cause those, those blobby things that came out, I didn't think you could kill them at all until you mentioned, no, I've done it. And then, you know, I finally managed to do it, but I, you know, I'd already shot them. I don't know how many dozens of times. <laughs> yeah. died, so. It seems that some um, enemies were uh, much more uh, able, uh, easier to kill when you were shooting them straight on, as opposed to at an angle. It seems that the hit detection at an angle, the, the whatever was drawing the shot would register a hit and then disappear, but the enemy wouldn't register the hit and die, which I thought or was Or kind of... was it a feature that each ship just had? Yeah, you had to hit him direct on or something, spot. maybe. Each ship had a vulnerable spot that you had to hit it. Oh, I thought they were cheating and not dying when they got shot. shot. Well, you could be right, but... <laughs> no, I'm, I'm going to say that uh, this is Adventure International. I mean, they're a classy company. They wouldn't have mistakes like that. <laughs> they're like Nick Morantes. It's all features, not mistakes. Uh, yeah, do I have to remind you about <laughs> Neutron right. or what? There are no bugs. <laughs> they had several, yeah, they had several hit points depending on how you hit them. Yeah. What we really need to find is the manuals for the original versions of this for all the different computers just to see... How much of the differences of uh, how the game was supposed to be played according to each platform? So, yeah, I actually quite it was it was not a bad game. Um, I do have to say that I did like the Atari version better, but purely because of the controls. No, because you're an Atari person. No, I mean it was (laughs) if the controls were more like the Atari, but like I mean, still keep them analog because I did like the analog. Um, feature of the um, of the Coco version, but if they were a little bit more, um, I'm not sure how to put it because it's like as your your uh, ship is going up and down, it it's it was odd how it would move, and then you would hit some things but not other things. Mm-hmm. So yeah, just play the uh, model one three version. Yeah. yeah, I would really like to find the original manuals for the various platforms just to see if they describe the gameplay differently. Like maybe that was a feature on the Coco, or maybe it was a bug. I don't know, but no, feature. Classy <laughs> company feature. <laughs> <laughs> Have you played some of the adventure games? How frustrating those get? I don't know. They're they're just for really smart people. They're not frustrating. They're they they're just feature filled. <laughs> 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 yeah that's what neutroid was feature field gotcha there you uh, go absolutely it has some of the best features of gaming <laughs> okay well uh since it's a long show does anybody else have anything to say about uh um eliminated or other than what we've said um f- fly ahead i guess so you can get more shots in because otherwise when you rapid fire you get you know dead spots if you're way to the left because you run out of Shots that you have only so many simultaneous shots. So if you want to yeah. really do a true, I think spray, you have like six or eight shots at a time. Yeah, so you can get gaps where they can sneak through. If you're trying to shoot something on the right, you're on the left. So if you go a bit more towards the middle, you can keep the continuous spray and have a better chance of shooting them down. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that was Eliminator, and the other game that we are playing this week is King Tut, which is uh, 
basically just climb down into the uh, mines and find the crowns and get mm -hmm. out of there and avoid the big stupid dumb head. Yeah, that is the most frustrating part of that game by far. <laughs> but a couple of us made it to the fifth level. I saw um, Retro Rick actually got finished. He finished the fifth, fifth level, which I wasn't able to do. So, I think I made the third or fourth. Did I make the fourth level once? I think I might have made the fourth level once and died right away. Yeah, I got to the third level myself, but I only played it for a short period. It's an interesting game. I like the, and as you were saying before, Curtis, I like the mechanic that uh, you have the timer and as your timer runs out, your candle goes out. So then all of a sudden you can be in the dark. Yeah, and it's so and, satisfying, especially if you're fairly yeah. far away from your point and you manage to sneak up the ladders, dodge the snakes and actually get the, get, re, get you know, back the recharge without channel. dying. Yeah, that, that is so satisfying. Like you, you beat all the odds there. And something that you did mention that I didn't know is that if you're wandering around and your timer is already getting low, and you haven't gotten a crown yet, you can actually go up back up to the surface and reset your timer. So, yeah, you know, you absolutely need that. Sometimes you can actually use that uh, time with your first candle to explore and to figure out exactly like what route do I have to take and where where's the best place to dodge the snakes or whatever. Uh, and then you you kind of try a few things and you go, ah, that's not going to work, but I'm going to run out of time. So you just go back up. You don't even try to go get a crown, recharge your candle, and then you have the time to come back down and do it properly. Or sometimes you're trying to get to a crown and the big dumb stupid head keeps showing up and you can't get to the crown. Yeah. But Which, I do like the fact that when the timer runs out, you don't die. Like that's actually nice. Yeah. You you get crippled somewhat because you can't see very far, but, but at least you have a chance. chance. Yeah, exactly. That was it's, uh, really well It's not well like done. a European game. Yeah. Well, yeah. What, what you do is you play while you're playing on the Game On Challenge Live. And you have it playing in the stream on another window, so that when your wind, when when your uh, lights go out, you can look at the stream, which is a which is like a minute twenty seconds behind or something. Yeah, yeah, and it, sh it shows you what the uh, what, <laughs> what what the tunnels look like. Yeah, well, nice. it's not hard to figure I, out what the tunnels look like. It's I, hard to figure out where the snakes are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's the hard part. I, and I cannot confirm nor deny any allegations that I may have cheated by doing that. Not cheating. It's uh, using strategy. We call that strategy. strategy. Yeah, innovative strategy, thinking outside the box. But I do have a question. Um, when you get the crown, when you get a crown and you take it to the top, do you get the number of points in the countdown timer? Yes. Or yes as a bonus. Yes. Which means if you die right, just right at the uh, foot of the ladder to get it the crown out, you get get a lot of points that way. So if you're farming for points, you can do that with each crown. Die once, right at the uh, thing, and then get like almost the full five thousand bonus points. That means that you can get what the uh, twenty, just almost twenty thousand, almost twenty thousand points in the first screen. Yeah, but. Your game doesn't last very long if you do that. <laughs> My game doesn't last very long anyway. Yeah. <clears throat> I have to say, Andrew Hubble, the author of that game, uh, definitely improved since he did The Frog, though. That was a pretty nice jump of playability. Yeah. I would have to agree with that. I mean... Anyways, it's, it's a uh, fun game, and uh, at least uh, we had a lot of fun playing it on the live Game On Challenge, which, uh, hey, how about we talk about that real quick, Sloopy? Well, we can. Um, I mean, it's already a long show, so just give it a give it a whirl, <laughs> real quick one. 
Yeah, as you saw, we had seven people playing at once. Uh, we had uh, eight, nine people in there total. Um, thank you all for joining us. Um, fun was had by people that came and played. Um, yeah, we had people that watched. Maybe next week you should come and play. And all you listeners that are watching out there in uh, the Coco Nation, come join us and play. Um, so join us Thursday where we'll be playing uh, King Tut again. And we'll also be playing something else. I wonder what that is, Ken. Oh, well, hey, I could tell you what that is. How about I share a screen here? Um, there. Ah, I recognize that one. I think Curtis knows this game since he suggested it. A race game. <laughs> Yay, a racing game. <laughs> yes, yep, it programmed is. Programmed by the late Steve Bjork in collaboration with the Color America Users Group. And it's a combination of two arcade uh, hits in one, which is a bit different. Yep. Pole position and turbo? Nope. You're right on half of it. Pole position. Yep. And something you wouldn't normally figure would be part of a 3D game. game. So here it is. Desert Rider. Desert Rider, which is a combination of pole position and bump and jump. (laughs) And Steve had told me, I think at one point, that those two buildings you see in the distance on the screenshot is actually mm-hmm. supposed to be the Tandy Towers. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Okay, well, that's all I have to say, so. So you're going to the motherland. Yeah, yeah pretty much. Gotta make you're, you're, you've got to get to the Tandy Towers and save all of the um, deluxe <laughs> cocos before they get they, up they destroy them. Yeah, and pick up your deluxe cocoa. Yeah, I, I will say it's not the best uh, pole position style game we've got on the cocoa as far as controls and stuff go for going around corners and things. But the adding the the jumping part, we have to jump over rocks and pits, other cars, is actually makes it a, a heck of a lot of fun because it's, it's it's different. It combines the two popular arcade games in a way I I don't think any other platform ever bothered doing. So, so you're driving through West Texas, heading towards Tandy Towers. So you're heading east. Right now. I got to ask, are there tarantulas? Of course. <laughs> if they are, they're probably in the dark pits and you can't see them. Okay. No, they're in the so, shade, but, you know, you're going to want to be in the shade too. So. Also, don't hit the cactuses on the side either. So. so it seems that it's very similar to Buggy Boy, which was yeah. a game on the Amiga. Or Buggy Boy is very similar to this. That's uh, yeah, because I don't think the Amiga was even out when this came out. Nope. <laughs> Considering the Amiga was the Buggy Boys released way after this, I would say Buggy Boy was probably <laughs> similar to this. Okay, I dare you to tell that to an Amiga fan. <laughs> <laughs> Let the flames begin. Hey, Nick. Hey, Nick. <laughs> Buggy Boy is a uh, remake of this. <laughs> By the way, uh, Michael um, Zweifel, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly, he says, love this game. Desert Rider, love it. So he's looking forward to the Game Down Challenge. Well, we better see you on the uh, list of uh, participants, and you can show up on uh, Thursday night to play the game live with us. Show us how it's done. At 8 p.m. Eastern time. Eastern U.S. time. (laughs) 
I'll right. go do some trash talking over on the uh, Amigos Discord. So we'll get. Yeah, I do that every once in a while too. Go go <laughs> over there and, and mention on in uh, one of the channels we're gonna play, that uh... we're going to play the original, not that knockoff weak buggy boy. <laughs> we're going to play the uh, game that uh, the Amiga ripped off for Buggy Boy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll have to right. do that at Boat Fest too, Ken. Yep. <laughs> Have to get a uh, Coco down there with us and put this game. Oh no, on Aaron's and... already said that he's going to be bringing his. So okay, <laughs> we just got to bring uh, an SD card or something with the the proper stuff on it. If he, in case he doesn't have it. Yep. Okay. Well, thanks uh, for the game updates. Uh, that that's going to be a fun one. I, I I've actually you picked three good games in a row. I think honestly. I'm sorry. <laughs> which which definitely makes up for the previous month, but uh... <laughs> just wait till March. Mm. <laughs> I'm waiting for your month of uh, basic extravaganza games. That's the ones I'm waiting for. Ooh. Basic MC10 games. <laughs> That's pretty well most of them, isn't it? <laughs> yep. Don't <laughs> <laughs> oh, mind you, Jim's been using that compiler lately, so he's been getting some pretty good good stuff out of that. Okay, so I think I'm going to go through the announcement of shows coming up, including one that's running this very weekend. Um, and I did see in the chat, there is a person in the chat that is going to be attending it and has already left for it. it might actually be there already. So hopefully we'll get some pictures and stuff out of him later. Um, but I'll go through those, then we'll have a commercial break, and I'll come back and we'll polish off the news as quick as I can. So we'll switch over first to upcoming trade shows. Yeah. Don't forget the one that's go happening today. Yeah, that should be the first one up. I think if you're seeing Vintage Computer Festival SoCal, uh, it's not the one I was talking about, but that'll work. Oh, which one are you talking about? Um, the hackathon at the uh, Kennett uh, Classic. Computer museum. I had no idea about oh, that. Yeah, one. that. You guys, look, you want to talk about that first, then before I get into all mine. I don't know anything about it, so I just know that they have them on occasion, um, every month or a couple months. Um, and where is that? It's in uh, Kennett Square, PA, about uh, a forty-five minute drive west of uh, Philadelphia. Okay, and that's just a general hardware hackers type thing, or anything they you basically bring whatever you want to fix or needs to be fixed and uh they uh rent out a large uh warehouse type building across the street from the uh from the uh museum and uh people uh fix and repair it okay um give me one second i'll give you the uh link so you can show it I thought this was interesting. Uh, they have a, a, something you've added to the SoCal stuff that's on sale, and here's a, a Coco. Coco 2, with, possibly with a T1 VDG. There's the link in the uh, chat. Okay, find it here. Yeah. 
Pinnit Classic Hackathon Workshop. Okay. Probably kind of short notice now, but <laughs> it might be open longer than us. I had mentioned it before, but I should have uh, been because uh, I it snuck up on me because I wanted to go and I just realized yesterday, hey, it's tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, I think I remember we had did mention this like I don't know, half a year ago or something because it's a it's a it's a fairly regular thing, right? It's not an annual thing. It's yeah, every two three months they have them. Okay. Yeah, if you can re uh, remind me a bit ahead of time for the next one, I'll, I'll make sure I include it. All right. So there's that going on in Pennsylvania today. Uh, SoCal is going on today and tomorrow still. Uh, so you still have time to make it to that. But there's, uh, there's seminars, there's stuff for sale. It's a basically they're bringing back uh, VCF and SoCal. And I think the people that are running it, this is the first one they've actually hosted. So it's, uh, you know, go show your support if you can. I know Wayne Campbell was going to try to make it. Uh, actually, he got to the point of buying tickets for it, but he couldn't get a ride down there as far as I know. So I don't think he's going to be able to make it unless he arranges something tonight to go tomorrow. But yeah, there's seminars and stuff here. Um, Ter Thomas Terry Holmes, the guy who created FujiNet, is actually doing a, a speech on that. And I think he was going to mention the Cocoa Port because that's actually actively being developed right now. So there's some good stuff to see. And there's at least two exhibitors I know we're going to have Cocoa-based displays, or at least Cocoa's involved in the displays as well. So hey, for those of you that are in the Southern California that actually would be able to get a chance to go down, it's in Orange, California, today and tomorrow. And uh, it's at the Hotel Fair Events Center. And hopefully this becomes an annual thing and it's quite successful. My cat just dumps stuff all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, next up after that is one that is hoping to become a VCF once again. And this is the, um, it's currently called the Interim Computer Festival, March 23rd to 24th at Intraspace, which is at 3100 Airport Way South in Seattle, Washington. They've actually got some speakers and schedules all up here now. You can hit their website. And of course, you can get the uh, links to all these in the show notes, which I did finally remember to upload uh, a couple of minutes ago. So it's on the Discord for those of you that want it. And, uh, yeah, there's a whole bunch of information on their site now, too. This is hopefully going to become a full-blown VCF again because it kind of got shut down uh, because of the pandemic and stuff. So they're trying to bring it back. Mm -hmm. What was that, Mark? COVID got shut down for COVID. Yeah. Next up after that, we have the Indie Classic Computer and Gaming Expo, April 13th to 14th in Indianapolis, Indiana at Crown Plaza. Uh, this is uh, hosted by, amongst others, Randy Kindig of the Floppy Days podcast. He also did the Antic podcast for the Atari 8-Bits. And he was a guest on our show as an interviewee, too. And he's got a fair bit of history with the TRCDs as well. And uh, we did show some pictures and stuff from last year's, and it looked like a lot of fun. So you can definitely check that one out if you're in the Indianapolis area in April. Next up after that, of course, is the 32nd annual last Chicago Cocoa Fest, which Grant gave us a bit of an update there about uh, getting some uh, tables in a separate room as opposed to being out in the hallway where you might have to haul your stuff just to make sure it doesn't get lifted on you. Um, regular tables are all sold out. Uh, one of the tables that is out in the hall is already sold too. So now we've got these extra ones possibly in that extra room. Um, definitely you want to come out there because as we showed at the beginning of the show, the Deluxe Color Computer will be making a show at the place, as well as a bunch of other things we haven't even mentioned yet um, that were picked up from Robert Kilgus. So there's a lot of cool stuff to be able to see, a lot of unique things to see. And uh, we hope to see you there. 
And uh, there's the current list. So you can see that every table in the main hall is gone. One of the tables in the hallway is already gone there too. And then as Grant mentioned, there's an update of uh, possibly getting a second room as well as the main hall. Hey, there's my table. <laughs> and admission is free. If you're uh, an exhibitor, then it's, I think, $30 a table for the tables that are still remaining. So uh, next up after that, June 14th to 16th in social event space in Hurricane West Virginia is Boat Fest, the annual gaming uh both for gaming consoles and uh, home computers and uh, pinball machines, all kinds of stuff cross platform all over the place. And uh, Ken and I had a good time in it last time We're going again this year. Uh, Frank of retro rewind is one of the official sponsors, just as he is with the Coco fest. So you can actually get repairs and stuff done there too. And upgrades. He'll be selling Coco STCs, et cetera. Six or nine upgrades. If you want them to, that's always a fun time. It's not too far away from the previous one. Uh, we're going to be trying uh, Boat's Wife at open up a new restaurant, Thai Fusion, this past year. And actually, I think we're going to be all gathering for dinner there so we could be able to try some of the cuisine that uh, he's been enjoying ever since he got married. So, nice. Next, uh, or next up on the list, but the exact same weekend as Boat Fest is VCF uh, Southwest. Uh, this is in the Fort Worth, Dallas area, of course, the home of Tandy. And uh, they're actually having a Tandy assembly meetup on one of the nights there so that uh, they have a couple of separate little you know, meetups of uh, people with the same interest. Um, there's also speakers there, including Jeff Wires of Chronological Gaming. He's going to be talking about his uh, channel where he's covering every single video game ever made in chronological order, which I've been helping him on the Cocoa side of things with. Uh, I will mention to Jeff, his uh, channel, he's uh, took a bit of a hiatus for a little bit of time there last week. He's come back and it was getting to be too much to research to do an hour show five days a week, you know, and plus he's got a newborn, et cetera. So he's actually cut the show down to half an hour. So you won't, don't, don't expect any more one hour shows um, at this point, but it's still a half hour show every weekday. So it's still a lot of fun. He, he's interactive with the chat. I've seen a lot of cool things. I'll be covering one in the game on news here a little bit later too. Um, about a, a, a Coco, another Coco first uh, out of the entire uh, video game industry type thing. But uh, well, you'll have to wait till I get to that part before I tell you what it is. And the last one after that is Tandy Assembly, September 27th, 29th in Springfield, Ohio at the Courtyard by Merritt Springfield. And I think they haven't got the speakers and stuff up in there yet because it's, you know, fairways off yet still. Uh, but that one's already, you know, the hotels are ready to go. Uh, the blocks are already reserved. You can actually start booking hotel rooms there. And uh, yeah, so that's that's the shows we've got currently lined up for now. So far, and if uh, Supi or anybody else remember some other ones I should be putting on this list, please let me know in the Discord. And that's it for the show. So I think we should take one more commercial break before I hit the news and the game on news. Okay. Hi, I'm John. And I'm Aaron of The Coco Show. And you're watching or listening to The Coco Nation, the live and interactive talk show featuring the Tandy Color Computer and its cousins. All hail the Coco Nation. Om. 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 In a world where RGB produces black and white video, one cable can make a difference. Switcheroo. Coco3SCARTCABLE.COM
G'day from the land down under, where toilets flush backwards and thongs are a respectable form of casual footwear. I am Nick Morentes and I have been developing games for the Coco for over 35 years. Welcome to the Coco Nation, the interactive live video talk show for all enthusiasts of the Coco family of computers. Hi, I'm Al Curtis Boyle, and I'm Ken Waters of Canadian Retro Things, and you're watching The Coco Nation Show. Only the bravest souls enter. Only the most cunning return. Defeat innumerable monsters to ransom the king's scepter stolen by the evil wizard. Your sword, shield, and wits are your only allies. Pray you find a magical inn as your only respite in the forest of doom. For the tiny color computer one, two, and three. November 2017, if you dare. When you want the latest in TRS-80, Tandy, Dragon, MC-10, and all of their hardware cousins, no matter what it takes, or where news breaks, from around the world, to your nation, News with L. Curtis Boyle. Okay, I'm, I'm just going to lump together the game on news and the regular news here into one big long sequence just because we know Mark has to get going here. So, start off with the game on news. So, first of all, the CPR, CRPG Addict website which covers a lot of role-playing games, uh, covered another Kogel one here called Scepter of Kazurgla. I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that correctly. <clears throat> and, um, I don't think uh, it's meant to be pronounced correctly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> which actually did have a sequel, which unfortunately is one of those lost titles that nobody's been able to find, including the original author, because I have been in contact with him. Um, but I will say he's not too impressed with the game. <clears throat> I was. It, it's not a high-end game, um, to be honest. Yeah, uh, and he does a very thorough review of it. I don't think it's quite as bad as he says, considering what else was available in the Coco back in, you know, 82 when this came out. Um, but it's a fairly simple one. Um, the one thing that I found a little bit innovative, it, it creates these little random uh, mazes for each level. And your goal is to get across from the left side to the right side to get out the door. And there's like monsters and treasures and stuff you can get in between. But on the later levels, it actually gets complicated enough where the walls are actually blocked. And you actually have to attack the walls to break a hole through them to get through to the other side, which I thought was kind of a neat little thing. He wasn't too impressed with it, though. <laughs> but uh, he, he, like the other guy that does all of the war games, do very, very thorough reviews. And they rate them against each other across all platforms and what else was available at the time. They also rate it as, you know, is this a playable game for the modern gate type gamer? And most of the time, these older games are not. Um, they're very much a you know a product of their time type thing. 
But uh, interesting review of it. And this is a game that is actually uh, one of the few I had to my site semi recently. Here's a, an ad showing the actual sequel, Conquest of Kurokula. <laughs> and uh, that's the one we haven't been able to find yet. And then he has uh, some other ones that reviewed at the same time here on other platforms as well that have nothing to do with Xergo. But if you're into role playing games, I would definitely check out this guy's site. He's got a lot of cool stuff in there. He's covered other Koga games in the past. And uh, that's a new one here that was just released this last week. Next up to that, we have a couple of games from Jim Jerry. Um, the first one is called Swordsman, originally by H. Walwyn in 1983. <clears throat> and this was originally released for the Coco and the Dragon 32, actually. So he's backported it to the MC-10. And that's, uh, of course, being keyboard controlled. I don't think he's got a joystick uh, version of this for the MC-10. They does have that joystick adapter. He's adapted a few of his games, too. And I'll just fast forward a little bit to the actual gameplay part. You can see you're kind of you're you're the player in the middle that's you know kind of a swordsman, and then you've got different creatures that come up to you from the right, kind of scrolling across, and you have to attack them at the exact right time to kill them, or they kill you. And the first game he played on this little video here, he's he's dying a lot. So I'll fast forward to when he gets a little bit better at it. And you got different monsters too, and they have stupid names like here's their gangrene goat coming after you. And, I thought it was a pretty interesting mix, though, because he mixes some of the semi-graphics characters as well, some of the text characters, to make an animated guy that swings a sword and stuff, or animated you know, snakes. Interesting take on the bent legs and so forth. I haven't really seen that. Yeah, I, I thought it was pretty pretty cool. I've not, I've never seen this. The original Coco and Dragon version of this, I've never seen before. So, given the limitations of a you know a thirty-two by sixteen screen, it's he's done a pretty good it's job of it. Rocking thing. And the guy's like actually arches his, his arm back the to do the stab of the banker. sword and everything. <laughs> Here's a dandruffed bear. You know, like some of the names. I love these. I love these names. <laughs> yes. I absolutely love these names. Yeah. Gangrene goat, uh, dandruffed the, bear. The dandruff bear is The hard. pickled albatross. <laughs> <laughs> it's worth playing the game just for the names, I think, honestly. Yeah, tell me about it. But the gameplay itself uh, looks it looks pretty good. This is one I may have to give it a shot. Here's one for your uh, game on challenge, there, Ken. I have no idea how the point system works either. A North Sea boil, okay. <laughs> anyway, a pretty interesting one. I've not never seen that one before. I wonder if the names are randomly generated. I bet they are. It's a, the two yeah, adjective I, noun thing that. It, yeah. it could be, or he, it looks like he sometimes match like a gangrene goat, both are G's, so maybe he's got specific lists. I never looked at the listing to find out. And then he did another RPG-style game here called The Wizard's Tower, originally by C Stephen C. Mitchell in 1982. And this was also originally on the Coco, and another one I don't remember seeing. And this is a bit more of a traditional uh, style. And it reminds me a little bit of Quest by Aardvark, to be honest. So you get to pick your character. I'll just fast forward a bit to the actual gameplay here. And you get to buy your your items. But basically, it draws this little map, and then it's got some real-time movement of creatures and stuff, and then you can wander into towns and castles and battle creatures or try to run away, etc. So it's a bit more of a traditional RPG than, say, the previous one. The previous one's more of a, almost like a side-scrolling fighter, almost, in a weird way. But those of you, those of you who've played Quest, the, the screen layout even looks somewhat similar, um, except that they have the hard, you know, black line on the bottom, uh, reserved for your extra commands on the bottom, whereas Quest actually had a river in the middle that you had to eventually, you know, 
get equipment enough to cross it. So a couple of good cocoa ports to the MC-10 there by Jim. Uh, next up, Chronological Gaming uh, covered this one Coco game still in September of 1982. And uh, this is the one that surprised me uh, that Tandy's Tennis Cart is the first tennis game in that isn't a simple Pong game style that appeared on any home computer, period. Uh, there were ones for game consoles. There was, you know, Intellivision had some, Atari 2600 had some. I think the ColecoVision might even by this point, some of the other ones, maybe the Fairchild or something did. So there were some video game consoles that had tennis games along this line, but none of the other computers did. The Apple II, the Atari 8-bits, this was the first one on all of the home computers, which is quite a surprise to me. Now, it's not like the, you know, highest end game in the world. At least it has a couple of options for one or two players and you got simple controls or hard controls or advanced controls. The simple one is basically as long as your guy's near the ball, it'll hit it back. And the other one, you have to actually hit the button. There's a little bit of English you can do. If you hit it coming from left to right, it'll go off to the left, I think it is, and then vice versa. So you can kind of, depending on how fast you can get to the where the ball is and then move while you're hitting it, you can kind of steer the ball a little bit too. The computer player is pretty good, so it's not exactly that enticing to play it with a, the computer because it's a bit too predictable. It's a lot more fun with two players simultaneous. So I'd highly recommend that. And for those of you who have not seen the game, I'm sure most of you have, but I'll play a little bit. It's it's, it's a low res. It runs in 4K RAM on a cart, so don't expect miracles. Region ...at some time in September 1982. So here we go. Our screen gives us one player versus computer, which is what I'm... Dead here. ...and hit the A button to smack. Oh, it's really fast on expert mode. All I did in my play test was beginner. Yeah, it is really, really quick. I have to get in the game. Let's even go to like the shadow of the ball so you can tell what the height of the ball is and stuff. It's a, it's a fairly well done one. Next up, uh, Tri-Cup 1974, which is Retro Rick, I believe. Um, he's done a couple of videos this, this past week, and he hasn't done videos for a couple months before that. So one was a playthrough of King Tut, and as far as I know, out of everybody that's played King Tut so far, I think he's the only one that's actually finish the fifth level where it wraps back to the first. So he's actually got a demo a video there, a full playthrough of levels one through five. Um, 23 minutes long, so I'm not going to do it. And they also did a long play of his game, Ladder Man 2, which is wow. one of the better basic games I've seen recently. Sorry, what was that? Oh, okay. I, I just hear that. <laughs> yeah, it sounded like Missy. Oh, okay. I thought it was a question I was talking over. Um, so he's got a couple of these longer videos. He's his Ladder Man 2, uh, which we have covered, I think, a year or two ago, is a very well done basic game. In fact, it almost looks like a a, a low level assembly game. The uh, the gameplay is quite good. He's got good animations. He's got Hello. animated fire in the background. Hey, um, all right. Oh, I think a... I'm starting to get the pushes now. Nick, so, Nick you're um, on. Can you mute Nick? It's eight thirty now. Do you want to come around? Mark nine nine thirty. Can come around as soon as I can. The kids, you know, my name. There we go. There. I didn't want a private conversation going over there. <clears throat> so anyway, Edric did a couple of these long play videos. Now, the one unfortunate thing is that he's using a really version, old version of MAME, and the screen aspect ratio is completely wrong when you record videos with that old version of MAME. So everything's stretched twice as wide as it should be. And I'll just play a little bit of the King Tut here just so you can kind of see what I'm talking about. I hope you can update it, but you can see how stretched that is. Probably a bit loud. Let me lower that a bit here. 
And here's King Tut for those of you who have not actually seen it yet because you haven't joined the Game On Challenge, and why haven't you? I think if I remember, he's actually got checkpoints so you can actually see the different levels and stuff too, so. I don't know, I like Ken Waters here. I found it a quite a fun game, so. Hopefully you guys will give it a shot. It does take a bit of time to get used to, but the uh, the candle unlighting where the screen goes green the last 10 seconds and then you get this really restricted area where you can just see your immediate surroundings and you have to kind of blindly get through it. it actually, is, it's fairly innovative. I haven't seen another game that quite does that type of thing for this type of a game. Uh, and it's actually quite a lot of fun once you get used to it. Next up, this is an update to a story we covered a while ago. So this guy at elksoft.com um, he's done a version of Demon Attack called Demon Attack X, and this is based on the Coco version of Demon Attack, which is his favorite. So out of the, the Ataris and C64s and others that had it, this was his favorite version, and he started uh, updating it for Windows, basically. And this latest one, update here has added a few things, including a few things that were never in the original, which are actually sound kind of cool, and he's got a description of it down here. Now, unfortunately, he didn't demonstrate some of the best oh. fe new features oh. here Hi. on the... Video, so unfortunately, I'm not going to bother playing the video because basically it's just playing Demon Attack like we're used to saying. But he's added two players simultaneous mode, and the demons now take two hits to kill. So you have two players playing at the same time on the same screen, both shooting demons, and the demons now take two hits. That sounds like fun. Uh, that I definitely would try, want to try. He's got a new AGA color mode with 96 possible color combinations. So you can actually get outside of just the artifact colors. Um, he's also got a high score table with names of up to 100 players, uh, new tracker-based musical scores. There's a hidden mode added and a bunch of other things, too. He includes a source code, and he does not charge for this. It's a free download on his HIO page. So if you're into Demon Attack on the Coco, the Coco version specifically, originally by Magic and sold by Tandy, and you want to try a, a, a much-enhanced version of it on a modern machine, I would definitely go check this out. It looks like a lot of fun. Next up, uh, we've talked about the 10-liner uh, basic programming contest for 2024 previously. And uh, here's one of the first entries that actually involves a Coco. So Marco Spedaletti, hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, has released uh, Falling Balls for the 10-liner contest, and he's using the Extreme 56. Now, I will mention, I don't have any video of this yet. I just got screenshots, and this actually runs on multiple machines. It runs on Atari 8-bits as well, and I think the CPC or the Amstrad or something like that, I think he's also got a version. But this is using UG Basic. Now, those of you that are involved in the Cocoa Discord have probably seen the UG Basic channel. And this is a, a, a compiler basic that is meant to be cross-compiled from modern machines to older machines. And uh, adds a whole bunch of stuff. Like, it's a really advanced basic, you know, sprites and all kinds of stuff in there. And uh, he wrote it in that UG Basic. So this entire game fits into 10 lines and uh, is available on multiple machines. And he's actually got some screenshots of that on his page. Here's his little uh, title card for it. Um, and this will be being voted on for, you know, the best 10-liner in the particular category he's in. So I'm kind of curious to see if this is going to win or not, because it's kind of different, you know, using a cross-platform uh, compiler. But here's uh, the HIO page. And once again, you can get the uh, download link for this directly from the show notes that are already up on the Discord. But you can see this. Here's the Atari 8-bit version here. And he's also, okay, he's got a list here also on the Amstrad CPC 664. So the Atari 8 bits, 400, 800 XL, XE, and also the Coco 1 and 2. So here's the Atari version. And then here's the P Mode 3 Coco version. And to fit a game like this with text and everything else on a graphic screen, normally you would never be able to do that in 10 lines of basic. But 
because using the UG, UG basic compiler, which has a lot of this functionality built into its basic commands, you can technically write the game in 10 lines. So, and you actually go take a look at the actual source code if you want to. I won't cover it here because we're kind of in a bit of a hurry here, but uh, looks good. I haven't had a chance to try this. I was wondering if anybody in the panel has had a chance to try this since it was announced a few days ago. No, no, like the concept. <clears throat> do it. Yeah. yeah, but for ten lines of basic, I'm really curious to see how involved the gameplay and stuff is. So this is definitely one I do want to try. Hopefully, I'll get some time this week. This is the whole thing of basic that runs on a modern computer can do a lot more with the Cocoa hardware than a basic that runs on the Cocoa could do. So well, this this I've runs on a Cocoa. This, this actually does I, run a Cocoa. I understand it runs on a Cocoa, but the basic. Yeah, the basic's a whole other level, and it basically compiles down to assembly. Right, and the thing that it comes up with will run on a Cocoa, which is much more than any basic that the Cocoa hosted could yeah. do. So I'd like to I see know Erico and Eric Canales have both been playing with UG Basic quite a bit, and they've been pretty darn impressed. And this is still a work in progress. So he's still adding stuff and fixing bugs. He's adding a ton of Cocoa 3 support right now um, for the higher graphics modes and you know controlling the gimme and double speed and interrupts and everything else. So um, it's definitely making a lot of progress. It's pr a pretty cool project, just UG basic by itself. But I, I like seeing all these, you know, 10 line basic competitions too, and see what they can pull which, off of it. Which means like micro basic or something, right? The U being micro, not actually yeah, a yeah. U. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Micro graphics basic, I think is what it technically stands for, though. Somebody I'm sure can correct me if I'm wrong. If Alan Murphy's still on the call, I think he's actually fiddled with this a little bit too. I don't know. Alan, do you have you played with this much? Or are you even at your mic? <laughs> oh, just fighting with Zoom. Yeah, it's micro game basic. Yeah. And have you played with uh, the latest iterations of it much recently? Uh, no, I haven't. Okay. Somebody found a deluxe Coco. <laughs> yeah, right. It's yeah, that has been kind of distracting, <laughs> I have to admit. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's it for the game on news, but definitely go check this out. I'd like to see if, if anybody of you guys have time over the next week, if you guys can download. Like I said, this is a free game and it's entered in the contest. Um maybe uh if you record a quick little video of the gameplay or even just come on the, you know, the show and actually talk about it a little bit, I'd love to to get a review of it from somebody. Okay, so that covers the game on news, and so now we'll get into the regular news. We'll find the right one. There we are. Okay, so TRS-80 Computer Programming on YouTube released a couple of videos this week. Uh, the first one is actually does a bit of a break from doing some of the game developments we're doing Coco Ultimate and stuff recently. So this is basically just... Uh, how parentheses work with math operations. I'm not going to play that because it's a rather dry subject to play on a live stream, but uh, kind of explains, you know, as an example, uh, uh, the title here is why A minus parentheses B plus C parentheses equals A minus B minus C. So basically it's just teaching how the order of operations and stuff in math work. And that definitely comes in handy you know, if you're programming basic or any any language for that matter. Because uh, that actually makes a pretty huge difference if you put those parentheses in different spots. Can I jump in to say Basic 09 will change your code for you if you do it wrong? 
Yeah, if, yeah it actually it, does some syntax checking it, and fixing it, on yes, its own. And as it will change your parentheses around and get rid of the superfluous ones and do things like you just saw in that title. Yep. And you'll you'll wonder why your code changed that way. It's because Basic 9 is smarter than you. And Wayne Campbell's DCOM decompiler, uh, the Basic 9 decompiler, actually does the opposite. It, it it goes for broke and puts in parentheses all over the place just to make darn sure that order of operations is exactly as it was disassembled. Um, but you can then fix that up afterwards and kind of shrink your code a little bit because you won't need as many parentheses. But uh, better safe than sorry, definitely, in that case. And the second one is he did a Coco Ultimate sound test. Now, because he's doing strictly basic, this is using play commands. I can imagine what he could do with the deluxe Coco here with the AY chip and that new noise command and stuff. But he's doing some high-pitched things, you know, to you know simulate a sword hit or something. So I'll just play a brief little clip. And this is something I always had fun programming basic games back in the 80s myself, is that the play command with a tempo of 255, and if you you know vary the octaves and vary the volume settings, you could actually get some pretty decent sound effects out of the play command. Because uh, basically it's jamming the notes together even faster than the 60 hertz interrupt does. So uh, you definitely could get some pretty interesting effects. Um, Galactic Trek, which is a game published in Color Computer News Magazine in 82, actually made some pretty good sound effects with uh, a lot of volume swells and stuff too that were pretty cool. Uh, George Jansen has released the uh, final lesson concerning his 128 stars uh, demo for the Coco 3. And this is an assembly language series for the Coco 3 specifically. So we've got multiple ones. Henry's putting one on, Coco Town's putting another one on, and we've got some others in existence from Steve Bjork and others that show you how to do Coco 1 and 2 specifically stuff, but there hasn't been really a lot for teaching you how to do Coco 3 stuff. Like how do you handle an MMU? How do you handle pallet registers and all that kind of stuff? And George has kind of picked up the torch and that has been doing a series. And uh, his last version here, which is the kind of the, like the final version of 128 stars, he kind of explains, you know, how the code works, how the uh, parameter options work, because you can actually modify stuff on the fly as it's running uh, to see how it uh, works. And I'll just play a little bit of that so you guys can see what he's, actually programming it for at the top we got speed and we've got these dashes i'm calling that speedometer and that's the speed we're going to if i hit f we'll add one so we add one to it and it goes faster if i hit s to slow it down we'll erase one of them and go to it. so that's what we're talking about in this uh speed line okay and he's got it so you can actually scroll the stars in all four basic directions. You can speed up and slow them down. And he's got the complete source code. And once again, you can get the source code on his channel on our Discord here so you don't have to type it all in yourself. Um, I personally find that if you type it in yourself, it tends to stick in your head better so you'll actually learn more. But, you know, if you're pressed for time. Uh, next up, Retro Rewind announced this past week that they are actually putting an ANSI BBS online um, that you can log into both from a web interface or you can use an ANSI compatible terminal program and log in through, you know, the, the Telnet clients, like uh, what is it? The design modem it's called and some other things do. And Ron DelVoe, I was going to ask if you're still here. Um, you've actually fiddled a lot more with these terminal programs than I have, as far as logging into modern, you know, BBSs over the net using both uh NetMate by Roger Taylor and Twilight Terminal by Sockmaster. And I had mentioned that this one's available now too. Yeah. Uh, Ron, did you get a chance to try out and see how yeah. this looked on? Yeah, it's just pretty much like the other ones. Um, easy to get in, navigate. They had to set my um, screen uh, 
width. Um, and then next time I went in, I had to do it again. It doesn't stick. I don't know why, but. Did you create um, an account or did you just log in? Yeah. Create an account. Uh, okay. I, I think you, you have a chance to be a guest. Because I, did, I didn't notice here on the bottom, like the screenshot, he's actually got, it's a Zeus BBS. It's running on Amiga 4000, but he's actually got an Amiga C64 Cocoa section here. So is that like yeah. stuff for sale I, or is that his uh, I didn't message go and look at it. I just got in and saw what it was like and scrolled around and. And I was actually kind of working on um, the version of uh, NetMate that uh, Roger Taylor gave me. So I wasn't the kind of, I was exploring at the same time and trying to use the features of the NetMate program. Okay. So, but it, it's nice. Uh, actually, anything, you know, these days, there's not a whole lot to choose from. I mean, it isn't like there's thousands. <laughs> there's maybe mm -hmm. 50 that, or so, it seems like. Does that say hysteria? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Ron, if we're going to do a Ron Ron's Garage uh, segment next week, though, if you maybe want to demonstrate this, that'd be kind of cool to see it. Yeah, I could nice. show up, yeah. you know, a uh, screen capture and do it. Yeah, do it live. Nothing yeah. ever goes wrong when we do it live. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Plus, that'd I be have... kind of cool to see Frank. You can actually see what it looks like from the Coco logging yeah, into his Mega Four Thousand. Hold the camera <clears throat> onto the Coco. Screen because uh, I I don't know of a way to do it with the emulator yet. I've never tried it that way. Okay. Have Have you guys gone online using NetMate on the? Uh... I wish David Ladd was here because I'm pretty sure he has. But has he? I, I'm assuming some people might have on that. Yeah, panel. I haven't even tried because it's just complicated enough doing it the other way. You know, I I, I use um I I'm I'm old school. I use what I've used over the years, and it's uh it's called S Term 2.0. And I run that on an older um, PC laptop and uh, uses COM4. And I can um, load in the um, PBS from the software on the um, PC, or I can do it from the computer screen by, you know, saying Telnet address and, you know, 23 or whatever. Yeah. For the, uh, so, you know, it's good. Okay. Yeah, because I know uh, some of the people in, in in the Discord with Frank on his channel on the Amigas Discord actually posted some screenshots of like looking at this yeah. from, say, another Amiga or a PC or an Apple II GS. And I really wanted to do some comparison shots. So what what is that? What are what we is doing what? there? That's not a Cocoa, right? No, no. This is just uh, literally the web page. Oh. Yeah, that's another thing. You can you can do Telnet on your your PC, right? Yeah, but we all know what PC, you know, how they display ANSI graphics. That's, mm -hmm. I, I want to see what it looks like on a Cocoa. Sure. <laughs> right. I do, I might have some screenshots on the BBS, uh, you know, um, Cocoa BBS. It's a uh, another one of those groups that, of the thousands I have. <laughs> yeah. That you could go look at stuff. Well, like I said, the, the reason I want to see if you or somebody else can get some screenshots of this is just to show Frank what his board, his BBS looks like from okay. a Cocoa, since he actually sells Cocoa stuff. It'd be kind of cool. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll, mm. I'll put something up. Okay. Cool. Thanks. Yep. Next up, uh, this is kind of an ad. Not really. Um, we've talked about it a bit before. So Blue SCSI is basically a hardware uh, replacement for doing basically an SSD style drive on a SCSI interface. Now, before the Burke and Burke came out and dropped the prices of hard drives in the Cocoa pretty drastically from anything previous to it, the most popular interfaces we had was SASE and SCSI, SCSI being much more advanced. 
In fact, SCSI uh, Canton Electronics actually had a version of it. You could run two Cocos on one hard drive, which they demonstrated at Rainbow Fest, which was awesome. Um, now, hard drives, like SCSI hard drives are old. They're not really manufactured anymore, so basically they're dying. But I know some people in the code community really like the SCSI controllers because SCSI was quite advanced as far as a hard drive interface. And you could handle like much more drives on it than, say, you know, a PC style, because a PC style wants you maximum two drives per controller, whereas a SCSI could have up to seven or something like that. So uh, JCM, Joe's Computer Museum, um, is one of the people that uh, manufactures and sells the blue SCSI, which is basically kind of like the Coco STC of SCSI. And I know Joel Evie on the MM1 group and Facebook managed to back up his old SCSI hard drive from his MM1, which was starting to fail, onto a blue SCSI. Now he's running completely on the blue SCSI. He's not touching the, the original hard drive at all anymore. And I know David Ladd is doing this as well. I was wondering, on the mm -hmm. panel or in the chat, how many of you actually out there still have SCSI-based controllers, whether it's a Disk Master or a Canton or Disto or whatever, um, that <laughs> might be interested in getting this to actually run the S... SD card style things as your SCSI and still use your old SCSI controller and uh, would be interested in something like this. I have a Delmar 5 I've parked for time. I think I'm going to need this before I spin up the hard drive again. Okay, so that's a SCSI based system too then? Yeah, yeah. It's it's a, the Delmar was a I mean, I know what it is because it's a System 4 and the System 5 and ran OSK, but for the viewers that don't aren't familiar with it. Right, and I can't remember. Hazelwood. Uh, made the underlying computer and it's all SCSI based and uh, actually PC style video controller. So it's kind of a weird mix. Yeah. Yeah. It runs OSK and mine worked when it was parked, but I would really hate to waste any more hours on the hard drive as it exists. I technically have all the install floppies. Do I really want to try to install OSK on a Delmar 5? No. So, um, yeah, I'm going to have to buy one of these and figure out how to quickly do a SCSI transfer from the spinny drive to this thing. I mean, theoretically, you just plug this in as a second drive. I'm assuming it has the same jumper well, type thing SCSI would have, and then you just copy, right? I'm thinking, yeah, on a modern computer, you could run this and the old drive on a SCSI and do the transfer reliably with new hardware. Oh, well, you think your SCSI controller itself is starting to fail, not just the drive? Well, no, I just I don't want to put any hours on the drive faffing around. I want to, uh, and you know, try to change OSK to have a second SCSI drive and do the transfer. Well, well didn't this but, thing emulate a host for the purposes of transfer? Well, it, I, I think it's a SCSI drive itself. So I could use right. a modern machine with my old SCSI drive and this thing and do the copy and then shove it in my Delmar, and hopefully that goes. And I haven't done any unneeded stress or strain. Okay. You know, and I still have the floppies. I could probably do a real adventure, but I'm getting old. And I don't now, Joe, that. Joel was definitely much preferring using the, the, the SD card solution here. He, he did that, and he got it done basically in one night. He was done. He was up and running. And now you're reliable, and you've got copies of your hard drive as fast as you want to copy that SD card. Tom so, Eric Gunderson in the chat is saying he thinks the latest Blue SCSI has direct backup if you connect an HD. Ooh, That'd be pretty cool if that, yeah, that works. Like, sir. What, like what I was mentioning, that it emulated a host. Oh, okay. I'm going to buy one of them. 
Anyway, I, I'd be really curious if anybody still has SCSI controllers for Cocos and see if uh, this type of thing, because this is already running on Apple IIs and some other Macs and other things too that have the older style SCSI, you know, the original SCSI, not ultra wide or all the other stuff that happened later on. But uh, for those of you who have SCSI controllers, and like I said, the controllers were quite advanced. I mean, ID is roughly based on the protocol that SCSI uses, but it's much more primitive. Like you can't share hosts and stuff like that. So you could do some pretty powerful things with this. Um, just having a SCSI control. And I know we had various, uh, Matthew Thompson did the, the, what the heck was his SCSI 4.7 driver for Nitrous 9 and OS 9. It was really, really fast. It had a lot of good buffering techniques and stuff. Uh, there's actually SCSI for reading CD-ROMs too, if I remember correctly. It was done at some point. Yeah, that, that Grazzle thing said uh, you needed certain SCSI CD-ROM drivers to install it. So, <laughs> yeah. case in point. Uh, Anyway, they're, they're not expensive. Joel Evie has already tried it and done his entire M1 backup and is now running his M1 off one of these. So I'd be curious if it maybe has a Cocoa and has a SCSI controller and has a drive that may be dying or, you know, they, they want to back up and then just use the SSD, which is, of course, quieter and faster. I will mention, too, um, Joel Evie has actually released a 3D print model uh, publicly that you can use on the M1 to create a little faceplate for it so that it'll look like a clean drive but it just has a little slot for the sd card as opposed to this big open board sticking out the front of the case so you can get that as well too but uh yeah i just wanted to kind of mention that because i like he he's had a really good uh span of luck using it on his m1 i'm kind of curious if anybody on the coco that it still has scuzzy drives because i'm trying to remember if alan huffman is here i'd ask him because i think that's what he had but some of the stuff like the side quests and the jazz drives and the um What's the predecessor to the Jazz Drive? You know, the 44 meg cartridge style and 88 meg cartridge style side quests. I think most of those in the Cocoa were done using SCSI too, weren't they? Adaptech? Did they have any? Uh, Adaptech just made the controllers and stuff. That's a hardware manufacturer. What would you say, Mark? Zip. Thank you, James Jones. Yeah, Zip Drive. That's what I think Alan had too. Zip drive, and then there was a hundred yes, meg super drives. The LS one twenty. Mark, oh, yeah. your your cat killed your mic. Yeah. In the yeah. early days, didn't they have it so that uh, you it's could take a here. could take a they could take a yeah. um Seagate drive like twenty meg or Seagate forty meg like twenty meg, meg and make it a SCSI. No, those were MFM drives that, yeah. that you're thinking about. I mean, they switched to RLL, and that was supposed to be faster. That, that, yeah, that's MFM. That's like the PC standard. Okay. All right, I was thinking. It's like the Burke and Burke. Yeah, yeah SCSI is not just drives. I mean, SCSI was used for scanners and all kinds of stuff. So, I mean. You name it. Yeah, it was the USB. Of it, the, it stood for small yeah. small computer systems computer interface. System interface, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, they, it covered it. They even had floppy drives on SCSI. Yep. Yeah. I had an LS120 on my Mac. That was SCSI. Well, the, the idea was supposed to be faster, right? All around. Oh, yeah. Well, well not just faster. Not, yeah. It's just a more powerful protocol. You could hook up to eight devices at once, and if you got into ultra-wide and stuff, you get up to 32 all on the same chain with the same controller. I don't know anybody that could afford more than one or two drives back then. Well, that was, yeah. that was why we all had Burke and Burks. Nobody could yeah. afford SCSI. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Even, even the old sassy drives back then, you know, five make for only $1,000, you know. Uh, you still need yeah. a controller yet. Anyway, I'd be curious, uh, because these are fairly cheap, and for people that have other machines, other retro machines that use SCSI, it would be kind of interesting to see if there's a I'll have, the I'll have a report in a few months. 
Okay, cool. Isn't it true, though, even with these other big drives, you're still dealing with a 150K floppy image? No. Oh. If you're in disk basic, yeah. If you're in OS9 and Nitrostein, no. You can go up to a 4 gig drive if you want. Okay. Right. I wonder what OSK can cram into that. Blue Please show us we'll our This is my uh, blue SCSI external. It's vanishing into your background. Put it in front of your face. And of course, nobody in the stream is seeing it because they're seeing me. So let me just stop sharing. <clears throat> okay. It's a Show nice little thing. Spin it. Flip it. This is the external one. It plugs into a back of the Mac. Macintosh. <laughs> yeah. Okay. They're quite nice. Yeah, I've heard good stories from, from Mac people and Joel and a few others too, so... Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, as I was talking to you the other day, I was asking if how many SCSI interfaces were uh, available for the Coco because I wanted to get one so that I could try try it on the Coco. But it seems that people want real money for any SCSI interface for the Coco. Oh yeah. So, Kenton's tasty. Um bring up some dollars though yeah yeah well Can canton still had the most impressive scuzzy demo on a coco i've ever seen it was coco twos is before the coco three came out so this would have been 86 rainbow fest in may and the coco didn't get announced in september and he had two coco twos hooked up to one drive and they're both running simultaneously saving loading files swapping disk images you know from one drive so if you wanted to make a cheap network you could just make right. little swap files on the drive and the two cocos could talk to each other it was pretty impressive actually Okay, back to share. There we go. Okay, this was a, a follow-up. We covered this, I think, last week or the week before, where TGB Chris has got a Network 3 controller from Tandy. Now, this is when they switch from being cassette-based, like the Network and 1 and the 2, which were Coco 1 compatible. And this is where they switched to serial ports. Now, the original Radio Shack catalogs and uh, promotional flyers and stuff for Network 3 did say that the Coco was going to be a client. It would not be able to be a host would be a client for this but that never actually happened tandy never did sell it that way um even though they sold cables and advertised cables and stuff for it and everything else well chris actually went through and reverse engineered how the whole thing worked i'm not gonna play the video because it's 37 minutes but definitely worth your time to watch but he actually gets it working with it. i think he used a model 12 as his host but he actually figured out the protocols and actually wrote some programs and he actually does have them talking to each other over the zero port so now for the first time ever the uh, network three actually is running on a coco and because it's serial-based and not cassette-based, and, we, of course, we hit those problems where the Coco 1's cassette is a little bit different than the Coco 2's and the Coco 3, so they actually, the Network 1 and 2's do not work on a Coco 2 or 3 because of some volume differences or voltages or something. I can't remember the details where. But this, this is just BitBanger serial or Deluxe RS-232 on a Deluxe Coco, perchance. Per um, this actually would work fine. And he's got some more software to write here. He basically just got enough to test it and be able to communicate back and forth between them. But uh, yeah, it's all up and running. So uh, with the Coco is now an actual denizen of the Network 3 controller. And this is, uh, of course, you know, up to 16 serial ports. Now, the BitBanger port, and he explains this in the video, does not have all the lines that are required, which is why you can only make it a client. The host server technically can send out stuff on, I think it's the DSR line to verify if somebody's on the network, on the serial network. 
and the cocoa can't respond to that. So the cocoa basically you just have to keep jamming out numbers until it, it finally registers something. Uh, TJ, you know, Chris actually explains a lot better than I'm trying to do it right now. But basically, uh, the cocoa version was a bit limited. Now, if you actually used an RS-232 pack or deluxe cocoa with an RS-232 chip built in or a Dragon 32 uh, or 364 with a chip built in, I think you probably could make it a full uh, partner in the network and actually run just like a model of 1, 3, 12, 16 could run. So pretty interesting stuff there. But he's got some more follow-ups to do as he gets more software done. Definitely worth watching, though. Next up, uh, Coco Town released Assembly Language Sound Part 3. And uh, this goes through some um, algorithms that Simon has come up with to use the uh, H-Sync as a interrupt to control the sound source with a fairly decent rate. Um, I'm not going to go into the description here. You definitely want to watch this video if you're learning Assembly Language on the Coco. And this part here specifically applies to Coco 1, 2, or 3. Though with double speed, you get a bit more time on your H-Sync. Plus, you can use a gimme timer to be even more precise. Um but he uses the overflow trick here because no, the way that uh, Tandy hooked up the uh, H-Sync is to the IRQ, not the FIRQ, which means there's a lot of overhead of pushing every single register in the stack and pulling them all off in an RTI, which takes a lot of time. So basically, you got about three quarters of the interrupt service routine just taking pushing registers on and off. And then you got you know one quarter of it left to actually do any work. Like you get 13, 14 cycles on a Coco 1 or 2. So he's using the same technique here that Simon Jonasson did in his demo and Rick or sorry Nick used on uh, some of his later games like uh, Jump and Joey and uh, Pipes where you basically just purposely overflow the time span of an H sync so that you're bleeding into the second one then you do the RTI so you get a you know mix a couple of voices together do some other things maybe even some no ops if you have to and basically that means that the CPU is spending 51% of its time servicing sound and 49% doing other things rather than more like a an 80-20 split type thing where it's sucking all the CPU time for sound. And the, my, think my favorite quote he did in here is that uh, he took a look at Simon's code and Simon's got oscillators and other stuff. And he said, oh, I can make this a lot simpler for teaching this you know, type thing. So he wrote a much simpler routine. And he said, yeah, I went through it and I simplified it you know, so much. It's so much easier to understand. The only small problem with it is it doesn't work. And that was probably my favorite quote of the entire <laughs> article. So uh, definitely you can kind of go down the same rabbit hole he did type thing, but uh, it's definitely worthwhile. If you want to learn how sound actually works and how to do background sound on a, you know, a strict timing basis based on our cues on a Coco one and two, this is definitely a good tutorial for you. I definitely highly recommend it. Michael Pitsley, who's the guy we covered last week, and you, know, you can probably see down here, he actually did a couple of BBS logins using both NetMate and Twilight Terminal to compare them. But he actually has now been doing, if you remember from way, way back, he used to do a lot of the educational multimedia titles that Tandy sold, uh, like you know, learning Spanish and all kinds of stuff, where basically you'd have cassettes that would load in programs as they went, but they also had actual audio recorded in between them, and it would actually use the motor on and audio on commands to actually have background speech or music or whatever while it was showing animated graphics and stuff showing whatever you're trying to learn. So what he's done here is he's done a 16-part series on uh, fractions that was done by Dorset. So this is not one that was sold by Tandy. This was sold third-party. Now, there was a few educational publishers back in the day that didn't sell through Tandy. I think Dorset was one, Fosset or Fosset or something like that was another because the cocoa was quite common in classrooms, not in my area, unfortunately, but uh, I, I know some other people definitely did have cocos, including Network 2 control, you know, cocos all linked together. 
And this is that type of series done by a, a company that did not sell through Radio Shack. And this is covers for ages four to eight, going through fractions. And you can see on the screenshots and some of these videos here, uh, they've definitely got graphic animation stuff. They have huge, you know, uh, special character fonts and stuff done to, you know, draw fractions and stuff properly instead of what you just do for basic. So it's all in P mode four. Um, and but this kind of throughout it. Yeah, the speech throughout it. I mean, you can actually listen to the person, the teacher, you know, kind of explaining things while it's drawing the stuff on the screen and illustrating what it's talking about. And it's a 16 part series on it. So he's done that before. Some of these other ones, like we covered the Claude, Clyde Tombaugh discovering Pluto with Clyde's actual voice telling you about him discovering Pluto before he passed away. So that was really cool. But th this is kind of just showing the very, very early, like 1982, 83, uh, what multimedia was. And the Coco was actually at the forefront of that thanks to the way the cassette interface was designed. So definitely, if you, I, I don't know if I'd recommend watching all this unless you want to teach your kid fractions and you can just kind of watch over their shoulder. But uh, I have a, a Coco one that was in school in Rochester, New York. And I think that's where the I got the, um, that, uh, you know, interface that feeds to all the other computers. Oh, the Network 2 or Network 1? Network 2, yeah. Yeah. Well, I could use a refresher. <laughs> Yeah, it's, they're, these are well done. They're actually good educational tools, even even today. Because, I mean, fractions have not really changed, you know, in the last few hundred years. So, Next up, uh, Gwee Major, the person that runs the Color Computer Archive. Um, if you recall, uh, Michael Pitsy, the guy that we just talked about that did these videos here for the FOSS, or for the Dorset uh, Educational Series, <clears throat> he's also the person that went through all the Orchestra 90 disc images. There's 78 of them in the archive and actually created an index list of what every song on every disc and where to find them is. So Graham actually went in here and he's actually modified the Orchestra 90 color computer software to use the discon routines instead of the hard coded disc access it did before, which meant it could only run on real floppies. Um, now it's compatible with DriveWire, the Drive Pack by Roger Taylor and the Coco SDCs. And you can actually download the new uh, software that Graham has created and he's actually got the index file built into it as well. So you can actually, you know, look up what disc and, you know, file if you're looking for a particular song is. And that's now available on the Color Computer Archive. So much thanks to both Michael and to Grim for, you know, creating this and making it a lot easier to play with this. So if any of you have Orchestra 90 or their clones and want to hear some of the, you know, the four voice music and stuff with a full 8-bit stereo sound, uh, it's nice and easy to use now. Uh, Carlos Camacho found this. This is kind of interesting. I hadn't heard of this before, but he, as he mentions in the description here on the Facebook uh, Coco group, he says, here's a cool project from the air force that used a Coco. And I'm going, huh? I still don't really know what the project actually does here. And you hardware guys can probably explain this a lot better than I could, but, uh, there's a PCM processor and it's linked to a bunch of things like signal conditioners and bit timers and shift generators and a bunch of other hardware terminology. I have no idea what they're talking about. But if you see at the bottom there, it says display processor, microcomputer system, Tandy color computer. So this was uh, the Tandy Coco was actually used to show what it's doing. And they were planning future enhancements with like printer output and stuff too. Um, I don't know too much else about this project. Uh, if Carlos was in the chat, I'd ask him, but uh, pre pretty interesting. Uh, you know, uh, there's been rumors of the Coco being involved with the shuttle before. And I know for sure OS9 and 6809s were. I don't think the Coco itself specifically was, but here's one that actually mentions the Coco by name. Kind of looking like well, yeah, the Coco as a uh, video display. Yep. Right. You have a 68,000 processor in the primary unit. So a Coco fits right in. 
Not only that, but they spelled color the uh, Air Force way. Well, (laughs) but as far as the incorrect way, (laughs) yeah. If you get a sixty-eight thousand, hook it up to a cocoa, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, both Motorola chips that actually talk in the bus roughly the same. So, so I thought that was kind of cool. I hadn't even heard of that that project whatsoever. And it says dated from September of eighty-five. So this is pre Cocoa three. Next up, a big thank you, Tim Lindner. I was hoping you'd still be on here so I could thank him in person for this. Um, I've always been bugging people that the original Coco uh, 1 style, now this one says Coco 2, and this was the early Coco 2s had this. The later Coco 2s, for cost reduction purposes, combined the regular color basic and extended basic manuals into one single manual, but they thinned it out. There's quite a bit of stuff missing. Uh, this here, Tim Lindner scanned this in and put it up as a PDF you can download from the Color Computer Archive, is the full... Uh, if you guys remember the history of the original color basic manuals from Tandy, when the color computer one was first released and first started going in sale in September of 1980, the manual wasn't fully ready yet. So they published their little shrunken version that only had the first 14 chapters. And then they later published the later one that added three more sections, including a section on assembly language and uh, you know, more advanced uh, cassette file IO and all kinds of stuff added to it. This is a scan of basically the equivalent of the Coco One's original full version of the Color Basic getting started with manual. And uh, basically the only thing they did here, the early Coco Twos just added Tiger Study Color Computer 2 on the cover. And that basically, other than that, it's exactly the same manual, a full 300 page version, not the reduced 170 or whatever it was. Uh, but that has never been on the archive before up until now. So big thank you to Tim. That was a lot of work to put all that together. And they spelled color correctly on those too. Uh, no, you didn't. But anyway, I, I would definitely recommend this. This is the ones I'm always talking about when I say that the Tier City Color Computer had the best lang- or best basic manuals for learning basic out of pretty well every home computer. This is the one that I'm basing that on. So if you guys have not seen this before, or you've only seen the combined Coco 2, later Coco 2 ones, a combined extended basic and regular basic into one manual, this is a lot more thorough. And I think a lot easier to use as a beginner as well. Next up, 8 Bits in the Basement hasn't been doing videos lately, so uh, he has a video here explaining it. It's because he's been busy learning Cocoa Semi-Language. So he's been making a game that he had covered back in October-ish, I think, that he was doing an Atari 8-Bit programming a little video game. And he decided to try to port it over to his Cocoa 2. And he got you know a few bits, and he shows a few little bits in here. He tried it both in low-res and in P-Mode 4. And BASIC is just running way too slow for what he's trying to do. Now, there are some techniques he could have done to speed them up quite a bit, but it wouldn't have been as fast, even close to the Atari version. So he decided to start learning a semi-language. So he's been getting help from some people like Mr. Dave Sixer and I, and I don't know if he's still in the chat either, but uh, he's definitely been getting some help from him. And he's, you know, the game's not done yet, but he's been learning. And, you know, he does the same thing everybody else does. He goes off in his own way and then can't get it to work and then asks for some help. Um... But it's actually coming along quite well. And I don't know if you guys remember the game from before, but I'll just play a little bit. So I was using mobile phone to save out work. And then oh, it, it, I have a huge appreciation for people who did this back in the 80s. Me, I change it then on my PC. It's compiled and I'm trying to... You're talking about how much faster it is to cross-compile now than doing it on an Edtasm cart back in the day. Five minutes to save it. It took a bit of time to compile it. And then you had to load it back in. And you, oh, man, I can only, I can only imagine... But 
Hey, right. You can see in the background here. So basically, you're you're trying to collect these aliens while dodging through these moving walls. I have this little hole opening that you have to kind of you know d jump through without hitting the walls themselves. And uh, joystick control. And he's got all that part working. He's got collision detection working on the your player collecting the other alien thing. He doesn't have it checking for collisions with the wall, moving walls yet, but uh, he's progressed a fair bit of ways. He's never touched a semi language before in his life. And he hadn't even touched basic programming before he did his Atari 8-bit version of this, you know, half a year or a year ago. So he's been learning programming from scratch. He's He's been a hardware guy all this time. He's never done programming. So lots of progress in a short amount of time. I'm kind of jealous. I didn't learn it this quick. And I look forward to the final game when it's released. Looks like fun. <clears throat> this is one I just stumbled on by accident last night. Uh the uh, YouTube channel, you know, Caraway. And I, I don't know if that's really his name or if that's just a descriptive thing for his YouTube channel, but he put up an hour plus long video here talking about working with basic for several different computers uh, with completely different projects in each. So he, he covers a bit about using uh, player missile graphics and the Atari eight bits for the, both the first half hour. And then he kicks into the Coco and just does a very brief, you know, here's another basic type thing. And he does some very simple, like, you know, if then go to's and stuff, he doesn't do anything you know too extravagant, but just, showing how a different version of basic works. And he covers that for about 20 minutes. And then he goes into covering uh, how to do graphics on, I think a Sega Genesis on the tail end of it. So um, I'm out, won't play it here because we're a bit restricted on time here, but uh, he says he's going to be doing some follow-ups on pretty well all of these at some point. So I left some comments for him too. And uh, it sounds like he might be doing some basic tutorials type things as well. Next up is a YouTube short from Primal Bits 4777. I have no idea if that's somebody we know or or not. Uh, but he's got a Coco 2 and he's gotten that uh, the previous owner reported has some keyboard problems. So he's going to be doing a full video in the future. This is kind of a teaser for it. Uh, where he's going to try to fi fix the uh, keyboard mylar. And there's two possible ways that he's going to do it. He's going to try both. So I'm just going to play the video since it's fairly short and, and kind of give you an idea what his upcoming video will be about. If it plays. Oh, that didn't work. What the heck? Well, I finally picked up a CRS eighty color computer too. And now it's not. Yeah, now I can't hear it. And yeah, I can't control the volume on stupid YouTube shorts. Okay, I'll just tell you what happened. So basically, he's going to try a conductive pen first because he's pretty sure it's the Mylar connections that are wore off in spots, and that's why the keyboard's not working. So he's going to try that, but he also ordered a replacement Mylar. Now, it's not one of Rick's with actual key switches and stuff. It's just a straight Mylar replacement, and it's not from somebody I recognized, which I guess I can play because he does eventually show it here. YouTube, you suck. <laughs> I, 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 if I didn't have to play shorts, I never would. I hate these things. Well, I finally picked up a QRS-80 color computer, too. It's just low, but I can hear it. A little bit of experimentation with. And... Yeah, I mean, on a regular YouTube video, you can adjust the volume. Here, forget it. You can mute it right. or not. That's it. You can't stop it. You can't back up. You can't. Yeah, it's just it. dumb. Why do people use this format? It sucks. Here's my rant for the day. So there, there's the, uh, the Mylar. So is this one you recognize? Rick, like it says RF something there, but I don't no, know. No, but interesting. So I don't know who made this or who's producing it. So kind of curious. 
Anyway, he's going to try to connect a pin first to see if that's enough. Now, from what I've heard, people have done that. It does work, but it, it generally tends to wear off. For, for a hot minute. <laughs> well, no, I've, seen, I've heard some people actually get it going for a year or two, but then you have to redo it. Well, the know, thing is, the, the actual traces are peeling off the mylar. Tandy couldn't make them stick. So just a pin is just a short-term fix. You yeah. Know, that was the whole problem. Now, I will, I will give a full plug for Rick's uh, Computer Connect, spelt oddly. Uh, website where you can order, actually order his key fix line of products for the various different Coco keyboard arrangements for Coco 1s, 2s, and 3s, uh, which actually put in mechanical switches. So it's almost like an Ed Snyder style keyboard, but you get to use your original Coco keys and stuff, yellowed and all, like you can see here. Um, that actually works quite well. And it even has the option of switching <laughs> a little switch you can add to it that will switch the uh, up and down arrow keys to become alt and control on a Coco 3 keyboard. So you can play the games designed for two hands properly on a Coco 3. So. I have one. It's great. Yep, I have one too. And ditto. Okay, next up, uh, Bowling Holt. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, now, he's, we've covered some of his stuff before. He's a guy that uh, is trying to recreate his original childhood Cocoa system setup. So the first thing he got was a DMP-133 printer, which is not quite the same one he had, but it's the closest he could find. And what he does here on this next part is he gets a Direct Connect modem pack. And hooks it up, and he actually does dial in to a real BBS, and he's got a... Now, this is something I did not realize. I never had a DCBAM modem pack. I had another 32 pack back in the day. But I had a built-in terminal program, which actually supported X modem. Modem's points there, because it would work in pretty well any BBS. You could upload and download files. What I didn't know is that it actually had an option for lowercase, if you have a true lowercase Coco. And the DC modem pack came out way before the Coco 3, so... Uh, they were kind of advertising the T1 VDG, or maybe this is based on the term program that was on the Deluxe Coco, the final version of it that never got released. I'm not sure. But I will show you a little bit. Interesting use of a, uh, a knickknack shelf. <laughs> yeah, for Max. Yeah, it's the Mac attack. <laughs> so he's executing the one back. So 1985 is when the software for this was written. And you check your uh, communications parameters here. And most everything is right. When I was a kid, I could still download things and I would switch over to X modem. But we're not going to be doing anything like that. You can load and save things for uploading and downloading to the cassette. I do not have the cassette hooked up right now. And again, we're not downloading anything, so I'm not worried about it. I'm going to turn on true lowercase characters just because, well, I can. And I never knew it had then this option. we're going to go out to the terminal screen by pressing escape. And it has a separate uppercase only for what you transmit. That's yeah. interesting. Now notice here, this he's in the terminal program proper now, not the setup menu. Notice the blinking blue cursor. Do you remember from our deluxe demo of the term program doing the exact yeah. same thing? I am wondering if when the deluxe got canceled... They moved the terminal program over as the ROM on the DCM here. <laughs> and left the lowercase in because they were planning on putting T1s in Cocoa 2s later. Yeah. That would be cheap. If you don't have a T1. Well, you it just wouldn't turn work. that on. Or you just get straight up. Or, or you get inverse video characters for lowercase. Great reuse I'm of a canceled project. Connect on the yep. modem itself, but for and then we do know they sold the keyboards. And you have to dial right. sell everything. the modem to which you, you want to connect. I wonder if there's any F1 or F2 um, prompts in there. When you hear the modem answer on the other end, you push the button on the side of the modem. Yeah, this didn't have actually an auto dialer. You had to dial it manually and then press the button to connect the call. Yes, it was. Oh, not, uh, 
Let's hear it. There you go. That originate answer. You had to go bump. Hanging up the phone. That was an interesting carrier, carrier tone. Was, I haven't heard that one right in a now, which means we yeah, 300 baud. 300 baud, not not bits per second baud. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm I'm familiar with 300 baud. I just haven't heard it in forever. Right, like since I was about eight. That's 9600 now. That that's a problem on the end of the BBS. He's calling. Apparently, doesn't know 300 baud existed. <laughs> right, right. New. It doesn't exist to me. This was great on CopyServe because they charged more if you went. Too. Yeah, I'm gonna hit and uh, conferences he couldn't type at that speed. So, but I remember 300 baud just like yesterday. Like this is how my first year and a half of modeming was. Except no lowercase. The sysop is a man named John Polka. Strangely enough, I didn't discover BBSs until I was uh, in my first year of college in 1990. Anyway, but I was I'm still using old tech. I was using a 1200 baud uh, modem to cut to dial in. Let me just show you what the modem looks like when we do this. Hey, the reason why to show this, and it, it, a few reasons, actually. One, first of all, he's dialing a real dial-up BBS. This is not telnet again. He's actually dialing and coming phone? in. And you get to hit there, you know, you get to hear those suave tones of a 300 baud connection <laughs> handshake going on type thing. And the fact that the DCM modem pack had true lowercase built into its menuing system. I think most of us that had DCM motor packs, I did not, but I know almost everybody I knew that bought one knew that it has a 6551 chip inside. So most people hacked out the ROM and then just connected everything up properly so you could run it as an R32 pack at 192. Right. And it was super cheap. Like the DCM modem packs at the end, because people, you know, even by, you know, 87, 88, 300 baud was almost unused. You were basically up at 12 or 24 by that point. Right. So people were well, not going to buy a 300 baud only modem at right the, at the time so the, radio shack was selling these for like four dollars and 95 cents yes <laughs> and they wow. were selling their so they two pack at the same time for like 89 bucks right, and right. it has it an arsenic back built into it <laughs> <laughs> so you buy a five dollar thing rip the rom out do a couple of wire snips and voila you got an arsenic two pack for like one twelfth the price or something wow exactly so I, I mentioned in the comment to him, he hasn't responded to it yet, but basically I said most people that bought this, you know, later in the Coco's Life bought it for dirt cheap and they made it into an RCD2 pack and suddenly you had like a 19,200 baud RCD2 pack or you could even run a 1,200 baud serial mouse on it under OS9 and actually run it as a mouse controller. So that was the other reason I want to show it. One was the dial-up and, and two is the fact the lowercase and, and third, you know, just the story behind the fact that a lot of people did end up buying these because it was a, basically a free, almost free, or so two pack. This was one of my favorite upgrades because there was actually in the saw cut to take off part of the motherboard to make room. Yeah, that's the... right. I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Yeah, you <laughs> get, can cut the piece the, out. The, the transform and all that stuff and make room for your little converters. Yeah. Yeah. How many of anybody here um, has gone online 300 baud with the uh, traditional, you know, green and black? Um, you know, no lowercase. Yeah, that was oh, my, I, that was, oh, that's all I had for the first time in yeah, years. I mean, it's very hard to read, except if you use it a lot, then you get used to it. I didn't find it that hard to read. I usually told the BBS I was on, like, just do lowercase. Don't bother with the, low, the lowercase, because then I just get in for characters. That's a bit hard. Right. But I would well, just say, could, screw it. When, when you, you can see sit, this, it's like nice. <laughs> Real well, nice. Like, like the program here had lowercase, had two lowercase options. There was one for what you sent and received and what you saw on screen yeah, on, on two separate. And if you just went with uppercase always and no word wrap, 
32 columns was usable. For conferences, yeah. typing, talking to people, it was usable. And, and you got to remember, too, like in the early 80s when the when this was out, um, there were other computers that had even less room on the text for text on the screen than we did. Like the VIC-20 had, what, 22 characters across? Or something? Right, something like that. So the BBSs so. were written like you could actually, some of them you could actually specify how wide is your screen, how tall is your screen. It would adjust all of its menu system based on that, right. so it fit perfectly. It's only when ANSI really became a standard that everybody started requiring 80 column by 24. And, and more importantly, everyone used short words back in the day. You know, you did not say initialization. You said start, because that fit on the screen. It, you know, it was just, a, that was the way it was done, so it worked. You couldn't yeah. do it today, because everyone likes long words. And, you know. Yeah. Anyway, I, I, I seriously, I wish I, Mark was still on the call for this, but I seriously think the ROM terminal software here is the deluxes probably just patched a bit. So I'm going to have to figure out how to get into the menuing system on the uh, the current ROM, if it's even in there. I don't know how complete the terminal program is currently, but uh, yeah, the true lowercase kind of is giving away, and that black flashing blue cursor to indicate you're in the terminal program and not in basic Yeah, kind of hints at it. And then we got a couple of bits from the Dragon side of things. So Julian Brown has posted an upgrade to his um, Dragon project, and here's working on a redesign of the PAL board. And this is in the Dragon uh, group on Facebook. And I'll just quote his thing here. He's got some pictures here for the audio listeners. Uh, working on revision three of the Dragon PAL uh, daughter board. Having been kept awake by this last night, I've decided to rework the PAL board a little to reduce path lengths and reduce proximity of digital and analog signals on the board even further plus an extra dose of decoupling capacitors from 6847, the BDG chip. There's still the option of building the same board with the original PD, PDIP chips, and it really doesn't change the size of the board. And I know what that version works because he was having some problems with the latest revision where it wasn't working properly anymore. So ongoing for his new upgraded Super Dragon, it's still progressing. And the last one here, there's another competition, like we talked about the 10-liner base competition before. There's also the demo, and this is much bigger in Europe than it ever was in North America. The demo scene, where you create you know, machine language demos to show off the hardware of a machine. And uh, this guy, I'm not sure how to pronounce this, Tobak, is working on a Dragon 32 entry for this year's 2024 uh, competition. And there's a little graphics demo, which is just an intro to a larger demo he's working on. It's called Munch My Bricks, and it's a 64-byte that's bytes, not not K. Uh, so, uh, a semi-language little routine that's doing some semi-graphic stuff just to look a little bit cool as an intro. And I'll play because it it's only three seconds. And this should work in the Coco just fine, too. It's the exact same screen, the exact same mapping. We can kind of see some, you know, semi-graphics colors are kind of rippling across. Not too impressive so far, but that's just the intro, so I'd like to see what the rest of the demo looks like. And I know Simon's been involved with these before, too. It's as well as a lot of Europeans on Speckies and Amstrads and C64s and VIC-20s and Apple IIs and everything else. But for some reason, in North America, the, the demo scene never really took off. And I know Nick and I always joke it's because we were getting real work done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that might just be our egos a bit there. I don't know. And that is the news for this week. What? <laughs> All right. Anything else we need to go over? I don't think so. Okay. 
This concludes another episode of The Coco Nation, the world's leading live interactive talk show featuring the Tandy Color Computer. For all things The Coco Nation, visit us on the web at thecoconation.com. We'd love to hear from you. Send feedback, suggestions, even segments via email to show at thecoconation.com. The Coco Nation Show would not exist without the community and its cast and crew. The Coco Nation theme song copyright 2022, D. Bruce Moore. Mixed, mastered, and produced by D. Bruce Moore. The Coco Nation is over. Join us on the Coco Discord server. Coco forever. Roger Taylor told me he's got something from Steve Bjork's collection. Oh, okay. Okay. Maybe we have to get him on the show if you can. See yeah, if you can I ask him. He, I don't know he doesn't like coming or what. Um, so anyway, uh, just a brief mention that uh, we are planning on releasing the uh, the version of MAME that will handle the deluxe color computer um, shortly. And we're going to keep working on the disassembly and the, uh, you know, ROM calls and basic keywords and stuff added in and creating documentation for that. So you guys can get a chance to play with it and uh, hopefully not that, too that, far in the future. Is that, uh, sorry, is that branch publicly forkable? I That's up to Tim. Uh, I haven't okay. been involved with the MAME side of things at all. I'm just trying, helping with the disassembly. All right. So Discord, um, the Co- Deluxe Coco area has that information when it comes up? It, it will once we have it available. I think we want to try to document a few other things first before. Uh, plus, you know, Tim's not fully emulating everything on the Deluxe Coco yet. Like one, for one, that phase shift thing, we don't even really know how that's supposed to look yet because uh, Brian hasn't been able to keep it running stably enough. He actually had a pretty good run today. We probably should have tried it again. Right. <laughs> um, but he's also not sure if the video circuitry is working right, so it'll even show up properly at this point. So, you know, there's a few other things we got to try to fiddle with and change. How many total machines are in, in you know? I know of three. I think Boise's got two deluxes, and those were from, I think, John Prickett, and I can't remember who else, but, but Tandy people. And then the one that Robert Kilkis had, that's the only three I know. There's three. Yeah. And from what um, Marcus told me, only 12 or 13 were produced as that early of a prototype to send out to developers. And I, another thing I was going to ask Mark, except uh, he ended up leaving, was uh, how much software was actually done? You sent it to all these developers to work on stuff, and obviously OS 9, I've actually seen copies of the code that actually use some of the new features. But what other software was being developed and what other stuff that developers already gotten kind of ready? If they were ready to go on sale like within a week, as, as Mark said, I'm assuming some launch software should have been ready. So what would have been available besides basic and OS 9? Like, was there games using this, some of this stuff? I'm really curious as to what, what might have been ready. And maybe talk to those people and see if they still have stuff. Hey, that's it. Okay. Well, um, next weekend, Virtual Cocoa Fest. Yep. Are we still having the show at the regular we- time, too? And the stuff's going around it? Or how is how are we working that? You muted, uh, Mark. Yeah, I think your mic, there's a cable problem or because you're cutting in and out, like not like slight static. lag, but like cut, cut with noise. <laughs> oh, you got it too? <laughs> <laughs> his cat got his mic. Where, where's a battle there? fish when you need one? <laughs> he took care of the cable. <laughs> he took care of the cable. Hmm. 
It's on your mic itself. It's actually crooked. It's actually crooked going into the mic. (laughs) The XLR cable is. Hello. Can you hear me now? Yes. Yeah, that's my uh, camera mic. No, my mic's working fine. Just the soundboard doesn't seem to be sending it to the computer. Ooh. So anyway, um, yeah, there. I've like I said, I only have like six people so far. So I'll make sure I work around. Uh, um, you know, the couple nation I have to so either do it earlier or do it on Sunday instead. So, no show this week. What do you think he said? Uh, I <laughs> think he said. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Block out some time for it, and uh, we'll just put people in. (laughs) No, I think I think your Zoom client is slightly borked. (laughs) Something's borked. Yeah. Actually, I was. Several of you guys were really broke up, staticky today. So I wonder which end it's on. It's the sign. Right. Good thing we're at the end of it. All right. Yeah. All right. So, so, So let's push the button. Okay. We'll see you all next week. Bye. Later, folks. Bye. Bye. Bye.